Find the truth on Solace Radio. So our Parsha opens um, with this command. And you are to command B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel, that they are to bring you pure olive oil beaten for the light to cause a lamp to burn continually. And the tent of meeting outside the curtain, which is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons will set it in order to burn from evening to morning before Adonai. It will be a statute forever throughout their generations on behalf of B'nai Yisrael. So B'nai Yisrael on behalf of the children of Israel. The most pure olive oil was beaten. That's why it's specified, beaten olive oil. It was beaten and then filtered to maximize its oil and purity. And then this oil was brought to the temple and used to light the menorah which would burn before the holiest place and the temple and the tabernacle. We find that the same oil, though, the same oil is used to anoint the high priest in Exodus chapter 29. The next chapter over, verse 7. Then you are to take the anointing oil, pour it upon his head, and anoint him. The word for anoint is mashach, and its derivative, mashiach, means anointed one or anointed. So, for instance, after the high priest is anointed, he becomes known as Hakon HaMashiach, the anointed priest. This word for anointed moved into English and became what? Does anybody know? Messiah. This word moved into English and became Messiah. In Greek, it was translated as Christos and became Christ in English. So, as Scripture develops, we find We find that this consecration, this oil of consecration, or this purest of olive oils, it consecrates priests, it consecrates prophets, and it consecrates kings in Israel in order to set them apart for Hashem. Being anointed was to be Mashiach. Leaping forward to the time of Yeshua, on the night that he was betrayed, he went to the Mount of Olives and he prayed. The Mount of Olives was also known as the Mount of Anointing. Because of its olive groves. And because of the, the anticipated Messiah event that is prophesied. That Messiah is supposed to set his feet on the Mount of Olives in Zechariah 14, 3-4. But not only that, but Yeshua, the anointed one, on the night he was betrayed, there on the Mount of Anointing, was in Gethsemane. Which in Hebrew is Gatshmanim, which means the olive press or the oil press. In olive presses, the olives are forced to undergo extreme pressure to crush as much oil from them as possible. And it's very interesting that Yeshua, the light of the world, he prayed in the press of Gatshmanim, Gethsemane. Luke says in Luke 22, verse 44, And in his anguish, in Yeshua's anguish, he was praying fervently in his sweat, was like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Like olives in a press, Yeshua was under immense pressure, and he too was being crushed emotionally and physically. He was about to be beaten like olives being beaten for the menorah. So here we have Messiah, the anointed one, under immense pressure at the olive press or the oil press on the Mount of Anointing, all on the night of his betrayal. And not only that, but, but the deep significance that, that he is the light of the world resonates with the idea that the menorah provided 
light for the temple, which was called the light of the world. And that light required the most pure, beaten, and filtered olive oil brought from not just anybody, but brought from the people of Israel. And this is another note about the oil for the menorah. It could only come from the Jewish people. So too, the Messiah. The Messiah can only come from the Jewish people. He had to be a Jewish descendant of David Melech, King David. And here Yeshua is reflecting the menorah in his hour of suffering as a faithful Jewish man descended from King David. Brought through the Jewish people, suffering under pressure inside the place called the Olive Press, about to be beaten himself, he prayed to Hashem upon the mountain of anointing. And Yeshua will again reflect the menorah when he returns to the mounts of anointing. Just like the prophets proclaimed and the angels said, when he is anointed, the king over Israel with the purest of olive oil, and he shines the light of God's glory across the nations. But our parshah continues. It moves beyond the menorah, and it begins discussing the Kohanim, the priests. And, and we do want to recognize that there are two priestly roles that are being discussed, right? There's the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, and the common priests. We also want to remember that the priests are only from the tribe of Levi. But not all Leviim, not all Levites are priests. The priests must descend from Aaron. The priests were given unique roles, as were Levites. But those roles were given to them by the Lord. In preparation for our afternoon study, um, I came across a story that helps us understand the distinction that God gave to the priests, really, and, and the others, but to the priest specifically, in a unique way. The story is, a man wanted to give a gift to the king. He took olives from his own groves, and he pressed fine oil. He took the olive oil, and he traveled to the king's palace. But when he arrived, the king's guards would not allow him to enter. Only the members of the king's cabinet may enter before the king, the guards said. The man didn't despair. He waited until he saw one of the members or ministers from the king's cabinet approaching. And he said, please take this gift of fine olive oil and give it to the king for me. Well, in the same way, the same way like the king's cabinet members, only the priests could enter the holy space of the tabernacle. They regularly had to tend and light the seven lamps of the menorah. The oil they needed, though, was provided by the rest of the children of Israel because other Jews could not enter the tabernacle to present the, Lord, the oil. Therefore, the priest presented the oil on their behalf. The unique role of the priests was sacred as members of Hashem's cabinet. They, they not only, though, entered for themselves, but they entered as representatives of the nation. They were even bearers of gifts from the nation to Israel's great king. And in this same way, the olive oil from the children of Israel was given as a gift from all nations to Israel or through Israel, since only Israel can provide the oil. The distinctions we see here can also help us understand that the Torah applies uniquely to individuals and nations based upon our gender or our age, God-defined role, and our national calling. But this picture doesn't end there. Because the priest not only carried the oil of all of Israel into the holy place, but the high priest brought all of Israel with him 
into the holiest place as a gift from Israel to the Lord. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 9, Exodus 28, 9, it says this. You're to take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of B'nai Yisrael, the names of the children of Israel. Six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. With the work of a gem cutter engraving a seal, etch the two stones in the order of the names of B'nai Israel. Make them enclosed in settings of gold. Fasten the two stones upon the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be memorial stones for B'nai Israel. So Aaron is to bear their names before Adonai on his two shoulders as a reminder. You see, the high priest carried the entire nation with him into the divine presence in the holiest place. He bore them on his shoulders as a remembrance to the Lord. And we find this same idea actually repeated just a few verses later, but with an important distinction. Chapter, same chapter, chapter 28, verse, verse 29. Aaron will bear the names of B'nai Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart whenever he enters the holy place as a continual memorial of Adonai. The nation, its people and tribes are carried over the heart of the high priest. I think that's amazing. Not only that, but, but on the high priest's head, he had this turban, the high priest's turban, and it carried an engraved headplate that said, Kadosh li Hashem, holy to Hashem. The high priest stands before God on behalf of the people, carrying the nation upon his heart and upon his shoulders. And then in turn, he represents, and, but he represents Hashem and he stands before the people on behalf of Hashem, on behalf of the Lord. What an amazing job. But as I consider the high priest's spectacular garments and his role, I was reminded of the four different times in last week's Parsha that we read how all of the tabernacle's design and model was actually shown to Moshe on the mountain. The sages teach that Moshe was shown the heavenly temple and that this is what he was tasked to recreate upon the earth. Uh, the author of Hebrews reiterates this. The reason this left out to me was because if the earthly high priest's clothes were modeled upon the heavenly high priest's garments, that means that Yeshua, who is our heavenly high priest, is dressed in glory and splendor in the heavenly place, the heavenly temple. The high priestly clothes that we read, that we read about this week, they're copies of the divinely perfect and glorious garments that Yeshua wears as he stands as the mediator who draws us near to Hashem in the heavenlies. And not only that, but there's this aspect of the, of the high priest's garments, the stones on the shoulders and the, the stones over his heart. And that too must reflect the heavenly high priest. Here Yeshua is in the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple, making intercession, carrying over his heart, the 12 tribes of Israel, as a memorial before his father. And he carries the weight of Israel upon his shoulders as her king and as her priest. And he asks his father to remember her as he remembers Yeshua's sacrifice and as his father remembers Yeshua's faithfulness. And not only that, but Paul tells us that those who submit to Messiah from the nations, they, they come into the commonwealth of Israel so that all of us 
under Messiah are somehow on those stones, those heavenly stones, as we are attached to the promises of God given to Israel through Messiah. And Messiah is carrying our names. He's carrying your name to the Father in intercession. He's calling your name out to the Father's mind and He's reminding the Father of, of His own faithfulness on our behalf. And that's huge. Really quickly, I don't want to go into this much, but I do want to make a, a reminder that the author of Hebrews goes to great lengths as well to, to remind us that Yeshua's heavenly high priesthood is completely different than the earthly priesthood, right? The earthly priesthood had to be descended from what tribe? That's right, the Le- Levi. And so they had to be descended from, from Levi, and specifically from within the, the Levites, uh, had to be descended from Aaron, from Aaron. But Yeshua came from tribe of Judah, and specifically from the lineage of King David. And so those are important things that Yeshua's role in the heavenlies does is different. It's a completely different caliber uh, than the priesthood that we see of, of the earthly priests. And not only that, but we have uh, the prophets. You can see uh, whether it's Ezekiel or you're looking in the New Covenant promises of Jeremiah chapters 31 to 33. You see that in the Messianic era, the priesthood will be reestablished. And you see them functioning uh, in their priestly roles. So there's a difference. Again, that's on earth. That's not in the heavenly temple. That's, so there's a dynamic difference. The earthly reflects something that's happening in the heavenlies. Um, but clearly Yeshua did not negate God's calling on these people. But this idea, I'm going to go back to, to the main message. But this idea that, that Yeshua, the heavenly high priest, is our representative to Hashem. It actually drew me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to look at John 1, uh, 15, 1 to 4. Um, and you may not see the connection, but I hope, I hope that I can tie it together. Yeshua says in John chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he trims so that it might bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. The branch cannot itself produce fruit unless it abides on the vine. Likewise, you cannot produce fruit unless you abide in me. Yeshua, the vine. Like the high priest, uh, a king's uh, or a nation's king represents his people. Uh, Like when you're talking about in national events or international uh, legal decisions and on the world stage, the king represents his people. They do so as representatives of, of their entire nation. In religious matters, the king's faithfulness and his worship was given to Hashem on behalf of the entire nation, not only himself. So like the priest who ministers before the Lord on behalf of the nation, so too does the king embody his people Israel. The king of Israel could be called, and we see this idea throughout uh, the scriptures, but the king of Israel could be called one man Israel, or Israel in one man. And you may wonder, what in the world does this have to do with anything about John chapter 15, 1? Well, the vine and the vineyard that God planted in Yeshua's allegory, the vine and the vineyard, they're a common allegory. That's a common allegory that, that God gives to the prophets for to represent the nation of Israel. Israel is often represented as a vine or as a vineyard. You see this throughout the prophets. 
And so in here, Yeshua says that he is the true vine. And it's important to say, to help for us to understand, it's important for us to understand that Yeshua is not the true vine at the expense of Israel. Instead, he's the true vine as the king and perfect representative of Israel. Precisely what the king of Israel should be. Embodying his people for their best. He embodies her faithfulness to the covenant so that she can receive the promised blessings. And he embodies her prophetic destiny. Both her future sufferings and her glorious resurrection. Interestingly though, in order to reach that destiny, his people need to attach themselves to their righteous king. Actually, people of all nations need to attach themselves to the vine of Israel through her king in order to find the promises of God. And Yeshua gives us a stern warning in that passage. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit will be cut off. And every branch that bears fruit will be trimmed. You cannot produce fruit unless you abide in me. So let's think briefly about what he just said. How much work, how much work does a branch have to do to produce fruit? Is it striving independently of the vine to just make fruit happen? Is it worried and fretting a branch? Just a branch that's on the vine. No, the, the branch is connected to the vine and the branch is letting the vine do the work through it. So too for us. We draw life from our connection to Messiah, not from striving to make fruit happen on our own, We stay connected to him. We stay flexible in learning and he will ensure we produce fruit in our lives. The other thing is that fruit bearing branches are still trimmed. But the reality is they're still trimmed. But the reality is that in order to make a branch more fruitful, we actually have to trim it. We have to to trim off the excess. We have to take off growths that just use resources but don't yield fruit in order to allow that branch to really focus on production. It's like a knife that's become dull. In order for that knife to best work, how do we sharpen it back up? Do we add metal to a knife in order to sharpen it? Are we wrapping it up in aluminum foil to make it sharp? No, right? That's ridiculous, but we hone it, right? We hone it. And as we're honing it, we're actually taking away bits of metal to get the blade back into into shape to sharpen it. And it's the same for us. As we grow, as we mature, sometimes we find things that we thought were needed in our lives, or we find distractions that we leaned on are removed. Like a child who learns to ride a bicycle, and they start on training wheels. As they become older, the training wheels come off. The parents stay right beside the child, right, for a little bit. And then then the parents start to back away. And the children start to need less and less supervision to ride the bike. And as as our children become more proficient bicycle riders, we don't add more wheels, do we? No. Because in actuality, the training wheels, they don't help the bike ride better. They hinder the bike. They hinder what the bicycle can actually do, how fast it can go. They hinder how the bike handles jumps, how it handles turns. They limit places that the bike can go. You can't go off-roading with a, with a training wheels on your bike. Very, well, at least not very well, I would assume. But in an earlier season of life, those training wheels were actually very helpful. But not so much as we build our skill. So it's the same spiritually. 
God allows us spiritual training wills when we are spiritual children. But as we mature, he trims things away from us. And at first, it can be very, very uncomfortable. God, I'd rather be watching TV right now. Or Lord, I don't know if I can talk to those folks. You want me to worship without feeling emotionally warm and fuzzy? You mean to worship without having music or without the right kind of music? You mean to, to respect that boss who is a complete jerk? You want me to honor my parents who would still make horrible choices even all these years later? God gives us space to grow, but he does trim us. He does push us because it gives us the ability to produce more fruit and to live in more freedom. Another thing that we need to ask ourselves, we need to realize is who is all of the fruit that we're supposed to be producing? Who is all of that fruit for? Do you think that the, that the fruit, if we're thinking back to Yeshua's allegory, do we think that the fruit on the, the well, the, the fruity branch or whatever, the, the branch that's full of fruit, do we think that the branch is like going to eat all of the fruit of it on its own? Is the fruit for that branch? No, it's not for the sake of the branch. The fruit on the vine branch, is for the gardener to pick and for the gardener to give to whoever he wants to give it to. And so as we're going or growing up into spiritual adults, learning to look more like Messiah Yeshua, we've got to not desire change and growth so that others will notice us or so that life will get better for us because it may not, actually. Instead, We want to grow mature so that the fruit that the vine produces through us, you see the vine is producing fruit through the branches, but we want to mature so that the vine that the fruit or that the vine, the fruit that the vine produces through us will be good to the gardener so that the gardener can use it however he wants to. But since Yeshua requires that we abide in the vine, I think that it's important to look at some practical ways and we'll just list list a couple, a couple, a practical couple of ways to to abide in the vine. Our Porsche actually gives what I think are two ways, and there are more, but gives a couple of very down-to-earth ways to abide in the vine. These are tools in our Porsche that we need to take as disciples of Messiah Yeshua. I think they are prayer and the Word. I think we see these things in, in our Porsche. So in our Porsche, we learned that, that first, that the menorah, was tended for the Lord in the evening, Ma'ariv, and in the morning, at Shachrit. Secondly, we find that the continual sacrifices, the Tamid sacrifices, were offered in the morning at Shachrit, and at, at the afternoon, at Mincha. Third, the incense. The incense was offered at the morning at Shachrit, and at the afternoon, at Mincha. These times of sacrifice and service actually end up being given the same name that we find for other commanded assemblies, like Passover, like Shavuot, like Sukkot, their Moedim, appointed times. You see that in Numbers 28, 1-3. The apostles, the sages, the ancient prophets, they, they all understood that our prayers accompany the times of sacrifice. And absent the sacrifices, our prayers continue at those times. Daniel is just one example of this. Uh, we also see uh, in Revelation, our prayers are like, like incense, right? And we have the times of the incense offerings. We may not think about prayer as having biblically appointed times, 
But this is precisely how prayer is treated in the scripture. Evening, morning, and afternoon. In Exodus 29, 43, God said, present the offering and I will meet with you to speak to you there. And biblically, in the biblical times, these divinely appointed epochs of the day, these times of sacrifice and service were given set prayers and psalms that the Jewish community maintains even to this day. To these prayers, of course, are added personal petitions and times of meditation and times of listening, either corporately like the apostles or individually like Daniel. These appointed times are God's appointed opportunities to abide in his presence through Messiah. We'll find the patriarchs, the prophets, David, the apostles, even Yeshua praying at these set times of prayer. Actually, Yeshua's time of suffering, his time of the crucifixion, actually all of that revolved around these times of of prayer and sacrifice. And so if this was important to the disciples, we see the disciples, the apostles praying and, and worshiping at the times of prayer at the temple with one another. How is our prayer life? If it's not already regular, could you, let me personalize this, could you dedicate some time each morning this week at one of the appointed times to abide in the vine? Incorporate the prayers of Yeshua's Jewish people. If you don't read Hebrew, pray it in English. Use it as a launching pad to deepen your prayer. The apostolic writings are full of prayers. Or just pour out your heart. But pray. Make space to listen to God. But it takes dedication. The important thing is to start. And be determined to keep trying even when you don't do it perfectly. While using the tools that we have as a community. Tools of accountability and resources. If we don't take the opportunity to push ourselves to start a good habit, it's not going to magically happen. The only, only kinds of habits that happen like on their own are like bad habits, right? If you want to work out, if you want to learn to play an instrument, if you want to uh, learn to speak a language, if you want to uh, learn a, a sport, you have to work. It takes dedication. Uh, if, you, if you want to binge watch something, let's get real. You know, binge watch something, you're going to take time out of your day to binge watch, right? Be for real. Or if you're just going to watch uh, some other show, I mean, you're going to take time out of your day to watch something. So why would we want to put all of these other things that we want to do on a higher pedestal than, what, than spending time with, with the Lord? God really wants us to abide with Him, to abide in Him. And so that means we've got to up the priority that we put. Uh, spending time in prayer with with the Lord. Again, we've got to be gracious with ourselves. If we're if we're on a roll, like we we've prayed two days, uh, two mornings this week, and oh my goodness, I forgot yesterday, and and we can't just beat ourselves up because if we beat ourselves up, then what, what are we going to do? We're probably just going to stop. So I said, it's like okay, well, I didn't do it yesterday. I'll, I'll do it today. We've got to be gracious, and we've got to be determined to keep rolling. When you when you trip and fall, just get back up, dust off your knees, and go on. Another opportunity to abide that we see that I think we, we connect with in our scripture uh, is also, uh, also connected with Exodus 29, 43. The Lord said, present the offering and I will meet with you to speak with you there. 
to speak with you. He speaks through his spirit, which if we're listening in our prayer time, I hope that we are sensitive and making space to listen to him. But he also speaks through his word, which is always what we go back to as the judge of our hearts and our understandings and what we think we've heard. We're not abiding with him if we don't know him through his word. Despite what folks say, we cannot know Messiah if we don't know his scripture and his context. You can't unhitch him from his Bible. So he's got to be read and he's got to be known within that very Jewish context of his time, his faith, his culture and his people and his scripture. Yeshua's Yeshua's, uh, life is not uh, what's important, may I say, let me say this. What is important about Yeshua's life is not only his death. But it's actually all of those 33 years of life and those all important three years of intensive discipleship and teaching that is captured in the base road in the Gospels. Yeshua walked among us. He was teaching us. He was he was showing us what Torah looks like by living it out. He was showing us how life in the new covenant looks as the spirit writes Torah upon our hearts and as the spirit moves through us in power through our words and through our deeds. He was ushering in the kingdom of heaven all around us. He shows us what to expect. Yeshua revealed to us what love looks like, what wisdom looks like. And he, he didn't do all of that just so that we could know what he knows. He, he, he didn't do all of that just so that we could have nice stories and heavenly knowledge that is of absolutely no earthly good. He lived so that we can become what he is. He told us that the disciple when fully trained will be like his or her master. And in the West, there's this common misconception that salvation is a a free ticket to some nebulous idea of of heaven. And that this world is going to burn in hell. but, But that's actually completely wrong. The entire narrative of scripture is about the restoration of this world. Our world that we were drawn from. It's about bringing the kingdom of heaven into creation, about God's kingdom breaking out here. That's what we're supposed to pray for. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That is the messianic kingdom, the messianic age. And that's what the resurrection is all about. Yeshua's life teaches us that salvation is the story of each one of us growing into the image of Messiah Yeshua. Salvation creates a changed life here and now that impacts the world around us by bearing the fruit of Messiah's life in and through us. We abide by investing our lives into things that give life, things that will help us grow into the image of Messiah. The scripture tells us how he lived, which we can see through his shlachim as well, so we can live like Messiah lived. So that we can sound like he spoke. So that we can think like he thinks. So we can love like he loves. So we can heal like he healed. So we can share like he shared. We're called to live a life like his. So he lived a life to teach us how to do that. That story of our lives that is redeemed. Our lives that are redeemed in this age. That's the story of salvation. Through Hashem's work and his son. Messiah Yeshua on our behalf. His is the life that we're called to emulate. The way that we become what he is, the way to become what he is, is to study his word, 
to live out his message by God's Spirit. Abiding in the vine is becoming so enmeshed with Messiah so that his life is being lived through us. And that's our goal. And that will bring heaven to our lives and through us to the world around us. One person at a time. It has to start with practical determination, dedication, and a willingness to keep moving even when we fall. Messiah's life is like that perfectly pure olive oil from Israel. The anointed one. The anointed one was pressed beyond measure in the olive press on the mountain of anointing on our behalf. And now he stands in the heavenly temple, the perfect temple not made by human hands, where he intercedes on our behalf, carrying our names upon his shoulders and upon his heart. And he asks that we abide in him for the fullness of life. John says that we're called in John chapter, First uh, John chapter 2. John says that we're called to walk just as Messiah walked. So between you and the Lord this week, can you make the choice to strengthen, strengthen your discipleship to the master? Can you make the choice to strengthen your discipleship so you can walk a little bit more like he walked? Will you commit to pray? Pray at least one of the three, one of the three Moa, daily Moadim that he gave us for prayer. The evening, the morning or the afternoon, will you commit to just one of those? Start somewhere. Start praying once a day. If you're not already praying once a day, will you commit to read his scripture? Spend some time. If you, if you are not reading his scripture, take, start off for five minutes. Take, take the scripture and read it for five minutes a day. Can you commit to something small? And then if you, if you skip a day because you're trying to build a good habit, don't beat yourself up over it. It's a day. All right. So move to the next day. Just pick it up the next day. But will you consider making a commitment to build your relationship, to abide in the vine a little bit more this week. We need to abide in Messiah to purposefully connect with the vine. And we may not be perfect, and I hope you're okay with that, but we may not be perfect, but when, when we do slip, just remember that's what training wheels are for. And if we're past training wheels, just remember that, that Hashem, His Spirit is running alongside of us. And not only that, but you've got a community here running alongside of you in partnership with you. And we all want to grow together to build the kingdom of God here together for our king, for our heavenly high priest, for Messiah Yeshua. Our foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua, the rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. Shabbat Shalom. It is a wonderful Saturday afternoon. It is afternoon. It is 12.04, just so you know. Um... This morning, uh, for those of you who, who know me, I, I was blessed with an incredible sight. Um, I, I came up the stairs you know, from my basement office where I finished putting the, the touches on the message, and I looked out my back, and uh, off my deck, there was, you know, it, our, our house backs to this like, wooded area. And from where I was, you know, a little bit back from the, ed- from the edge of the deck, it was all foggy, and it looked like I had been transported to Dagobah. And like I was getting ready to go find Yoda. It was amazing. Uh, it was just such a blessing. Uh, but, but perhaps, I mean, you really should have been there. It was, it was wonderful. It really was. Uh, anyway, um, this morning's portion is uh, uh, from, from Leviticus. And there's, there's actually a lot, a lot to talk about in this particular passage. Uh, it begins with 
the consecration of the priests. And, and I, I mentioned this not last, last time, but I think it was the time before, that when we talk about the word Shemini, which means eight or eighth, uh, I asked you to keep in mind what we were referring to in terms of eight. Eight what? What did this particular passage start with? And I told you to remember that it was eight referring to Bless you. Twice. It was eight in terms of the eighth day of the consecration of the priests. The priests had done all that they had been required to do. And on the eighth day, they were done. And now they're getting ready to start their service for the Lord. Shemini uh, is from the word uh, eight or eighth, and it comes from Leviticus actually in verse nine, in verse one, which says, Vayahi bayom hashmini, and it came to pass on the eighth day. So we have the, finally, after all the, con- the construction of the tabernacle, the priest had been in the doorway of the tabernacle in the tent of meeting for seven days. Now on the eighth day, they're done And Moses now starts instructing Aaron on how to go about starting the service for God. He uh, he instructs him on what to do, and Aaron does everything that he's instructed. There are so many times in the Torah where it says, Ko Amar Adonai, just as the Lord said. This is is one of them. Aaron does exactly what he's instructed to do. We read about... His sons, two of his sons, he had four sons, but two of his sons, Nadav and Avihu, were watching him, and they were watching him intently. Why? Because they wanted to be just like their dad. They wanted to have that role. They wanted to be important. They wanted to serve the Lord. And so they were watching as he did all of the things that he was instructed to do. And when he was done, the son said, Ha! I can do that. But they introduced their own little spin on it. They did it their way, like Burger King. And as a result, just like Burger King, they died. No, I'm kidding. Although sometimes it feels that way after Burger King, right? I don't know, I don't know if you've ever eaten Burger King, but it does me. Anyway, they die. They introduce their own little shtick, and they die as a result of it. The priests, from that point on, are watched even more carefully, as we read in this morning's portion. Then we have a, a whole chapter on kosher laws. And it, it, it really is not about the food. It's not about food. It's, it's not even about the animals. Because it's the animals that are clean and unclean, according to the scripture. It's the animals from which we can eat versus from which we cannot that we find in Leviticus chapter 11. But it's not even about that. According to what the scripture says, it's about, it, the Hebrew word is a really interesting word. It's, it's vehit uh, kadishtem. It's from the word kadosh, which means to sanctify or set apart. But the form in the Hebrew is such that it is reflexive, uh, you know, so it, it's referring to yourselves. Make sure that you set yourselves apart. You sanctify yourselves by doing these things. Make yourselves different. And then he tells them why. 
Be holy. I want you to be holy ones. I want you to be set apart ones. Be sanctified ones. And then he tells them why he wants that. Because I am holy. That's where our portion ends today. Um, we are going to speak about Yom HaShoah later on today. But I will, I, will, I will defer that until a little bit later on. So the idea here is that God wants us to be different. He wants us to be sanctified and set apart. And Aaron and his children were specially so. They had spent seven days setting themselves apart, standing there, doing everything they were supposed to do, according to what God said. Now, could they have skipped a day? Could they have? Sure, they could have. We don't know what would have ended up happening to them, because they didn't. We can assume that had they done what they wanted to do instead of what God wanted them to do, they, that he would have ended up just like his two other sons. But they chose to be different in the manner that God told them to be different. His sons were different too. But they did it on their own. They did it in their own way. And it didn't go so well for them. So what... What we're hearing here is that God wants us to be different, but he, he tells us how he wants us to be different. Not just be different in, in any other way. It's to be different for God, in God's way. People are going to see that. People are going to have one of a couple of reactions. They're going to they're gonna say, yes, I want to be that different too. I want to imitate what you're doing. They're going to say, yeah, I can be different, and I'm going to do it my own way. Or they can hate you for being different, which is why I'm, I'm always you know, just so in awe of how God orchestrates everything so that this portion almost always falls right around Yom HaShoah, which is a recognition of that third thing, where people saw the Jewish people being different and hated them for it. It's not a Jewish problem. We have seen that time and time again, especially recently in the past, you know, one, two, three, five years with George Floyd, with the recent, you know, persecution against Asians and violence against Asians. It's not a Jewish problem. This problem of being different and hating what is different is a people problem. Not just a Jewish one. The title of this message is something different. And as we watch this video clip, you'll see it's not just a people problem either. It's a dinosaur problem too. Let's watch. 
It's funny that I, I heard people, why, why, why? And last Sunday, which happened to be Easter Sunday, I was preaching at um, a friend's church uh, because their, their, their pastor had resigned. And one of the things that I brought up is the fact that the person who can answer why to infinity is God. He's the only one who can answer that, that question forever. Typically, as parents... When we have that inquisitive child who just tells us why, we will, we will eventually get to a point where we have to say because. And even that won't typically stop the inquisitive child. We say, well, why? And then you have to have the, infinity, the infinity, or definitive why stopper. The definitive why stopper, you all know it, is because I said so. That's right. Because we get, we get a lot of our behaviors from our, our parents and our adults. Uh, and I want, I want you to notice that. And it's funny that you picked up on that. You know, this particular video clip has the three-horn baby or child and the, the long-neck child playing with each other. And they had no problems. It wasn't until the adult literally stepped in and said, oh, we don't do that, that there was a problem. In fact, if you listened carefully, the child, three-horn, repeated verbatim exactly what they had been told 
by their parent. They didn't understand there was a difference until the adults stepped in and then asked the baby long neck, asked his mother why they couldn't play together. Well, we just sort of keep to ourselves. Why? Because we're different. Why? Well, it's always been that way. And you can just hear that conversation continuing off into the distance until the mother says, well, don't you worry about it. We see today people have a tendency to stay with their own kind. And God had some intent there as well. But it wasn't based on anything other than himself. He told us how to be different. And he didn't want us to be different so that we could be apart from everybody. We're, we'll be different from everybody. But he didn't want us to be apart from everybody. In fact, that's the whole idea of being a priesthood. is so that we could be different among everybody, and then sooner or later, it was God's hope that we would all become the same according to his will, according to his ways, that we would all learn about him and follow him because he is God and he wants everybody. He loves everybody and wants us all to be his people. We learned about that in the New Testament when he said, I didn't send my son for a couple of people. I didn't send my son to save just a few. I sent my, save, my son to save everybody because I don't want anybody to perish. But God wants us to be different his way. We can't just do whatever we want to do. We learned that in our Torah portion today. Some of those folks took more authority than they had. They took more responsibility for doing more things their way. We see that in Nadav and Avihu. We also happen to see it in our Haftorah portion with Uzzah. We'll get there in just a second. But Nadav and Avihu watched their father do this incredibly pious act. By pious, what I mean is that, that Aaron and the priesthood had dedicated their whole lives to following God, their, their whole selves to following him and doing everything he had asked them to do. Nadav and Avihu saw this incredible act of devotion and sacrifice, but couldn't quite make that commitment to doing it God's way. And instead of accepting the fire that they had offered, God sent a fire of his own and consumed the two boys. God gave us those instructions. And in fact, in particular, in this instance, God told Aaron how to do what he needed to do to protect him, knowing that things would be, be horribly wrong if he did it however he wanted to do it. So like a parent, in fact, God instructs, instructs us to protect us. Now, we know he's a friend. We know that. We know he's our brother. We are co-heirs with God's son. He is with us. Emmanuel, God, with us. But we have a tendency to forget that not only is God with us, but God is holy. 
That's what this whole Torah portion is really about. God is holy. He is more holy than the holiest holiness. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Adonai Tzivaot. Malo kol haaretz kavodo. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the earth is filled with his splendor. This is what the, the seraphim were crying to each other. So we know he's a friend, but we forget sometimes that he's holy. He, in fact, says, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. After Nadav and Avihu you know, create this entire display of just selfish ambition, God says, okay, look, I'm holy. And I will be treated as such by people who, who come near me. You can't just do whatever you want to do. And then he, he says, before all of the people, I will be honored. So it's not just that when Nadav and Avihu brought whatever they wanted before the Lord, it's that everybody saw it. What do you think may have happened if they all saw Nadav and Avihu bringing what, what they wanted? In fact, you know what they, you know what they called what, what, what Nadav and Avihu brought before the Lord? Esh zara, strange fire, foreign fire. What do you think may have happened if everybody in the assembly saw that, you, that it was fine just to bring whatever you wanted? Well, everybody at that point would just start bringing what they wanted, and there would be chaos, disorder. So not just by the people who are bringing it should I be treated as holy, but in doing so, before all of the people, I will be honored. And then he says, be holy, for I am holy. That's what we're doing. That's what we're supposed to be doing, is setting ourselves apart for God in the way that he wanted us to, because he is holy. And it's not a coincidence. I, you know I preach anti-coincidental theology. It's not a coincidence that immediately after this, we start to see chapter upon chapter upon chapter of just all of these different ways that we are supposed to keep ourselves different and separate from the rest of the world, not doing the things that the rest of the world were doing, but doing things according to God's way, being different. The real big problem is that the lines between the sacred and the secular, between the holy and the profane, have become blurred. David was angry in our Haftarah portion because of what happened to Uzzah. Remember, David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into the city. And the oxen almost caused the Ark to topple over. Uzzah puts his hand out on the Ark. The order was, don't touch the Ark. You can't touch the Ark. That's right. That's why they were carried, it was carried on poles. You carried it on poles. And Uzzah reached out, touched the ark, and he died for it. He did what he thought was right in his own eyes and died for it. Now, you might say, well, if, it, if, if, the, if he didn't, the ark would have fallen over. Well, first of all, you don't know that. We don't, we don't see what happened because he did touch it. But do you think God is in control? 
Yeah, I would think so. And if it had toppled over, mightn't there have been a purpose for that? If God is in control, then the answer to that question has to be yes, of course. But it didn't, and Uzzah died. Is God still in control? Of course he is. So was there a purpose for that happening too? Of course there was. It's a lesson for us. Uzzah didn't follow the instructions. But then again, did David? (laughs) No. No, he didn't. Not at all. And yet David was rejoicing in the Lord. We see that in this portion. He had his issues, for sure. But he was rejoicing for the Lord, before the Lord. Why was he rejoicing? I'm sorry, what? Because he was bringing the ark back. He wasn't rejoicing because Uzzah died. No, he was angry because Uzzah died. But he was rejoicing because the ark was coming back. Now, he did make a pit stop. And he didn't want that whole thing going into the city, so he stopped off at the house of Obed-Edom and left the ark there for a little while. But what was the significance of the ark? The significance of the ark. What was, what was the significance? The presence of God. See, now we're getting to the real heart of the matter. Because it's not really what we do that makes us different. No. What makes us truly different is the fact that God dwells with his people. In fact, he says that. Not in this portion, but he says it. He says, they will know that I am God when I dwell with my people. The ultimate difference between Israel and all of the other nations was God himself. That's what makes them different. Bringing the ark back into the city was tantamount to having God dwell with them again. And so this represented for David and for all of the Israelites at the time a return to a difference, a significant difference between them and the nations. Today, we know a few more things than they knew back then. See, the fact is that perfection didn't come through the priesthood. This is the the author of the book of Hebrews writing to Jewish believers. Look, perfection didn't come through the priesthood. It could never come through the priesthood. That's why it had to happen, you know, the sacrifices had to be done over and over again. It also says that perfection didn't come through the law. I'll say it again. Perfection didn't come through the law. Now, why? Because I said so. No. Why? Ultimately, perfection could never come through something that we still have the option to disagree with. The law, perfect. So don't mishear what I'm saying. 
The law itself is perfect, but it could never, ever make us perfect because we still have the ability to disobey it. Perfection comes not from a change in what we do, but from a change in heart. Which, by the way, is written into the Torah, which is why we recite the Shema and the Ve'ahavta. And these words which I command you today shall be done by you completely and utterly. No. And these words which I command you today, al livavecha, shall be in your heart. That's why Messiah Yeshua himself quotes it. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself from your heart. Problem is, our hearts are stone. That's why he sent Messiah to circumcise our hearts. Our hearts. And that's why, according to the scripture in Second Timothy, True grace is the fact that God changes us himself from the inside out. It is that heart change that both makes us perfect, not the law. The heart change that God does himself, that makes us perfect in the eyes of God and allows God to dwell with us. Because when we accept his son Yeshua, he does them both at the same time. He circumcises our hearts, puts his law inside them, and dwells within us. Which, by the way, is what is supposed to make us different. Now, I'll sort of bring us back when you allow that to happen in your life, people could look at you and say, yes, I want that. And that's what we hope. People could say, yeah, you know what? That's great. I'm going to do it my way. Or they can hate you for it. If you look towards the end of the book, you'll see that eventually that is actually what does happen. And believers in Messiah, followers of God, are in fact persecuted in those end days. And who knows how close we are to that? <laughs> Very. Certainly seems that way, but I'm not going to say that. Um, we don't know when, when he's coming. But the fact of the matter is, is that those issues that led up to the Holocaust are people issues, and they're universal. We are even prone, as David was, of taking something that appears righteous, using it for our glory, which is also what Nadav and Avihu did. They went and did their own thing. The Jewish people, for many, many centuries, looked, acted, behaved, were different. And we're hated for it. Now, I want to just, be, as we sort of transition now from the scriptural message 
into this honor, honoring of, of Yom HaShoah, I want to preface this by saying, I am not denying that people around the world are persecuted. What I am saying is that Yom HaShoah is the day to remember the Jewish people who were persecuted and killed in the Holocaust. I want to share a video with you. It's a pretty powerful video, but I do want you to please make sure that you silence your cell phones. Um, The honoring of Yom HaShoah is a somber event, and I want you to experience this. Uh, I I think that uh, it, it was earlier this week, And uh, I I will continue uh, this introduction into Yom HaShoah uh, after this video. Please, Please pay attention.
The Bible says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Lord, I hear the cries of six million of your people, men, women, children, murdered, annihilated in the Holocaust, and burnt. We confess these atrocities as sin and humble ourselves before you in shame. You have heard our plea and our repentance has come before your ears. Lord, I see black smoke. It rises up and spreads out like a veil of darkness over the nations again. The dark veil is the sin of our silence. Just as we Germans have remained silent, the peoples and the nations are silent once again. Again, your people Israel are hated, despised, and rejected, and yet we remain silent, even in the church. We are silent concerning the sin of our fathers. We remain silent, and behold, the black smoke is covering us again. From the land of unmerited grace, we are calling out, nations arise, for Zion's sake, open your mouth, never again, slander, hatred, or death. Israel, we will never forsake you again. You are our inheritance, our love, the blessing for all nations. Listen, receive the word. It will pervade your spirit. No more silence. Never again. Never again. Never again. It's an interesting day. In fact, I have in my notes an incorrect statement. Yom HaShoah, in my notes, says Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's not. Holocaust Remembrance Day is one of those international holidays. Falls on January 27th every year. And it was voted into law by the United Nations. It's so that the world will just have a day that, that we can all remember. Remember the Holocaust. Yom HaShoah was signed into law in 1953 by David Ben-Gurion, the, the current, at the time, prime minister of the newly born nation of Israel. The word Shoah means tempest, storm, devastation. 
or the way that it's translated today, catastrophe. Yom HaShoah is not Holocaust Remembrance Day. Yom HaShoah is the day of the catastrophe. It is an, a specifically Israeli holiday. On that day, a siren sounds. It's a scheduled siren. And no matter where you are or what you are doing, doing when that siren across the country, it's a siren that sounds across the country. When that siren goes off, no matter what you're doing, you stop on highways, local streets, marketplaces, cars, stop. Drivers and passengers exit their vehicles and stand in silence in honor of those who lost their lives in the catastrophe. Originally, it was supposed to be on the 14th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan. Can you tell me what else is the 14th of Nisan? It is the eve of Passover. And they did not want to directly correlate Passover with this Shoah. It's also on the 14th of Nisan, the anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which is why they had originally wanted that date. So they couldn't do it on that date. They moved it permanently to the 27th of Nisan, which was earlier this week. It was Wednesday night going into Thursday. The idea is to never forget. You heard it. You heard it in the video. I don't know if you, you, you were really listening to it. There's a German phrase. Nie wieder. Nie wieder. Never again. Never again. It is our duty to teach our children the realities of the Holocaust, the atrocities of the Holocaust. If we do not, then we are just as guilty as the, the, the three-horned papa who said, we don't play with the long necks. So we're here today to remember the day of the catastrophe so that we can all say together, Ni Vider. To do that, to remember, they say it takes seven, seven touches for you to remember something. Hopefully I've given you a couple of those those triggers today, but there's two more right here on this table. Candles and some flowers. You'll notice there are 11 candles. 11 candles represent 11 million people who perished in the Holocaust. More than half were Jewish. Six million Jewish people lost their lives, along with five million others. So there are 11, 11 candles 
if you count the flowers, there are 12 flowers. One for every million people who perished. And one for Yeshua, who was with them through it all. Whether they realized it or not, he was there with open arms. In fact, there are plenty of stories of Jewish people coming to faith in the concentration camps, some as late as the gas chambers, because the Spirit of God was present with his people. So 11 candles, 12, 12 flowers, and many traditions. One of those traditions I want to share with you now, it's a tradition on Yom HaShoah to read the names of the concentration camps. So I'm going to, I'm going to call them out now in alphabetical order, in honor of those who perished there. Arbeitsdorf, Auschwitz, Bergen-Belsen, Buchenwald, Dachau, Flossenburg, Großrosen, Herzogenbusch, Hinzelt, Kaiserwald, Cowen, Krakau-Plaschau, Majdanek, Mauthausen, Mittelbau-Dora, Natzweiler-Stutthof, Nuengama, Niederhagen, Ravensbrück, Sachsenhausen, Stutthof, Weivara, Warsaw. Don't know if you've lost anyone if those camps have meaning to you apart from simple memory. But the Jewish people remember, and we should too. I want to now take a moment and recite the Mourner's Kaddish. Oh, there's a video? I'm off. I missed the video. So let's go ahead and, and, and do the video. SS man shot my great-grandfather in the head in front of my grandfather. Suffered a terrible loss of nearly his entire family. This was something that they had to do in order to survive. They were taken in the middle of the night. They rounded up all the Jews. He made it through and survived. Didn't let all they lost stand in the way of all they could have. I built a full family of life, moved on from such a horrible experience. Look to them for, you know, inspiration to stay resilient. Miriam Bell. Hilda Zolmanovitz. Albert J. Brunner. grandchild of one Holocaust survivor. I am the grandchild of two Holocaust survivors. I am the grandchild of two Holocaust survivors.
there are plenty of, of places, and you can go to hear stories from Holocaust survivors, from children of Holocaust survivors who are telling their stories. The sad fact is the war ended in 1940-45. You know, we celebrated last year the 75th anniversary of the ending of the war. Which means that anybody who survived the war is now 75 years older than they were at that time. We are losing that generation faster and faster these days. And soon, that entire generation will be gone. And with them, their stories. It is so important to hear them now. Because if you don't, you will never be able to hear them again. In honor of those who are no longer with us, we recite the Mourner's Kaddish. So I would like you to all please stand as we honor them. If you'd like to recite it with me, you can. It is recited. It is not sung if you want to wait until the English, you can you know, wait until the English as well. Yit gadal v'yit kadash shemei rabah b'alma divrach yurutei v'yamlich malchutei b'chayechon uv'yomechon uv'chayedcho bet Yisrael b'agola uv'izman kariv v'imru amen. Yehe shemei rabah mevarach li'olam ul'olme al'maya Yet Barach, Vietabach, Viet Paar, Viet Ramam, Viet Nase, Vietadar, Vietale, Vietalal, Shme de Kudisha, Brihu. Lelal min kolbir chata, Veshirata, Tushbachata, Venechamata, Da Amiran, Bialma, Vimru, Amen. Yeheshlama Rabba, Min Shmaya, Vechaim Alenu, Vial Kol Yisrael. V'imru, amen. O se shalom bimromav. Hu ya'ase shalom aleinu v'alkol Yisrael. V'imru, amen. Glorified and sanctified be God's great name throughout the world, which he has created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and during your days and within the life of the entire house of Israel, speedily and soon, and say, Amen. May his great name be blessed forever and to all eternity. Blessed and praised, glorified and exalted, extolled and honored, adored and lauded be the name of the Holy One. Blessed be he, beyond all the blessings and hymns, praises and consolations that are ever spoken in the world, and say, Amen. May there be abundant peace from heaven, and life for us, and for all Israel, and say, Amen. He who creates peace in his celestial heights, may he create peace for us, 
and for all Israel, and say, Amen. Stay tuned to Solace Radio. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio. There is no time, I would say, more appropriate to teach about the things to come and about the hope that we have than this time. There have been many generations before us that have studied the prophetic word with the anticipation of Messiah's return at any moment. And that is what gave a lot of people throughout all the hardship of the previous generations, that's what gave them the hope and the strength, and I'm talking not only physical, but the spiritual strength to continue. Because people without spiritual belief, without understanding where they are in the Word of God, I would say they can find temporarily hope, temporary hope in many things. But all those things are soon to fail you, especially people. If you put your hope in people, they'll fail you, without a doubt, every single one of them. If you put your trust in your belongings, in your real estate, in your amount of money that you have accumulated, hear me, please hear me very clear, I'm not condemning that. I'm saying if you are blessed to have, as they say, Buku, God bless you. And may he bless you even more. I am not against it. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is don't put your hope, don't put your trust in it. Enjoy it for what it is. Bless other people mostly with that. Bless God's work with that. And enjoy. God has given it for us to enjoy, but not to have hope in it. Because things, before they get better, and they will, because that's what the Word of God says, that things eventually get better. Things will get right. Things will get, and this world will get into its most amazing, complete, and and and. Uh, a godly shape that it's supposed to be. It will be. But the process, the journey until that happened is very arduous, meaning painful, meaning no bueno in plain Spanish. It's not a good thing to experience hardship. Who likes that? Everybody likes to have plenty of things, plenty of money to go and have enjoy their time with the family, with friends, on vacation, and so on and so forth. No one likes hardship, but let me tell you something. Sometimes the Lord takes the circumstances that we find ourselves in. He never initiates hard things or bad things for us. Listen to me. God never initiates that. He will take advantage of it in order to bring you and me to the understanding of His greatness and the understanding of His grace and love for us. And we find ourselves into a lot of peculiar situations. And He would use that in order to bring 
the best of us through the hard circumstances and even in the darkest of places when it seems that there is no hope he introduced a glimmer of hope and when they say you know there is a light at the end of the tunnel let me assure you yes there is and it is the light of god it is the light of the messiah and it's not the oncoming train as many people say it is the word of god that tells us that there is a hope he is the light to my feet can you understand that have you ever walked in pitch darkness that you cannot see your you know the end of your nose or oh, i have in the military at some dark nights and you're not allowed to light anything in fact we will cover our watches some of the watches that we used to have and even this one that they glow in the dark watches right how many of us have those we would ta- put tape over it anything that would send any uh uh sparkle or uh a little light would have to be covered and you walk not only in darkness but in total silence I mean, I tell you, this is pretty scary, knowing that the enemy is out there somewhere. So you walk out with your weapons all caught, lock and load. Everybody is in lock and load mode and is walking. And not one single, mm, even. You can't even express the hardship of carrying the, the heavy bags. You cannot even do uh, like this. And on top of it, you have cold sweat and you walk around knowing that the enemy is somewhere out there in this pitch dark and you don't know where he is and you do not want to open fire lest you shoot one of your friends. This is sometimes the place we find ourselves in. We are in total darkness and we cannot say anything because nobody would listen to us. How many of you found yourself in such a place that nobody listens? Nobody understands my hardship. And when you start sharing with a little bit too, you know, few people that you think that they're close to you, they say, ah, this guy is a complainer. He always, there's always something wrong with this person. And they label you. Like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you get, get yourself together? So you try your best and you put on a straight face and a fake smile. Oh, how is it? Oh, everything's fine. It's like my mom. I mean, it's just great. I just talked to her. Hi, mom. How you doing today? She says, I, oh, son, what do you know? It hurts here and it is there. Nobody listens to me. And I said, good. And now I know you're feeling great. <laughs> I know her. When she complains, meaning she feels good. But some of us find ourselves in such a situation that is so dark and it's so bad that we have seemingly no hope. But God said, I have hope for you. All the thoughts that I have for you are good. Isn't it something? All the thoughts. God have taken all his enormous, vast amount of thoughts that we never will understand. I don't know even when we will be with him, we will understand the vastness of, of, of the Lord. But he says, all of them that I have, about you are good to give you future and hope. 
Now, on this, I like to stand. On this, I like to say, okay, Lord, here I put myself into park. I like to park on this one. That's a good one. Wouldn't you agree with me? Good. But before we get to this, let me take you through some journey of the hardship. Because it's inevitable. It's it's happening. If you haven't watched the news lately, it's happening. Things are happening at a rapid pace around us, which is absolutely amazing. It's mind-boggling. In the book of Daniel 11.31, it says, The Abomination of Desolation. And this is the name of this message. And I'll go through this scripture in just a little bit. But we'll start with the book of Matthew. Let's see what the Lord said about it. The Lord said in Matthew 24, verse 15, He says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken about by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. He says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, what does it mean, the abomination of desolation? Let me share that with you. In Hebrew, it's called Shikutz Meshomem. It's been translated into the abomination of desolation. But Shikutz, it's much more than just abomination. Sheketz, it means a defile, to defile something. To have something in the worst of tum'ah, which means tameh, means the worst of unclean, the worst of, of, uh, uh, um, uh, defiled things. For example, lobster in Hebrew is dubbed or being called shikuts. That's why we don't eat lobster. I don't know about you, but I don't. Some would say, you know, all that and some, but I would leave it aside right now. I don't want to get into all the arguments about it, but I'm telling you that in the dietary laws of God, in the Bible, lobster, and any crawling things of the ocean is called shikuts. I know shrimp cocktail sounds so good sometimes. I don't eat it. The meat of the camel, the donkey, the giraffe, the rabbit is also shikuts. So you ask, what's that? It meaning unclean, the pig. It's unclean, it's defiled. But what the scripture tells us here about shikuts, it's not the physical unclean, which there are many, but it is the spiritual unclean. So when you see the spiritual ugliness and the spiritual defilement in the holy place, which is the temple of God in Jerusalem, and shikutz meshomem, meaning meshomem, it means empty, void, desolate, desert-like, dry. When you see the spiritual dryness, when you see the defilement of the spirituality that people you know, just exhibit. They have a form of godliness, but they don't have God. They don't know Messiah. They say the right words. They speak the right words. They sing the songs. They, they, they do all these things, but it is not what it is. 
And many are deceived. They don't even realizing what is going on. There are many churches across the globe that people teach the abomination of desolation. Things that are against what God's word says. And when he says, therefore when you see that, and of course there must be a temple in Jerusalem. And let me share some things with you. There are increasingly strong preparations as we speak to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Not only to rebuild the temple, but many items of the temple already have been built. And I don't know if you noticed that the first two temples have not been built on the Temple Mount, but prefabricated off-site and then been brought to the Temple Mount and been assembled together like Lego pieces. And those pieces, those pieces of stones already are ready-made as we speak. The menorah, as we have a replica here, is ready in Jerusalem. Some of us have seen it. The high priest garments, the red heifer, the ashes of the red heifer, they are working on it as we speak. And the priest, the, the daily, the other priest garments, the shofarot, the trumpets, and all the vessels to collect the blood to reintroduce sacrifice are being made as we speak. Israel and the ones that are part of the rebuilding of the Holy Temple are waiting for a spiritual or I would say supernatural sign. Supernatural sign can be something like that. Supernatural sign can be a giant earthquake that will cause the two mosques, which are the abominations of desolation as we speak, to collapse. That can happen. The Muslims that are now in charge of the Temple Mount, the daily operation of the Temple Mount, due to some, are, I would say, moronic genius, I don't know how any other word to give this guy, that is considered as a hero in Israel and the world, General Dayan, he was nothing but an immoral moron. Yes, he was tactician, a good tactician in the battlefield, but he made colossal mistakes. Not we, that we don't, but to go there after the war of 1967, the Six Day War, and to appear as he's the nicest gentleman in the world, and to give the Arabs control of it, as much as they're expecting us to come in, as every conqueror has done in generations past, when they conquer a place, the first thing they do, they demolish the places of worship. Let me just give you an example. In 2005, another one of our spiritually devoted general, by the name of Ariel Sharon, which was the protege of Diane, these guys were... Military genius, each one of them. But when it comes to leading the nation as they become into the higher position, as Sharon has, he decided on his own to uproot 10,000 people from the Gaza Strip, Jewish people that worked and labored so hard and gave their youth to create something out of the sand dunes of the Gaza Strip. And I, I was there. I served there as part of the, my military service. And he decided arbitrarily, unilaterally, 
one hand on his own just to appease the world, to be nice guy to the Americans. Bush didn't ask him to do any of that. But once he realized that he jumped on the bad on the bandwagon. Hey, pull him out now. So what happened is, as soon as the Arabs, as soon as we pulled out, the Arabs came in. Guess what they did? First thing that they have done. They have gone into every synagogue, every place of Jewish worship, and tore it to shreds. Tore it to pieces. Some of it they burned down, and some of it they immediately declared them as a mosque. Can you imagine if we have done that? Can you imagine if something like this would have been done in the U.S. or say if the U.S. went to Iraq, U.S. went to Afghanistan or something like this, if we have taken a mosque and we have blown it to pieces, the whole united nothing would come against us and say, how can you do this? How dare you? This is intolerant. You have no religious tolerance. You are not the new crusaders. We heard that. Many times over. And here we are. Our genius general gives them the whole mountain. He says, oh yeah, you do what you want. You know what they have done so far? They have gone underneath the mountain and excavated every single evidence that Jewish people have from the previous two temples and threw it in the dumpster. Threw it in a garbage uh, uh, collecting uh, area. To the point which is so funny that they have now have risked the integrity of the entire mountain. I just read an article that uh, uh, one archaeologist, she is so uh, uh, concerned and she's leading the, the, the uh, a pack of other archaeologi- uh, archaeologists and, and people of knowledge of, of history and archaeology, and she says, they know they have compromised the integrity of the entire mountain, that it is in the, on the verge of collapse. My reaction was, praise Adonai! <laughs> Let the sucker go down! <laughs> Supernatural way? God would use them coming in with the D4s and D9s, you know, that they excavate, excavating and everything underneath. But you know what? What's, when it's going to happen, something's going to happen. Guess what? They're going to blame it on us. They're going to blame it on the Jews, no matter what happens. So, but supernaturally, guess, okay, let's take Iran right now. Ancient Persia of the Bible. We just read the story of Haman you know, come on, Haman, yeah, Mordechai and Esther. And we learned about the victory of the Jewish people, of God's people over evil, good versus evil. And then what? Here, these people are now, with the aids of the Russians, are building, I mean, they have, for what we know so far, about 16 Nuclear sites. They said Israel's hundred airplanes that we're planning to send over that may not accomplish the task. Listen, listen. Don't hedge your bet against God. (laughs) If this is what's going to happen, if God has it in his plan, they can have not only 16, they can have 600 or 6,000. 
And somehow supernaturally they will all disappear. God will preserve his people. Period. But let's assume, just say that a Shihab 5, which is their longest range missile, falls on Jerusalem. And from the effect of the blast, a mosque or two falls apart too. Is that possible? I mean, they so inaccurate that it is just, even if they're accurate, it is easy, in my opinion, for an angel to move it a little bit so it goes this way. It's all a question of timing. When is that going to happen? I can tell you from what I feel inside my spirit, inside my heart, that we're going to see these things happening. I mean, after all, we have an amazing weakness of leadership right now, right? That the world is crying out. The world is looking for their Messiah. The world wants somebody to fix the economic crisis right now. The world is looking for someone to fix the roaring, soaring gas prices, to bring it down to the days when I came here when it was 90 cents a gallon. I mean, gosh, we'll drive around the block, you know, a few times because we could get it for 87. Why not? Now, the world is looking for somebody. And somebody will come. Listen to what Daniel tells us. He says, and forces shall be mustered by him. In 11.31, Daniel 11.31. And they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifice and place their abomination of desolation. Now, in Hebrew, it says, rather than forces, zro'im mimenu, meaning his seed. You see, yes, evil is a force. But a force that has a way of living. Evil will not exist if there is no accomplices. Evil will not exist if human will not be the seed that rises from the evil in their hearts. Do you agree with me? So he says here, his meaning the devil, meaning the evil one, his seed, the seed that is man, because as much as God has his sons and daughters, the devil has his as well. And he said that the Zoim, the seed of him, will stand up and they will defile. That's the word, Chilalu, the holy place. They will, they will defile the temple and they will remove they will remove, they will take away the daily sacrifice. They will take away the the light, the tamid, as it have the daily sacrifice, so is the light. It's called the eternal light of God. And this is what the lights in the menorah represent. Like this. And they will extinguish the menorah. They will stop the daily sacrifice. We have a prelude to that. Some... Uh, uh, 2,200 years ago or so, 2,250 about, and when uh, the king Antiochus, which was uh, uh, Alexander the Great, one of his generals, and he 
came and he conquered Jerusalem and he decided he's going to be God and he slew a pig on the altar and therefore defiled the whole sanctuary, the whole temple in Israel. By the way, that's why we celebrate another holiday we just had, Hanukkah. See, every time somebody against us, somebody comes against Israel, we have a holiday. That's why we're going to celebrate Passover. Why? Because this sucker Pharaoh came against us. So we eat and drink and marry and have good food and good time with the family for seven days. Okay, Ahmadinejad, come on. We want another holiday. We kind of one short. We want ten holidays. We have seven, and then we have the eighth one and the ninth one. We want a ten one now. We want to complete it. So you think we, we, you know, it's going to be great. You know, the other guy, we ate his ears. What this guy is we going to have? I don't know. We're going to find something. We're going to get stuffed. I don't know. We can start, you know, the ladies would come up with a, something very delicious. So this guy's defied the sanctuary. And he says here, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who knows their God shall be strong and carry out great exploit. Let me explain what happened. Those that comes against the covenant. You know, you and I believe in the Messiah Yeshua. So we are under his covenant. We are partakers of his covenant. Is that correct? Now this, there are those that are against the covenant. And there will be a great leader, and he is called the anti-Messiah, the anti-covenant. Some call him the Antichrist. And so he will have his people, and he will come against the covenant with corruption and flattery. I don't know. I think there are a few of them in Washington's nowadays. Don't you think so? They have a lot of corruption. So in Israel, so in every other government. But sure enough, when it comes election times, boy, do they have tongues of flattery. Oh yeah, they promise you anything and everything under the sun. But he says, but those, verse 33, it says, and the people that know their God, they shall be holding and do, meaning they will be strong and they will accomplish. The words is here, it's, it says in, in uh, 32, it says, and they carry out great exploit. The Hebrew says that they will hold. They will hold. The whole idea here, what I'm trying to tell you, hard times, harder times are coming. I mean, it's already hard. Some of us have it pretty hard. But before it all gets better, harder times are coming. But those that have... The Lord in their heart, they should, the word is Yahasku. They will get stronger. They will get stronger in their faith, which will give them a lot more physical and emotional and of course spiritual strength and they will accomplish what they have said to do. Now that is good. That is great. I don't know about you, but I'm excited because I'm going just like you through hardship. And if you haven't, you know, and we talked about it so many times. We are in either one of three position. We either come out, coming out of a problem, either we are having a problem right now, 
or we are on our way to a problem. This is one of three options. How you going to be able to overcome that is by having your faith in the Lord that give you strength, strength to accomplish. Verse 34. And he says here, and those of people, of the people who understand shall instruct many. What? He says, maskile am. Those that have not only understanding, but they have the brain. The word is sechel. Sechel is brain. They are smart. They understand. They read, understand, interpret, and live it and teach others. Maskile am. Listen to this. Maskile am shall instruct many. Let me tell you, I believe that there are many that have some sort of understanding, but they are misleading the people for their own personal gain right now. And much more will be demanded of them because to much, to these that, those that much have been given, much will be requested and required and demanded of them. And those that have the understanding and they are teachers, their punishment will be greater than those that are not. But let me tell you, those that have understanding and those that teach the right things and those that share the goodness and the truth will have a greater blessing. That is why we spend the time to teach you every single word because it is so important that you can share with many. And I know you do. And this is what I encourage you to do. And he said here, And they shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame by captivity and plundering. Listen, how many will stand up when the sword is laid on their neck? How many will have the guts to continue and share? And how many will have the guts to continue and stand for the Lord when their belongings are taken, when they are plundered, and eventually they'll be put by flame and captivity and plundering. That is no good, my friends. But be strong, because I'm going to read to you the hope that what comes out of this darkness. As I said, there is a glimmer of hope. There is a light at the end of this dark tunnel, and it is the light of Mashiach. This is the light of Yeshua. Now he said, verse 34, Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. Meaning, when they are stumbling and falling, they're going to have help. But many will join them with sweet tongue, halaklakot, with something which is it translated to intrigue, but it's something that you slip with a slippery tongue. How many of those slippery tongues have you watched lately on the television? I mean, there was one guy. We were laying in bed. I was laying in bed, New York time. Of course, I'm on California time. I'm a late sleeper anyway. Lynette is, I mean, she's so blessed. I mean, bless you, sweetheart. I mean, this is a gift. You don't know what a great gift there is. She puts her head on the pillow. I don't even, and not even 15 seconds pass. She's, she's, she was asleep. I said, Lord, no, no. 15 minutes, I will count it. 
50 minutes it will be a blessing. 150 minutes will be even greater blessing. No, I'm there. So I watched this guy on television. And boy, what a sweet tongue he has. It's one of those tele schnorrers, I call him. Tele give me. Tele give me the money and I'll give you something. I'll send you the cloth of blessing. This time it was the healing waters. And they have all sorts of people because people are hungry. People want to get something to hold on to. So out of their desperation, they're even holding on to this moron. I'll send you this. And I mean, I've seen this guy forever. And he has black hair. Enough with dyeing your hair. Be real. And a bleached blonde wife. All, why that? In the world, they have all bleached blonde wives. And when they get older and senile, they become purplish. And all sorts of colors. And I'm going, I mean, I was so angry. I can't tell you, I'm laying there in bed and I'm trying to sleep. My blood is boiling up. (laughs) And I'm getting so mad, so upset. I had very little sleep that night. And I said, Lord, I shared with Lynette in the morning when she woke up all refreshed. And I'm about like, how was your sleep, honey? Great. But after a couple cups of coffee, I was telling her what kept me up. And I said, these people with a slippery, slithery tongue have absolutely no fear of God. That their heart and their minds are seared in their iniquity. Whoa. I would rather go away, crawl somewhere, hide, than say something like that. But many will join In the slippery tongues. This is the times we live in, my dear friends. And some of those, verse 35, some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. And he said here, and from those that are wise, Because their spiritual mind and heart is open to the Lord. Yes, they will fall. They will stumble. But it is to purify them. To bring them out like purified purified gold and precious stones. And he says, until the time of the end, but there is still time. Oh, I guess... uh, Harold Camping, finally I heard on the news, recanted and he said, he's no more, no longer is going to predict the end. Wow, thank God. Wow. How many times have he predicted sold books and so many stupid people made him rich? Stop buying his stuff already. Let him get broke. So he would not propagate these lies. But finally he said, because he doesn't, No one knows the time. Duh. I guess if he just listened to me, I would have told him so. If he just read the word of God, he would have known. Wouldn't you say? Anyway, Isaiah 54, verse 4 says, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither disgraced. For you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach 
of your widowhood anymore. Wow, what a beautiful, what a beautiful proclamation. Do not fear. And God is talking here to his bride. Listen, God is talking to Israel, period. He's not talking to a mysterious, ethereal being that is called the bride of Christ. There isn't such a thing. The bride of the Messiah is Israel. But, as Paul said, not all Israel is Israel. There are many in Israel that will not be part of the Messiah. Messiah's bride. Why? Because they have not given their heart and their belief to Messiah. Period. And his son says, oh, there are many ways to go to God. No, I'm sorry. Yeshua said there's only, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Kapish. That's it. That's what he said. So there's not too many ways. And it's not the church which exclude Israel. Or they're the core and we just, you know, the little puppies that tag along. It doesn't work this way. God doesn't change his mind. He's not flimsy as you and I. He's not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's it. And he said, do not fear. Who is he talking to? Israel. Now, what happened to all those from around the globe that come to believe in the Messiah and the God of Israel? What happened to the people from China? What happened to the people from Africa? What happened to the people from India? What happened to the people from from uh, the Arab countries and all the Europe and the U.S. and all those that are not Israel, they're not Jewish, but all of a sudden... Wow, light bulb. They realize that there is a true God and there is a true Messiah and this is the God of Israel and his name is the yud heh vav Hey. that's his name, and the Messiah is Yeshua. So what happened is in, in accordance, in according, accordance with scripture, they joined to Israel and not the other way around. So what if we few? So what? Since when God has been dealing with the masses? Since when God is doing His greatest miracle with the greatest amount of people? On the contrary, God accomplishes the greatest miracles with the smallest amount of people. Period. Just look at us. Now He says, fear not. For your maker, Adonai, is your husband. The Adonai of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Adonai of hosts is His name. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. You see, he qualifies it. He is called the Elohim of the whole earth. See, exactly what I said in this following verse, Isaiah 54, 5, he qualifies what I just interpreted. That he is the God of Israel. And there is good hope. Let's continue a few more verses. Verse 6, for Adonai has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your Elohim. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. This is applies, applies to us too. For a mere moment, don't despair, don't say, I don't know what the Lord is doing. Sometimes He just let us 
go through the process that we're in in order to refine us and make us better so we can be better servants to Him and our life will be much better. He says, for a mere moment. And He says, with great mercies. Where are those preachers that say that the God of the Old Testament is all misty? Old man that just wants to smack you and spank you every time you make a mistake. Why don't they read this verse? For with great mercies, I will gather you. Where's that mercy? I mean, it's not a New Testament concept and an Old Testament misunderstanding. It is the same God. And He is the one that introduced mercy and grace, chesed, hope. Tikva, Shalom, everything already in the Tanakh. You just have to read it. Some have new Bibles lately. One gospel, pick. You want Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Take a pick. Few Psalms out of the 150. I mean, there are few to choose, you know. And few of Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. And they separated for daily reading. That's your Bible. That's enough, they say. I had a guy that actually rewrote the Bible himself. No, 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 no. The whole word. Everything in there. When I sometimes prepare, I see a word, and it just jumps at me like, Ooh, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. But I read it before. How many times did it happen to you? Now, he continues, and he says here, verse 8, With a little wrath... I have, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting <laughs> kindness, I will have mercy on you, says Adonai, your Redeemer. With a little, <laughs> look at this, I mean, he says, he's our father, he's our Abba. With a little wrath, listen, you've been naughty, and you deserve a spanking. And so is, I did a little wrath. I have hid my my face from you for a moment. I mean, after all, one moment, God's he's out of time. God is not confound to time like we do. We have time. There's two doors, you know, in our lives. There is birth and death. And between these two doors is time. Outside this door is eternity, and outside this door is eternity. But God said, for a little time I hid myself for you. From you, spanked you a little bit. You cried, and I heard you. And with everlasting, everlasting. I mean, Hanaleh, can you understand what everlasting is, sweetheart? Do you understand? It means there is no beginning, no end. It's forever. Listen, he says, with everlasting kindness. In Hebrew, rachamim. <laughs> rachamim is the the. Word that encompasses kindness, love, mercy, grace. <sighs> Give me more words. I mean, all of these words that you think about something good that a father, you know, bears the pain of his kids and hugs them and kisses them. I'm telling you, I'm just so enjoying this little bundle. He's now, what, uh, nine pounds? Two months old. Nine pounds, a little one, I'm holding it. He just cries a little bit. My heart breaks. Hey, Jen, what do we do? How we change? How we feed deep down and the other? And I'm holding him like this. I mean, it's amazing. Think about God just waiting for us. Just waiting. Says, listen, yes, 
Hard times are coming and hardship, but it is for a moment. Listen, what's a moment? What's a moment? It's immeasurable amount of time, right? And in Israel, when you, somebody asking you for something and you want to say just a moment, you go, this is a lot of hand motions. Meaning, this means just a minute, just a minute, just a moment here. God says, for a moment, for a moment. What is this? A minute? Two? A day? A month? A year? A decade? A millennium? It's a moment. It's a blink of an eye. Be strong. That's the word. Be strong. And he continues and he says, For this is like the water of Noah to me. Meaning, this is like the flood of Noah. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah, meaning the flood, will no longer cover the earth. Oh, Al Gore, I'm going to send you an email. For the waters of Noah will no longer cover the earth. Nah, there goes a, a, a global warming. There goes. The oceans are not going to rise. We're not going to flood and all that. Here it is. That's what it says. All the rest of it is nonsense. It's a lie. It's an absolute lie. For the waters of Noah will no longer cover the earth. So I have sworn that I would not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. Wow. I have sworn. God has sworn by himself that he will never rebuke us, never be angry with us. For the mountains, verse 10, and we're going to close here in just a moment. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness, my chesed, my chesed shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says Adonai, who has mercy on you. What is the covenant? What is the new covenant all about? It's about being redeemed from sin. Because sin gives you tremendous tumult in your life. Tremendous, you know, like, like, like fighting, like, uh, 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 anger and, and, uh, distress. You know what causes death? What is the biggest cause of death? Stress. Stress will bring cancer. Stress will bring heart attacks. Stress will bring uh, uh, aneurysm. Stress will bring all sort of illness. But what is the cause of stress? What is the cause of stress? Why is the world stressed right now? Why is the world foundations are stressed right now? Why are those that are without God, without hope, are trying to scare you and me every day that everything is going to just about collapse? Because the world truly is stressed. And the economic situation in the world is stressed out, as we see. But what brings the stress? Sin brings stress. And when you remove sin from, first of all, your life, my life, from individuals' life, and they're the ones, eventually those individuals that get to a prominent place of leadership, they understand. But many leaders don't know God. They don't have the agenda of God on their plate. They have their own agenda. And therefore, because of their sinful behavior, they're causing stress. 
to the world, to the system. And those people individually that don't have Messiah in their hearts have sin in their heart and they have stress. It's not to say that people that have Messiah don't get sick. That we do not have financial fallout. That we do not eventually die. But we have hope that eventually whatever happens in this life, at the other side, at the exit door, which is right here, when we just step out to eternity, there is hope. Because there God waits for us. And he says, oh, you afflicted one. Verse 11, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. 12, and he says, I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by Adonai and great shall be the peace of your children. Not only that you and I will achieve peace and get get peace, but our children as well. And when you have children, you have and your children's children. And some of us that are blessed, we have the fourth generation and the fifth generation. This is wonderful. And it says, in righteousness you shall be established, verse 14. You shall be... Far from oppression, for you shall not fear and from terror, for it shall not come near you. This is the buzzword of the world today. Terrorism, terrorism. When was last time you went through security check at the airport? Well, I just did. Man, take your shoes off. Darn, shoes, come off. You know, if you have, uh, 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 um, Laces, as I did, and I wasn't thinking, Lynette said, you should have one of those shoes that you can just slip on. Duh, I wasn't thinking. And you got to take them off, and you know, everybody, I'm not against taking off the shoes, but the smell, the smell of the stinky socks, that's bad. You know, and you're behind, Sadie, you're behind a guy, and boy, he didn't change his socks for a while. Takes his shoes off and he goes, he go like this behind this guy. That's terrible. There ought to be a law against it. Terror. It's all in the name of security. Things are going to get worse in the name of security. Listen to me. A lot of freedom going to be taken away. It's already been taken and more will be taken in the name of national security, in the name of security. Oh, against terror. That's a buzzword. And we'll talk about it in another time. Let's close with this. It says, Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me, meaning the nations, whoever assemble against you shall fall for your sake. Okay? Whoever comes against you shall fall. Do you understand that? Do you understand who comes, whoever comes against you shall fall? No one will stand. I mean, this is a promise. We do, do we believe it or we just say, well, yeah, but you don't know my circumstances. What? It says, I'm sorry, it says here, indeed they shall surely assemble. They're going to come. 
But not because of me, whoever assembles against you. And now he says in verse 16 and 17, Behold, I have created the blacksmith who, who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth the instrument for his work. And I have created the spoiler to destroy. Meaning they are there. All the enemies. But no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Listen to me. Nothing, nothing that is formed, not even Iran nuclear bomb is going to prosper. You know what? They're so inaccurate. I just can think, you know, okay, so they have launched 200 of those Shihab 5 with a nuclear warhead. And so just 200 angels just stand there and they go and they fall right back on them. Can it happen? Of course it can. Uh how would it happen? God can use like this last virus that somehow mysteriously appeared in all their centrifuge, the stock neck. Remember that? And causes the centrifuges to think that they have shut down, but they continue to spin until they blow. Is it possible that God would give his people some genius kid? In Israel, the know-how, and he's going to put a little a code in there that once they push the button and they launch, and they actually change the tra- trajectory, and they think they're going on Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, but they go come back, boom, on Tehran. Is that possible? Yes, it is possible. Because it says that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. That's what it says. So they can send and they can build and the Russian can plot. And you know the Russians, that's all they do all day long. They have 10 months of, of winter and they have nothing to do but drink vodka and plot. That's all they do. And they plot against God's people constantly. And they play the game. And they sell them all the latest weapons. And right now, as we speak, they manning a lot of the anti-aircraft and all the new and, and, and latest weaponry in Syria, right as we speak, against Israel. But you know what? No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. Oh, that's about the UN. Every tongue. There's about how many nations there? Every time, you know what? Three quarters of the UN resolutions are against Israel. Three quarters of all the resolutions that they, since they have been formed in, in, in 1942, I think that the UN was formed eventually, and three quarters of the resolution is against Israel. Hmm. One organization that is Final call is to condemn Israel. No tongue. And finally, this is the heritage of the servants of Adonai, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Now, here it is. Rest assured. I know it was a little bit long message, but you have to understand, however long that we have here on earth, fear not. Fear not. Because nothing that's going to be formed against you, will happen. Why? Because we now, we are God's people. And God is an amazing guy. He has a tendency to keep his word. And I like that. Have a blessed week. 
foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. What I want to do in these next several weeks is just continue on this theme. However, I want to continue on this theme by going into the next book of the Bible, the book of Judges, because the book of Judges follows the book of Joshua and uh, the book of Judges gives us a lot of, uh, it gives us a lot of wonderful illustrations from these stories about taking hold of our inheritance after we've crossed over, after we have entered into the land. So in the book of Judges, each tribe of Israel was given a specific territory. They were assigned a certain territory with boundaries and they were to go in there and conquer that territory and eliminate the Canaanites, drive them out and establish the authority of God in their territory. And our Joshua, Yeshua of Nazareth, he has given each one of you a territory. Now, I'm not talking about a geographical territory, but I'm talking about in the spirit realm. He has given you a territory to spiritually conquer. Just as the first Joshua gave each tribe a specific area to conquer, so our Yeshua has, he has a specific plan for your life, is what I'm trying to say. He has a plan for you to uh, find and to follow. And he expects each one of you to discover what is his plan for me. And then when you discover that by his power and by his, by faith in him, you go forward and you conquer the enemies that are there to try and hinder you from taking hold of, of your territory, from fulfilling the plan that God has for your life. Now, when you, you find out what God's plan for your life is, and you go forward to try and fulfill that plan, I've got some news for you. You are bound to make a few mistakes along the way. And uh, if, if we look at the book of Judges, we're going to see that people made some mistakes. And hopefully by looking at the book of Judges, that can help us avoid making some of the same mistakes that we read about in the book of Judges when the Israelites went into the promised land to conquer their territory. Now, the book of Judges, as I said, it begins right after Joshua. And it begins immediately after the death of Joshua. And uh, the first chapter of, of uh, Judges, it talks about the tribes of Israel going in there. Each one had their territory, and each one was to fight against their enemies. And the first chapter, it, it, um, it tells about a few victories, of course. But the first chapter is also marked by the disappointing record of Israel's failure to completely fulfill their destiny in their generation. And, and let me read to you. This is out of the first chapter of Judges. It says, And Yahweh was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of iron. So that's, a, that's Judah's territory. Then it mentions the children of Benjamin. It says, And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites, neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and her towns. Then a few verses down, it says, Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer. A few verses later, Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Ketron. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain. So here in this first chapter, from the very beginning of getting in there, of course, you know, they got victory at Jericho, and that was wonderful. The walls came down, and... And they went forward and they conquered other territory. But we see here in this first chapter of Judges, it's kind of a disappointing record of incomplete victory. Even though the children of Israel went into the land, they took the land, but they couldn't quite get complete victory over the enemy. And like these Israelites, many of God's people today, Messianic Israelites, 
we accept defeat too easily. We accept incomplete victory. That some people, they, they will tolerate sin in their lives, and their epitaph is going to be similar to what we just read from this first chapter of Judges. Our epitaph might say something like, and the disciple John Doe, he overcame his drinking problem, but he never could overcome his addiction to pornography. He had to give in to that temptation once in a while when he was on the internet or whatever, and he, he just never quite got victory over that addiction. And uh, Sister Jane Doe, she overcame her bad temper, but she never could quite overcome that urge to gossip. So she missed out on the, the ministry that the Lord had for her. See, doing the will of God is serious business. It's not just a game. God says to each tribe here, he said, you know, here's your territory. Here are the boundaries of your territory. Now go in there and fight for it. And he says to each one of you, I've got opportunities for you. I've got a, a plan for your life. Here are the opportunities. Now you go in and you fight for those opportunities. And we have to realize that we will not fulfill our destiny in this life without a fight because there are Canaanites. There are invisible demonic entities that work behind the scenes to orchestrate events, to bring about circumstances that are designed to frustrate your efforts to fulfill the plan of God for your life. Um, you know, each one of us, uh, we've got, God took hold of us for some reason. You know, Paul, the apostle in Philippians 3.12, his, his burning desire, he said that I may apprehend that for which I was apprehended. You know, that's King James Version. Uh, one translation says that, that I may lay hold of that for which Messiah laid hold of me. See, Paul knew that when the Lord laid hold of him that day on the road to Damascus, you remember the story, he was on his way to persecute believers. Uh, he wasn't looking for, for uh, the Messiah named Yeshua. He was fighting against him. He was opposing him. And then he was arrested. He was apprehended that day. And he knew it was for a reason. He knew that when God apprehended him, that he was apprehended, he was laid hold of for a purpose, for a reason. And he was determined to find out why did he save me? What did he save me to do. It wasn't just to sit on a church pew for the rest of my life and sing a few hymns and throw a few dollars in the collection plate. He saved you for more than that. So we need to have the attitude that Paul had that I want to lay hold of that for which Messiah laid hold of me. I want to find out what did he save me for? Why did he save me? Because he has a job for me to do and he has a job for each one of you to do. And these Canaanites, these invisible demonic forces will fight against you with temptations and trials and disappointments and discouragement. And like the Canaanites of old, they, they're not going to leave without a fight. They will do their damnedest and pun intended because they, they are damned. They are condemned by the Lord to get you to sin. They will try to get you to sin. If they can't get you to sin, then they'll bring in so much disappointment and discouragement to try and make you just kind of give up and just settle down and say, I'm done fighting. I'm just going to take it easy. I'm just going to settle for a lukewarm sit in the pew on Sunday morning or Sabbath morning church life and uh, settle for an incomplete partial victory. See, we cannot be satisfied with partial victory in our lives. We need to have as our goal to have complete victory over temptation. And uh, if we settle for partial incomplete victory like the tribes of Israel did, you know, what's it going to do? It's going to be our epitaph. Well, he overcame this, but he couldn't quite overcome that. So what are we going to do? Settle for incomplete victory or fight against temptation, against sin, against every weight that prevents us from entering into the fullness of our inheritance. Now, a lot of people 
you know, they'll have a, you know, a fairly good walk with the Lord, but they've got some problems here and there, some weaknesses and flaws and some temptations they give into here and there. And they try to justify their failures by comparing themselves to other people. You may be a woman at work. She'll say, well, I may flirt with other men at work, but at least I'm not committing adultery like Sister X does. You know, the tribes of Israel could have had that same attitude. They could have said, yeah, well, you know, we Ephraimites, we quit fighting at Gezer and let the Canaanites remain among us. But so what? The other tribes didn't quite get complete victory either. See, we can't compare ourselves to other people. You know, Paul, the apostle, said that it's foolish to do that. He spoke about people who were foolishly measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves. That's from 2 Corinthians 10, 12. And so people's standard becomes, you know, the average believer. But our definition of spiritual success must not be just the average Joe Christian. Uh, you know, we have to quit thinking that God grades on a curve. No, God's standard you want to know God's standard, you look at the record of the Messiah in the Gospels, and there you will see God's standard. That is our standard. Don't, don't, uh, don't value, don't, um, measure yourself by comparing yourself to other believers. Because it's easy to find believers that are more carnal than you. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's easy to do that. So quit comparing yourselves among other believers and just compare yourself to the Lord whose victory was complete, whose obedience was complete, and let that be your goal and press forward. See, God's attitude toward quitters can be seen in the second chapter of Judges, okay? First chapter of Judges, we saw a list of incomplete victories, how the different tribes didn't quite overcome, you know, this area, that area, this group of people, that group of people. And in the second chapter of Judges, we see what God's response to that incomplete victory was. It says, And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? This was the Lord's response. And then it goes on to say, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, because that this people hath transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any, drive out any from before them of the nations, which Joshua left when he died that through them I may prove Israel, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. So because of their incomplete victory, because they had settled for second best, they had just been satisfied with partial victory, the Lord said, okay, I'm not going to be with you. I'm not going to drive these people out. I'm going to leave them among you to prove you to see if you will be faithful or not. And the reason for Yahweh's anger against his people, it can be summarized in four words. And remember these four words. They all start with A, so it's, it's fairly easy to remember. Because you're going to see this progression in the book of Judges, and you, if you study church history, you see the same progression in church history, and in an individual disciple's life, if you're not careful, the same four steps can happen in your life. And the four steps are apathy, apostasy, anomianism, anarchy. Let me talk about those words. Apathy, what is apathy? Apathy, it's just indifference. It's uh, an apathetic person says, I don't care. You know, apathy is very dangerous because if you're apathetic and somebody tells you you're apathetic, guess what? 
you don't care because that's what the, apathy by its very nature is just apathetic. So apathy means you don't care. You're indifferent. Apostasy means departure away from the truth. Anomianism, the nomos is a Greek word for law, and then the a prefix means negative, not. So anomianism is a departure from God's law. And anarchy, the arche means first primary ruler, uh, and then the an prefix means not negative. So anarchy means there, there are no rules. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. And that's, you, you could summarize the book of Judges with that phrase. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So these four steps, apathy, that will lead to apostasy. Apostasy will lead to anomianism. And anomianism leads to anarchy. So the apathy is recorded in chapter one of Judges where the different tribes just had partial victory. Then chapter 2 talks about the apostasy. Chapter 2, it says, And they forsook Yahweh and served Baal and Ashtaroth. That's in Judges 2.13. And this apostasy led to anomianism. It says, They went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of Yahweh, but they did not so. See, anomianism is lawlessness. And without law... That evolves into anarchy. And the anarchy in the days of the book of Judges, it was eloquently expressed in the very last verse of the book of Judges that summarizes the spiritual condition of God's people during that period of history. The the book of Judges ends by saying, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And that's what some people want. They want everyone just to do what's right in their own eyes. And this progression from apathy to apostasy to anomianism to anarchy, it bears a striking resemblance to what happened in the history of the church. As a matter of fact, you could take those four words and make a four-part outline for a course in Church History 101. You know, point one, apathy, then apostasy, then anomianism, then anarchy. And furthermore... I can't help but notice a remarkable parallel to church history in the account of Joshua's departure from this world and the events that transpired in the very next generation after Joshua. See, when Joshua was alive, things were okay. Joshua was in charge. He was the anointed of the Lord. He knew what he was doing. He had the blessing of the Lord. He was faithful. And it says in Judges 2, this is verses 7 through 11, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua... And all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, meaning the elders of Joshua's generation, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. It says, and also all that generation were gathered under their fathers. So all of Joshua's generation died off. And then listen to what happened after that generation died off. It says, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works that he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baalim. And we could rephrase that passage of scripture and say the people served the Lord all the days of Yeshua, our Joshua, and all the days of the apostles who lived after Yeshua's departure, that generation who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did in the book of Acts, etc. But then in the following generations, things started to go downhill, things started to decline. Immediately after Joshua came apathy, apostasy, anomianism, and anarchy. And the generation immediately after Yeshua and the apostles and their generation, the same thing happened. 
Apathy in the ranks of Christians started even before the apostles were dead. Because how do we know that? Because Paul, in writings in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, <clears throat> he wrote about the apostasy. Uh, now, you might not see it in uh, some Bible translations. Uh, it's called the falling away in the King James Version, but the Greek word there is apostasia, where we get our word apostasy, the falling away. <clears throat> and in that verse, Paul talks about what he calls the mystery of lawlessness or anomianism. He said, it's already at work. And this is the significant thing we need to see is that something was happening in Paul's own lifetime before Paul and that generation had even died off that Paul called the mystery of anomianism, the mystery of lawlessness. He said, it is already at work. It's already happening. Jude mentioned it. He said, certain men have crept in unawares. John the Apostle wrote about it in his epistle. He said that uh, Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence, comes in and casts the brethren out of the church. Now, let me ask you something. If Diotrephes casts the brethren out of the church, who are the people left in the church? They're not brethren, are they? Because the brethren have been cast out of the church. So in the apostles' own lifetime, things were set in motion. This mystery of iniquity, this mystery of lawlessness, of anomianism was already, the terrors had already been spread. They had already been sown. And they were starting to to come out in the, the apostles' own lifetime. And so after the apostles and their generation died off, the church gradually be, took on this uh, this antinomian, anomian attitude and abandoned the Torah, not all of the Torah, obviously, but certain parts of the Torah, leaving Christians to decide for themselves what's right in their own eyes. And it's been that way uh, ever since then. Nevertheless, the scripture says in the book of Judges, after it talks about what happened there, it says, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, shoftim, which delivered them out of the hands of those that spoiled them. Now, in English, when we say judges, you know, we might think of in the courtroom, the, you know, the not the hammer, what do you call that? The gavel. We're not talking about that kind of a judge in the courtroom. The shoftim, the judges, they were simply deliverers, saviors. They were men and one woman, Deborah, who rose up to be uh, leaders of the people to deliver them to victory, to overcome the enemy. God raised up judges to deliver them out of the hands of those that spoiled them. You know, when the, the Canaanites were there. And this, too, we see in church history. Throughout church history, you see that certain periods of revival, certain men of God that God raised up to bring revival and reform in the church and so forth. And as Israel awaited the arrival and coronation of a, a king, because, you know, between between Joshua and Samuel, you had no king in Israel. It says there was no king in Israel in those days. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But Israel's going to have a king. They're going to have King David, an anointed righteous King David. But in the meantime, God is raising up individuals to turn the people back to God to bring some relief and deliverance. And we are waiting for the coronation of our king, Yeshua, the son of David, Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, to come as our king, the son of David. And in the meantime, God will raise up judges, if you will. He will raise up leaders to help bring some relief and deliverance to God's people. And so that's where we're at in history, that we're in a similar uh, period of history now that the people in the time of the judges were. Between the time when Joshua and his generation died off and and uh, God's people 
fell into apathy, apostasy, anomianism, and anarchy, and now the judges are being raised up to bring them out of that and bring them some relief and deliverance. That's what's happening now at this time in history, that God will he'll anoint certain individuals and raise them up, and he might raise you up to be one of these deliverers, because a lot of them are needed, because we got a lot of people that need deliverance. So as the church has waited for the return and coronation of King Messiah, son of David, God is graciously raising up individuals to repentance and revival throughout history. And let's pray that he raises up some judges in our generation to lead God's people out of sin and apathy and error and to get back to the old paths, to get back to the ways of the Father. Now, as we look at the various judges of Israel in this uh, series of teachings that I'm going to do, one thing we're going to see is that God uses... uh Ordinary common things as weapons to defeat his people. We're going to see that God sometimes used simple weapons like an ox goat in the hand of a shepherd, or a hammer and a tent peg in the hand of a woman, or broken pitchers with torches and shofars, or a millstone dropped on the head of a man by a woman, or in the case of Samson, the jawbone of an ass to slay a thousand Philistines. That God just uses these common ordinary things that have no inherent power within themselves, and yet God uses these as instruments to defeat the enemy. And we're going to also see that God uses common, ordinary people. Now, when I say ordinary, I don't mean average. I just mean ordinary people, just flesh and blood, imperfect human beings like we all are. And some of these people, some of these judges, you're going to see they were the type of individuals that People in those days would not expect God to use. To use. Uh, some of the judges were what you could call socially stigmatized. For example, we're going to look at Ehud, a man who was left-handed. And uh, that was considered kind of, you know, you're left-handed, you know, there's something wrong with you. Or uh, Deborah and Yael, two women that were women, because God they didn't expect God to use women then. Or Jephthah, who was a, an illegitimate son of a harlot. Or Samson, who was a womanizer, and yet God used the man. So in spite of the flaws and the weaknesses and and some of the foolishness of some of these judges and the foolishness of the weapons like an ox goat or the jawbone of an ass or, uh, you know, a, a tent peg and a hammer, in spite of that, God used these people and these kind of weapons to deliver his people. And that should encourage us because... What are we? We're just ordinary people. We're not angels from heaven. We've got our flaws. Uh, you know, I'll be the first to admit that I'm imperfect, and my wife will probably be the first one to second that motion because she knows me better than anybody else. So we don't claim to be perfect people, but God will use us, and he can use you. You don't have to have some kind of, uh, you know, special training and degree and, and some uh, title to be used by God. So that should give us hope that God can use us. Because God used these judges, he used these people, and that should encourage us to hope and trust in the Lord to move on our behalf. You know, when, you know, sometimes you can see your own flaws, you see your own weaknesses, and you can get a little discouraged and think, oh man, I'm not going to be of any use to God because I, you know, I messed up here, I messed up there, I can't do this, I can't do that. You know what? There, there are some things all of us can't do this or can't do that. There are a lot of things I can't do, and I don't try to do the things I can't do. But I do want to do the things that I can do by the spirit and power of God. And the use of foolish instruments for spiritual weapons, it's interesting that uh, that finds its parallel in Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5.4, where Paul said, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. So we don't trust in weapons 
that are carnal, that are, uh, you know, of this world. Uh, we don't need, you know, literal swords and, and guns and things like that to fight our spiritual battles. Nothing wrong with having a sword or a gun. But when we're talking about spiritual battles, spiritual battles are not won by carnal weapons. Spiritual battles are won by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Lord using instruments and vessels and people that may seem somewhat foolish and flawed. You know, Paul pointed out also in 1 Corinthians, he said, uh, he said that God uses things that are foolish, weak, base, and despised. Why does he do that? Paul says, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. See, if God just uses ordinary people and ordinary things to, to bring victory to his people, no flesh can glory in his presence. Paul also said that there are not many wise, when he's talking about the type of people God calls, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. I say, yep, that's us, all right. There's hope for us. I told my congregation once, I read that passage, and I said, you know, God uses all these things, weak, flawed, uh, you know, ignoble things. I said, hey, there's a lot of hope for our congregation because that is us. So that should fill us with hope, with expectation, as we look for the Lord to move in our generation. And uh, we'll be back with you in just a couple minutes here, so stay tuned. Don't go away. Thank you for your time. Daniel Botkin from Gates of Eden. I appreciate those viewers who are watching the program and who are watching other programs of other teachers on this network. We appreciate your support financially, prayerfully, and your words of encouragement. Stay with us. Shalom. Okay, welcome back. We're going to continue looking here at at, uh, the book of Judges. And um, as I said, God just uses ordinary people. Now, the very first judge we're going to take a look at is a man named Othniel. And uh, Othniel was the first judge of Israel in the book of Judges. And his career, if you want to use that word, his ministry, his calling as a judge, is summed up in just three verses in the book of Judges. This is out of Judges chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. It says, And when the children of Israel cried unto Yahweh, Yahweh raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel. Now remember, why did they need a deliverer? Because remember, the angel of the Lord had come to Bochim, and rebuked them for their incomplete victory and said, because they are turning away. And I, he said, I'm going to leave the spoilers. I'm going to leave your, your oppressors here in the midst of you. I'm not going to drive them out. So they needed some deliverance because they were being oppressed. So Yahweh raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Remember, Caleb was a Kenazite. And so his younger brother, Othniel. It says, And the spirit of Yahweh came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war. And Yahweh delivered Hushan Rishatheim, that's a long name, Hushat Rishatheim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Hushan Rishatheim. And the land had rest forty years, and Othniel the son of Kenaz died. Now the mention of Othniel's connection to Caleb in this short passage suggests that Caleb probably had a good influence on Othniel. Uh, Caleb's influence is certainly apparent in an earlier passage about Othniel, where it says, uh, this is in Judges 1, verse 12 and 13, it says, Caleb said, He that smiteth Kiriat Sefer and taketh it, to him will I give Achsa my daughter to wife. And Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, and he gave him Achsa his daughter to wife. So Caleb was probably a good role model 
for Othniel, the first judge. And Caleb, of course, you remember, he was the only man of his generation who was allowed to go in with Joshua into the land of promise. All that generation had to die off. Remember the 40 years in the wilderness because the people refused to go in at God's appointed time. God said this whole generation is going to die in the wilderness. Only Joshua and Caleb are going in of this generation. Everybody 20 years old and up is going to die and that it will wait 40 more years. So Caleb was a good role model for Othniel. Uh, Caleb and Joshua, the only two men of their generation who had the faith to enter into the promise of God. And, uh, you know, Othniel, we don't know a whole lot else about him, but who knows whether Othniel would have had the faith to take that town of Kiriat Sefer and to later become the first judge of Israel without Caleb as a role model and a motivator by offering his daughter as a wife. Now, if we want the Lord to raise up judges in our generation, if we want God to raise up people who will bring deliverance, who will uh, drive the enemy away, we need good role models like Caleb. We need good role models and we need motivators, people who will be role models, who will motivate us by the walk they have and by the fruit they are bearing, where we will look at people and say, that's the kind of person I want to be. I want to bear the fruit like he's bearing. If the Lord can use him, maybe the Lord can use me. I I look at him and I see a good role model. Now, we have good role models in Scripture, obviously. You know, we can look in the Bible. We can read about different people of faith. You know, Hebrews chapter 11 lists a lot of them. And in post-biblical times, biographies of great saints, great men and women of God. I I like to read biographies of of famous Christians that, that can inspire and strengthen our faith. But you know what? It's not good enough just to have role models in biographies, or or even just in the Bible. These, yes, these are role models, and they're important role models, but you know what? We also need living flesh and blood role models, because I think sometimes we'll read about the people in the Bible, or we'll read biographies of, of dead saints, and we think to ourselves that they were somehow, uh, you know, they're on a different level or they're, they're almost like they're an angel or something that they're not like us that they that, that we somehow think that they are above being human or something that's why we need living flesh and blood role models and we need to be living flesh and blood role models for one another for our own children and for one another and Othniel's biography here in Judges even though it's brief that can serve as an example for us because like Caleb Othniel had the faith and the courage and the eagerness to go for it. Caleb said, here's the prize, my daughter, Achsa. She must have been a beauty because he, he said, I'm going to go take that city. Without hesitation, he saw the prize and he was the first to go forward and win the prize. And uh, Caleb's daughter, Achsa, she's mentioned here by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and not by mere chance because the, the Bible's inspired by the Spirit. You know, love is blind, they say. And Othniel, when he saw the beauty of the prize, his love for that prize made him blind to the size and power of the enemy he was going against. Because you notice different places where the enemy was coming against Israel. The Lord would say, you know, don't look at their numbers. Don't look at their size. You know, don't look at their weaponry. Don't look at how powerful the enemy is. Trust in the Lord. And so we need to do that, you know, to have such a love for the prize Othniel was willing to risk his life to obtain the prize that was set before him. And when we see the beauty of the prize the Lord offers us, eternal rewards in heaven, eternal glory in the age to come, we should be inspired and filled with faith and courage to even risk our life, if need be, to go for that prize. 
And we shouldn't be intimidated by the size and the power and rage of the enemy that comes against us. Paul said in Philippians 3.14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Messiah Yeshua. And that should be our attitude to press toward the mark for the prize. When Othniel became Israel's first judge, it says, the spirit of Yahweh came upon him. The spirit of Yahweh came upon him. And here too is a lesson for us because too many times we want to do something for the Lord, but we're trusting in something other than the spirit of the Lord to bring it about. You know, we sing that song from Zechariah 4, 6, not by my, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And yet, are we really trusting in the spirit of the Lord of hosts? Or are we trusting in our own might, our own power, or our own money, or our own ability, or our own talent, or our own cleverness? You know, maybe this is because the power of the Holy Spirit has never come upon us like it did to the apostles. Or maybe we're just trusting in some clever, you know, method that we've devised as a substitute for the power of the Spirit coming upon us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work of the Lord. Uh, yes, we need money to do the work of the Lord. Don't let me discourage you from sending in money to Hebrew Hebraic Roots Network. We do need money to do the work of the Lord. We do need opportunities. We do need tools. We do need things. We do need stuff. We do need methods. We need all these things. But above all, we need the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We need men of God who are filled with the Spirit. E.M. Bounds, is a, a, he was a, I think he was a Methodist uh preacher who lived during the Civil War, and he wrote a lot about prayer. You can get a big, thick volume of his writings on prayer, and it's very inspiring to read, and it motivates you to pray. Let me read to you something that E.M. Bounds said in, in a passage called Power Through Prayer. He wrote this. He said, we are constantly straining to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the church and secure enlargement and efficiency for the gospel. The trend of the day has a tendency to lose sight of the man or sink the man in the plan of, or, of in the plan or organization. God's plan is to make much of the man, far more of him than of anything else. Men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The dispensation that heralded and prepared the way for Christ was bound up in that man, John. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. And that inspires me and urges me to become a man of prayer more than I am. Because I realize God uses people, people filled with the spirit. You know, we have our methods, we have our things, we have our stuff, we have, you know, the, the, the stuff we need to do the work of the ministry. But above all, we need the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which is only going to come as we become men and women of prayer and get that anointing. So in these times of apathy, apostasy, anomianism, and anarchy, that's really our, our only hope, is the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Yahweh came upon Othniel, and he became Israel's first judge. 
And this, this coming of the Holy Spirit upon Othniel, this sets the pattern for all the subsequent judges. We're going to see this is what happened to the other judges. They were just ordinary people, and the Spirit of the Lord would come upon them. And it, we're just ordinary people, and by God's grace, may the Holy Spirit come upon some people in this generation to be raised up to become judges. Now, after Othniel, the second judge of Israel was a man named Ehud. And remember, after Othniel was judge, it says the land had rest 40 years. And the transition from Othniel to Ehud, uh, we can read about in Judges chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. It said, And the land had rest 40 years, and Othniel the son of Kenaz died. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of Yahweh. And Yahweh strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of Yahweh. Now you're going to see here in the book of Judges, you see the same pattern. The people fall into apostasy and anarchy, and then they get oppressed by the enemy, and they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Oh, we're sorry, please forgive us. And the Lord would have mercy and raise up a judge and bring them some deliverance. But And then as long as the judge was alive, the people were walking in righteousness and holiness. But then after the judge died, the people would fall back into apathy and, and all these other things. They would fall back into, into apostasy. And then they would be afflicted again. And so they would cry. So it was just this cycle that would be repeated over and over and over again. And here it happens. When Othniel delivered them, they had rest for 40 years. But then after Othniel died, the people started doing evil in the sight of Yahweh again. And so Yahweh strengthened. Now, now get this. He strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Here was this heathen pagan idol worshiper, and God strengthened him to come against Israel. See, if this should be scary. If you fall into the same pattern as the people did, if you get apathetic and you drift off into apostasy and anomianism and anarchy and all these things in your personal life, you know what? The enemy... The Lord will strengthen the enemy to come against you. God will give the enemy license to come into your life and to oppress you because he wants to bring you to repentance. It's a chastisement. So Yahweh strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. Why? It says because they had done evil in the sight of Yahweh. Now, after the death of Joshua and his generation, the next generation had fallen into sin and it says, the Lord sold them into the hand of Hushat Rishat Haim, king of Mesopotamia. Then after eight years, God delivered them, restored them through Othniel's leadership. And then after the death of Othniel, they repeat the same cycle of apathy, apostasy, anomianism, anarchy. And then after 18 years of oppression under the hand of Eglon, king of Moab. So 40 years of rest, then 18 years. That's, a, that's quite a long time to be oppressed by the enemy. But 18 years, Eglon, king of Moab, is oppressing them, and the children of Israel cry out to the Lord. And so the Lord has mercy, and he raises up another judge, Ehud. Now, Ehud was not the sort of man that people would naturally expect to be a leader. Uh, he was nobody special. He was just a man from the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin, you remember, is the smallest of Israel's tribes, the least significant. And furthermore, Ehud was left-handed. And uh, then... 
Left-handedness was viewed as kind of a stigma. Now, according to the Stone Tanakh, the Stone translation, uh, they've got a footnote. They say that Ehud's left-handedness was due to the fact that he had a withered right hand. And they base that on the Hebrew text, which reads, which uh, literally says his right hand was closed up. So he may have had a withered right hand. Of course, that makes him not a very likely candidate to be a judge because you're expecting some big muscular warrior, you know, like in the movies to be the judge. But here comes a man. He's left handed because his right hand's all withered up. But in spite of Ahud's handicap, he was the man God chose to lead his people during this period of apathy, apostasy, anomianism and anarchy. And the Lord's choice of Ahud should remind us that when the Lord is going to choose someone to do a work, The Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Those were the words that were spoken to Samuel the prophet when he went to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. Remember that, you know, David's elder brothers came through one at a time and he thought, surely this one's the Lord's anointed. And then he said, no, you know, the the Lord's not looking, he's not looking necessarily for people that are handsome and tall and strong and muscular and, you know, perfect looks and and, uh, perfect eloquence and all that. No, he's looking for people whose hearts are right. David was a man after God's heart. And God's people today, they're looking for spiritual leaders. And a lot of people, they're looking for spiritual leaders, but they've, they're looking for the wrong kind of spiritual leaders because a lot of people, they've got this mental picture of, uh, you know, their version of the ideal pastor in their mind. And they think that the ideal pastor, I'm looking for the ideal pastor. And he, he's going to, his preaching and his teaching is going to be in the style that I prefer, that I like best. And all of his doctrines and beliefs are going to line up 100% with all my doctrines and beliefs. And he's going to be active in the church functions that are important to me. And he's going to be on call 24-7. And he's going to work long hours for a small salary. And he's going to be tall and handsome. And he'll dress in a way that pleases me. And he'll be an intelligent, dynamic man with great authority. Of course, he won't use any of that authority to interfere with my life, but that's the ideal pastor I'm looking for. And people, they've got this idea in their head and they're looking for the ideal pastor and they get frustrated because they can't find the guy anywhere. Their version of the ideal pastor, like the perfect church, is non-existent. Now, I'm not telling people to be content with imperfection. I'm just saying be realistic. Your ideal pastor does not exist. The man that you are looking for does not exist. Everybody's imperfect. Learn to live with it. Don't be content with imperfection. Pray for people that are imperfect. If you see people's flaws, pray for them, but be realistic. Wake up and realize God is probably not going to use your non-existent ideal pastor to deliver his people. He's probably just going to use people who don't fit the image, like Ahud, a man with a withered right hand, a left-handed man, just ordinary people. Ahud did not fit the image that people had of God's anointed. Nevertheless, he was God's choice. And the Lord knew what he was doing when he chose Ahud. Ahud was, uh, he was sent to deliver a tribute that Eglon demanded from the children of Israel. See, Eglon, the king of Moab, he basically, he, he came in, he established his authority there in the land, and he demanded tribute from the children of Israel, which was basically extortion money. He said, look, you want to stay at peace with me? You're going to have to pay some money here. And so Ahud was sent to deliver the tribute that he demanded. And the oppression and bondage the Israelites suffered under Eglon and the Moabites, it's a picture of how our enemy, the devil, will spiritually oppress and ensnare God's people. Now let's look at some of these characteristics of Eglon and the Moabites. Now who were the Moabites? 
You might remember Moab was the son and grandson of Lot, because Lot had relations with his own daughter, and she called his name Moab, which means from father, because that's where her baby came from. So Moab was was born from this unholy, incestuous union. Now, there's a lesson there. Fornication always carries with it the possibility of conception. Every time a woman gives herself to a man, there's a possibility that a new life might be conceived and born. And in the same way, every time a child of God gives himself to sin, anytime you give in to some sin, that unholy union carries with it the possibility that something might be conceived, a Moab might be conceived. And by that, I mean a besetting sin. See, there are sins that you can commit. You commit a sin, you can repent, ask forgiveness, and you can go on, and maybe you'll never fall into that sin again. But there's always the possibility that it can become a besetting sin, a habitual sin, an addiction that you cannot break. In the story of Ahud, the Moabites can be viewed as those sinful habits that become so deeply ingrained that they seem to almost like they possess a life of their own. You know, that's what addiction is like. It's almost like this, this something inside the addict that just demands, craves and demands that they give in. And just like Eglon, the king of Moab would demand his dues at a fixed intervals of time, every, you know, every so off payments due, payments due, besetting sins seem to roll around on a regular basis. It's that time again, time to pay your dues. Yeah, we know you want to serve God with all your heart, but you know that you've got this weakness. You have to give in. You got to cave into this temptation once in a while. You got to have me, you got to let me have a little bit of you. And uh, I'm not going to leave you alone till you do. So you may as well just, just give in to the temptation, get it over with, and then I'll leave you alone for a while. That's how besetting sins work. For some people, their besetting sin, their Moab, their Eglon might be something like drunkenness. You got to get drunk once in a while. Maybe it's only once or twice a year, but you know you got to do it once in a while. Or maybe it's some form of drug abuse, or maybe for some people it's telling lies or stealing or pornography or sexual immorality. You know, we can go on and on. But it's like a schoolyard bully that comes along and, and extorts insurance money. You want to stay at peace with me, you got to cough up a few quarters here. Well, maybe now it's in dollars. When I was a kid, it was dimes and quarters. But it's like a schoolyard bully that demands extortion, demands some tribute to stay at peace. That's what these besetting sins are like. And they roll around on a regular revolving basis. And it's interesting that this revolving nature of these sins can be seen in the name Eglon. The king of Moab's name was Eglon because Hebrew Eglon can be traced back to the Hebrew verb Agol, which means to revolve. So isn't that interesting that Eglon, it, it comes from a verb that means to revolve because, you know, it's like this rotating sin. So a besetting sin is a habitual sin. It's not just a, a one-time stumble, take you by surprise, and then you, no, it's a sin that rolls again and again. It rolls around. It's a stronghold in the mind. And the scripture says Eglon was a very fat man. And just as Eglon and the Moabites, they grew fat on the tribute money that they extorted from Israel, so the Moabites in your life will grow fat on your surrender to temptation. The more you give in to these sins, the bigger and more powerful they become. They feed on your surrender to them. And the longer you remain in bondage to that sin, the harder it becomes to break free. But Ahud decided, you know what, we've had enough. We're going to break free from the hold 
of Eglon and the Moabites. And so Ehud decided to do something about it. What did he do? It says he made himself a two-edged sword a cubit long. That's about from elbow to fingertip. Not a real long sword, but long enough to do the job. And it says that he strapped it onto his right thigh under his clothes. And after he brought the tribute money to Eglon, he said he told Eglon he had a private message to give him. And after they got alone, he told Eglon, I have a message from God unto thee. It says, scripture says, Eglon stood up. Ehud drew his sword with his left hand and thrust it deep into the fat belly of Eglon and killed him. It says, and the haft also went in after the blade and the fat closed upon the blade. So he could not draw the dagger out of his belly. And it says, and the dirt came out. The dirt came out. And this action of Ehud, it shows us how to deal with the Eglons and the Moabites that keep us enslaved to besetting sins. Ehud, first of all, he faced the evil taskmaster. And in the same way, if you have a habitual besetting sin, you need to face it. You need to confront it. Quit ignoring it. Quit pretending it's not there. Quit telling yourselves it's really not all that bad to to occasionally give in to this. You have to quit thinking that it's normal for God's people to pay tribute to besetting sins every time that temptation rolls around. And you have to take a two-edged sword, the word of the Lord, plunge it deep into the bowels of those vile sins that demand tribute. That's Isn't that how our master resisted temptation in the wilderness? When the devil came against him, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And each it is written is like a thrust into the belly of Eglon, of the, of the tempter. And so we have to go on the offensive against the enemy, attack them with the sword of the spirit, the word of God, press it deeper and deeper into the belly of that besetting sin. So it, the, the, until it says, and the dirt came out, the dirt came out. Eglon was dead. Ehud blew a chauffeur at Mount Ephraim, cried, follow me, for the Lord has delivered the Moabites into your hand. And then he led the Israelites to victory. Moab was made subject to Israel then. Then the tables were turned. The former oppressors were now subject to God's people. And this part of the story shows us what the Lord wants to do with the Ehuds, the judges of our generation, after they have conquered the besetting sins in their lives. See, if you get overcome the temptation and the besetting sin in your life, you can blow the shofar, so to speak. You can proclaim to others, look, we don't need to be in bondage to this stuff anymore. We can be free. The power has been broken. That it's been broken by the work of the Messiah and by the power of the Holy Spirit. The tables can be turned. The demons that oppressed us now can be made subject to us. We don't need to give in to those things. And if we want to be Ahuds in our generation, we have to have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and the faith to press it into the enemy until the dirt comes out. Now, the dirt, that's a nice euphemism for dung. The stone Tanakh says the excrement came out. And that's what sin is like in the nostrils of God. So we need to plunge the sword of the spirit into the belly of that fat Eglon, king of Moab, whatever that besetting sin is. Come against it with the word of the Lord. Press it in by faith until the dirt comes out, until the dirt is out of your life and you've been delivered. And then you have victory over the enemy. So if the Eglon in your life is growing fatter, listen for that blowing of the shofar from Mount Zion and believe that the Lord has delivered the Moabites into your hand, then take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, thrust it deep into the bowels of Eglon's fat belly until Eglon inside you dies and the dirt comes out. So I hope that these words have encouraged you to overcome and to be victorious. Radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. 
But we're going to continue in our series in the book of Numbers. Um, so if you open to Numbers chapter, we're going to actually uh, start in chapter 10. So if you go to Numbers chapter 10. Um, but I want to give you the overall um, outline before we start, which I think is helpful. Uh, first, we start off with these seven lamps um, in chapter 8 and the cleansing of the Levites. Right? Remember, we started last week that there are two paths in life one that leads to peace and one that leads to destruction. And it has to do with uh, how you orient yourself, how you follow God. Um, And what we'll find throughout the book of Numbers is that there's always contrast. There's always two ways you can go. One that leads toward trusting God and one that leads toward trusting ourselves. That's why in the Haftorah portion today, it mentioned um, not by strength, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. Right. So what we're finding is, is before we leave Sinai, because remember, we're still at Sinai. We haven't left yet in this story. In the year that we were there, God's trying to teach us how to be his people. And learning how to be his people, the last little bit of it is, you can't do this by yourself. And we've heard this over and over. Because remember way back when we started talking about Moses and how Moses and God kept missing each other and God kept saying, yeah, but I don't speak so well and I don't, my mouth doesn't work and my brother and I don't really get along. And he goes through this whole list of things. And God keeps saying, yeah, well, but I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And then finally Moses says, well, show me what you're going to do, God. And God says, okay, now I'm ready to show. It's when we stop thinking about who I am and thinking about who is I am, right? And we shift our attention and our orientation changes and our focus is on him rather than ourselves. This keeps coming back, and this is going to be Israel's problem over and over. And it's going to be Moses' problem over and over. So we have these seven lamps. We're setting them up. Obviously, you see that there's a prophetic implication to the seven lamps, right? That Remember, the Torah and the prophets are all pointing towards something, right? We're all looking for this echo, this uh, theme. There's these big paint strokes that God's painting. And he gave us the tabernacle and the temple as an example of a heavenly temple, right? Which is what he tells Moses right in the beginning, that this is a, a copy of something that's in heaven. So each one of the things in it means something. Um, in this sense, the, there's actually lamps, and those lamps actually end up being prophets, and those prophets we find in the book of Revelation are actually two prophets that speak for the Lord. And there's a, a, there's a continual fulfillment, and then there's the actual fulfillment, right? And it's almost like you're looking through a telescope. I think prophecy, it's when you're looking at it, everything seems close. But when you turn it to the side, everything's stretched out, right? And you realize that the further the telescope is stretched out, the closer it looks to you. So the prophet reads something and he sees a theme and he sees, uh, and he, whether he fully understands the implication of God, what God's showing him, it has a, a secular way of revealing itself to us. So even though Moses built the tabernacle, it also plays out in the temple, which Moses will never see. And then the temple plays out in his people, which we haven't seen yet, right? We've seen the beginning of it. So what we find is that there's all these symbols that are leading towards something. Um, it repeats the idea of the retirement of the Levites, when we were talking about um, when people come in, that Levites only work to their 50. And I've said this before in this congregation that a lot of people don't realize that all the heroes in Scripture are older people. The young people are the odd ones. Like the young sharp guy is an odd thing in Scripture. It's the old people who think that they have nothing left are the people that God uses in Scripture. Why? Um, because it's about his spirit, not by, about strength. It's not about our strength, but about the spirit. And remember, when we get all the way to Timothy, and Timothy's worried, and Paul has to say to him, remember we laid hands on you? Well, the first time anybody lays hands like that is on this Torah portion, right? 
all the people lay their hands and pray over the priest before the priest can atone for us. The people put their hands on the priest. The priest put their hands on the sacrifice. And therefore, the transfer sort of happens, right? And the laying on of hands is this idea that we're giving over something, some sort of authority, some sort of idea of passing something over. Um, then we have a repeat of the Passover, because remember I told you Passover is the most important holiday. Um, and what we find out that Yom Kippur, although it's become popular in Judaism, um, doesn't have as much power, the Day of Atonement, doesn't have as much power if the Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. Really, Passover. And the reason we can say that is because, look, every Torah portion, we go back to Passover. Remember I told you there's this circle happening in the book of Numbers that it keeps going back to Passover. It goes forward a little bit in time, and then it jumps back to Passover. It goes forward a little bit, goes back to Passover. Because everything that's happening so far in the book of Numbers isn't even a couple weeks. It's very fast. It takes a whole month to do where what we're up to. And then they get up the temple, uh, the tabernacle. There's smoke over the tabernacle. It lifts, and the people start walking. Right. So we're moving toward that. And God's trying to show us who we are based on who he is, which is what Amanda said about her life, that she realized it's not about the people around her. It's about who God is. We find our image in the reflection of God. That's why we say that we're followers of Yeshua. We're not followers of Judaism. We're not even really followers of Christianity. We're followers of the Messiah. And the Messiah does certain things. So what happens is, is when we come against something in, a, in another denomination or another way of looking at things in other places, we say, look, uh, that might be the tradition that you've developed, which may or may be okay in terms of the way you want to express yourself. Um, but it's not the same thing as Scripture, right? Scripture has more authority than tradition. Um, so you keep going and you have the silver trumpets. Um, and then it says in uh, chapter 10, verse 11, which I'll, which I'll read real quick, um, that the Lord says to make these, these trumpets. Now, interestingly enough, when you, people think that when, you, when they hear trumpet, it always means shofar. But there's really two words in Hebrew for trumpet. This is actually not a shofar. This is not a ram's horn. This is an actual silver trumpet. So if you've ever said to yourself, man, it's always annoying to me in Christian uh, paintings where they have these silver, these thin silver trumpets. I wish they would just hold a shofar because that's what it really is. Well, it turns out we're, they're both right. There actually is silver trumpets, and those silver trumpets become symbols all the way through the end. And remember what a trumpet is. It's an alarm. And it explains in here that it's an alarm for, depending on which side you are, it's either a good thing or a bad thing. If you're on the side of the Lord, then the trumpet means the king is on his way. If it's a, if you're on the other side on the, in another army, it's a sign for the king is on his way. Um, but depending on which side you are, right? So there's these parallels. You have which side are you on? It asks this question. Which side are you on? Which direction are you going to go? Which path are you going to take? You're going to take the easy path, like we talked about last week, which leads to secret sin. You can just kind of keep it a secret because it seems easier, or you can let it out and live in a place of real freedom um, and find real peace, right? That's where we were last week, and now we're kind of moving our way up to uh, chapter 11. Now, what you find is, it says, it says, the second year of the second month on the 20th day. So we're only two months, two and a half months in to this year, right? Um, And when you think about it, when you think about the law, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, numbers, all of that, right, only makes up a year and a month of time. I don't know if you realize that, that there's a year and a month of time in terms of when Moses is writing it. Obviously, Genesis goes further back. But when Moses is writing, it's only a year and a month that he kind of takes to write it all out. Um, And we find ourselves at this moment where everything is now settled. God says, look, you know who I am. You know who you're supposed to be. You know how I act. You know how you're supposed to act. 
Here are days that are important to me. Here's the difference between clean and unclean. Right? We learned all these things. Here's You need to know that there needs to be a redeemer, that you can't do this on your own because you're dirty. And if you're dirty, you can't walk into the temple. So here's a way to get clean. If you're dirty, become clean. If you have sin, get sin out of your life. If there's things you can't clean, put them out of the camp. Right? So we're building. You see this? And you can't do it on your own. You have to have somebody who's anointed, who can, who can represent Israel, who can walk into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice. We know all this now. Right? And we make that sacrifice, not on our own, but by an intermediary. We need to have somebody who represents Israel. Right? Somebody who can carry Israel on his shoulders, have Israel's on, uh, on his chest, right? With the same way we had the, the Torah has the, um, stones on the breastplate. And have an Urim and Thurim, which represents that the person who's doing this only listens to the Spirit of God, or only does what the Father tells him to do. Remember we talked about all this? This is where we sort of came through in this series through the Torah. This is where we're up to. So with all that said, we're now ready to go, right? The people are ready to go. Their camp is ready. There's smoke over the temple. And they only leave when the smoke picks up, and they, only, and they sit down when the smoke comes down, right? And God's leading them through the wilderness. Um, but something happens. And the book of Numbers we call is really in Hebrew the book of the wilderness. And the reason we call it the wilderness, it should have been the book of a month, right? Because they should have at the end of this month got up and got the blessing that God had for them. But instead it becomes the book of the wilderness. Why? Because we chose the easier path, which led to destruction. And we continually do that. And generally we do it because we fall back on our old ways. We fall back on our defense mechanisms. We fall back on the things that got us here but God's trying to get rid of so that he can get us to the next place, right? It was okay that you had this thing for a while. It got you through what you did. It got you through what others did to you. But now at the moment that you're at, God wants to move those things so that he can give you something greater, something better. And you'll find that pattern in Scripture. That's why we gave God our sons, right? He redeemed our sons, so we gave him the priest. And God says, for every priest, you, there's a son exchange, but one day I'm going to send you a priest who is my son so that you can have your sons back. Right? We go through this whole thing. And it has to be a mediator. It has to be someone who represents. Okay, all that said, which is a lot. You don't have to remember all of it. Hopefully you're reading uh, your scriptures. But hopefully that fast-forwards you all the way to where we are now. Because now we think we know who we are. And we're ready to go. People said, okay, we'll do everything you said, God. We're ready. Everything's built. Everybody has their job. All the poles are set up. All the gold's been forged. Right? We're now a people. We know where to stand. We know where to go into battle. Right? We all have this. We even have literally a place to stand. We have banners with our family names on them. We're ready to go. Um, and then you have this uh, problem. And Scripture calls them rabbles. These rabble-rousers. Um, that start complaining about the food. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems to always be what happens in a congregation. Everything's going well, and then somebody complains about the food. Um, but generally, now I'm going to say this, and you may or may not be able to follow, but there's a chiastic structure. A chiastic structure means that in the Hebrew, there's some sort of literary device which tries to point you to something. And a chiasm starts with something like A, B, C, and then goes back out, C, B, A, right? And the way you know sometimes is because the beginning of each verse is the same, right? And you don't have to remember that. All that all the thing you have to remember is that there's a chiastic structure that starts with 10, uh, verse 11, or verse 35, right? Now, in the English, you may not see it, but in Hebrew, it makes a little bit more sense. It says, whenever the ark went out, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee from before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. Now it says, whenever. Do you see that whenever? That whenever repeats. There's a structure that's happening there. Um, you see the two whenevers? 
Now, God's trying to say this is important, which is why we sometimes indent in Scripture. Hopefully, my Bible is indented. Um, now, if you go down to chapter 11, verse, uh, let's see, 15, you'll also see... Um, oops, no, I'm sorry, not 11.15. Oh, I'm sorry, 11.1. It says, now the people complained. Um, now, in English, we say now, but in Hebrew, it's the exact same thing as the whenever. Okay, so you have a whenever, 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 right? So there's this sense, and what a lot of commentaries will say is because it keeps saying whenever, whenever, you have two choices. It's either whenever we go out, our enemies are scattered, or whenever the people started complaining. Do you see, do you see the difference? That it has, it literally gives you two different ways. It's supposed to be whenever the cloud rises, we have such confidence in who God is that we follow Him into any battle because we're led by the Spirit and not by our own strength. Because if we looked at our strength, we would say we can't do it, which is what Moses usually did, right? Remember back in the beginning, he said, I can't do it. I don't have strength. I can't speak. God gives him his spirit. Um, But now there's these people who are complaining, or even better, whenever there were people complaining, right? It's that same kind of thing. Do you see the repetitive nature? So generally what it's saying within the structure of itself, the literary structure, is that you kind of have a choice. There are two kinds of people. There are people who trust God and walk with him, or there are two, or there are people who trust God until things get hard. And for this congregation, we're going into the hard part. I've been here enough time um, that you guys seem to like me, but the honeymoon's a little bit over because we're starting to move into hard stuff because now we're going to have to deal with your problems. Now we're going to have to talk about them. Now we're going to have to work through them together. We're going to have to carry each other's burdens. We're going to have to sing over each other. We're going to have to pray for each other. We're going to have to do all these things that are harder to do. And as they get harder, we're going to need more of God's Spirit to do it because it's not by strength, but by God's Spirit. And what we find in this passage, which I think is really interesting, is you really get for the first time a little mini version of what it's like to have an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then you have two different kinds of people who respond to the Spirit in two different ways. So after that very long introduction, let's um, let's move a little bit forward because you guys know part of the story. Okay, so there's these, the people complained about their hardship, verse 1, chapter 11. In the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. The fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some on the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So this place was called uh, Taborah because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food. Now, let me just say this. This rabble word is very interesting because who are these rabble? It says there were rabble among them. Um, so not them, somebody else. Now, we know that when they left Egypt that there was a mixed multitude. And there are two problems that I find with this. Um, one is that it keeps them sort of separate. There's just people who are rabble, right, whatever that really means, um, people who are causing problems. Um, the rabbis take this too far because what they do in, in their commentaries is that they'll say, oh, it was the Israelites knew what they were doing, but it was the rabble who screwed things up. The Israelites were, were not the ones who, who built the golden calf. It was the mixed multitude. It was the other nations who kept bringing in the idols, not the Israelites. And then they'll, they'll focus on, see, that's why we have to stay pure as Jews because if we let Gentiles in, then they're going to start bringing in their idols. And that's where the Jewish commentaries go. But if you keep reading... Um, it says, and again, the Israelites started wailing, right? So we're back to Israel and said, if only we had meat to eat, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt and had no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Okay. So, 
Um, it's both the rabbles and the Israelites. So we could put that to rest, I think, on some level, that it's everybody. And the most interesting thing about this is, I don't know about you, if you've ever noticed this, but each one of these things has to do with water. Do you remember the first time they complained? What was the complaint about? Water, right? And then they got bitter water because of their complaint. Now we have only things that are made by water. You can't grow any of these things without water, right? None of these things are things you'll get in the desert. But they're sitting in the desert. They just saw the the um, waters open up and they walk through on dry land. They saw the Egyptians destroyed before them, right? They saw Moses on a burning, uh, you know, a, a mountain that was so scary that they they were afraid to go near it and they couldn't even touch it or they would die. And that when Moses came down, his face was glowing. And their complaint is, I really wish I had some watermelon, you know? I really wish I had something like some cucumber because we're sick of this manna, right? Kind of funny, I think. Um, but what they're really saying is, is it was easier in Egypt because the water always overflows. It's easy to grow stuff in Egypt. Egypt's easy. We don't know where you're bringing us, but so far it's dry, it's hard, our feet hurt, right? Um, and we have these people here with us who are making it harder. Do you see where we're sort of going? Um, okay, so it says the manna looked like coriander seed and the rest, and it looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and they took it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They looked in a pot and they made it into cakes and they tasted something, uh, and it tasted something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Um, so what I read from this is it's hard to do. You know, have you ever seen anybody make like uh, something out of seeds where they have to grind it down? It takes them like all day to come up with a cake. I mean, today we're used to just like, oh, the flour's already made. We just pour it in. Um, we even have machines that'll do it for us. Um, no wonder they didn't like manna because it was hard work. They couldn't just eat it. It wasn't like God just showed up with loaves of bread. They actually had to grind it down and make something out of it. Um, it's easier to eat cucumber because you can just break it right off and just eat it. Fruit's easy because you can pull it right off a tree and just eat it. And it's juicy, and it feels good, and it tastes nice. But this manna you have to work for, um, right? So Moses heard the people of every family wailing, which, again, we go back to what we were saying before. Every family was wailing, not just the rabbles, not just the Gentiles, every family. The whole mixitude, mold mixitude, sorry, mixed multitude was wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, now this is what I want you to see in this, because Moses, when he gets angry, which is his downfall throughout the rest of his life, he has an anger problem, right? He never solves that issue. Whenever Moses gets angry, what does he start saying to God, right? You do this, or where are you, and what are you going to do, and who are these people? So you get a lot of you, not I. He gets turned back into the original Moses when he first was talking to God. What are you going to do, right? Um, and I don't have, right? He says, he asked the Lord, verse 11, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? I don't know if you, anybody in this congregation is like that, but when the trouble comes, you start thinking, God, why have you done this to me? Right? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden on all these people on me? He doesn't say all my people. Remember Moses' first original problem? He couldn't figure out who he fit in with. Was he an Egyptian? Was he a Hebrew? Right? He kept calling them your people, these people, and then he kind of figures it out for a while, but then when he gets to a place where it gets hard, he goes back to these people, right? I know if you've ever heard anybody say this, you say, what do you mean these people, <laughs> right? Um, did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant um, to the land you promised an oath to their forefathers? Now, he's completely separated himself. Usually when people get angry or upset, 
they become inwardly focused. This goes all the way back to that who is I am rather than who is I, who am I, right? He becomes inwardly focused. It's I can't do this. I don't have the strength to do this. These people are all crying and it's annoying. I hear them all crying in the tent, in their tents. Every single family is crying. Now, I don't know about you, but it reminds me of like he's just sitting there and he's looking around. He's walking through the camp and like he just sees everybody crying. He, he gets stressed. He gets overwhelmed because he's working in his own strength. He says, I can't do it. Um, where can I get, oh, I'm sorry. Did I give them birth, right? He says, I, these aren't even my kids. It's not like, you know, they're not even mine. Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to give to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. Now, I don't know about you, but where, where did Moses start thinking he was by himself? Right? Uh, is this how you're going to treat me? Put me to death right now. Now, this is something that comes up with a lot of prophets. Jeremiah says it. Job says it. They get so overwhelmed that they'd rather just die. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but I think sometimes we get into the place where we think, you know, this is just too much for me to carry. And the issue is, who's really carrying it? If you think you're carrying it, well, then, yeah, it's too much for you to carry, right? And that's where Moses is right at. He's willing to die, right? If I have to find favor in your eyes, and uh, oh, if I have found favor in your eyes, and uh, do not let your uh, let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of these people so that you will not have to carry it alone. Now, I don't know about you, and uh, the head rabbi of... Britain kind of pointed this out, and I thought it was interesting, that that's not really the answer that Moses is looking for. Moses wants this to be over, and God says, oh, don't worry, I'll bring more people, and we'll have even a bigger party. Now, now you're, he's stressed. I mean, think about it. He's stressed because he has to deal with all these people. So God says, I'm going to bring you another 70, and we're going to delegate it all out. There's going to be so much meat that you're going to need 70 people to help you figure it out. And these aren't even the 50 that, that he had previously. These are a whole different 70. So I don't know about you, but if I was Moses, I'd say, thanks a lot, God. Um, I just told you I didn't want to even be around these people. They're not my people. They're your people. I did what I was supposed to do, and now you're making it harder on me, right? Um, and he says, uh, so you don't have to carry the burden alone. So that's nice of God to give him more people. This makes it more complicated. Um, and then he says to them, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat when we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days. This is where it gets good. Or five, ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Right? So you think, oh, I would think Moses is good with that answer. At least God is angry. Or at least they're both angry. right? But then Moses says, Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say, I will give them meat to eat for the whole month. Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? See, Moses is still thinking about himself here. He's still caught in the cycle. He's still thinking it's all on him. Even though God already said, That spirit that I gave you, I'm going to give to them. So in this moment, Moses is stuck because he's chosen the, the path of his own strength as opposed to God's spirit. He didn't even hear God when God said, that spirit I gave you, 
Remember when you came down off the mountain and you had to cover your face because you were so close to me that your face glowed? Remember that, Moses? Remember when I took somebody who really wasn't good at much other than being the king's son who murdered somebody, who ran away, and I put you in charge of all these people? Remember when you couldn't speak and I found you a way to speak? Remember when you couldn't do miracles and I put a staff in your hand? Remember when you stood and the wind blew all night and you thought there's no way other than right or left, but I made you go straight? Do you remember that, Moses? Moses isn't thinking about all that. He's not thinking about God. He's thinking about himself. This is too much of a burden. The people are crying. This happens to me all the time when the kids go nuts. You get to a moment where you just go, who are these children? Because they're just running around. They're crazy. They're spilling things. Um, it seems to only get worse in that moment because you're thinking about, you're, I don't have enough to care for what's happening. right? And we come to that situation. All of us come to that situation. We all have to continually be challenged with, is it our strength or God's strength? Is any of this our strength? Was any of the stuff that happened before have anything to do with Moses or the people? No. Nothing has happened without the Lord. Now, interestingly enough, the word for spirit is the word ruach. And ruach is this also the word for wind. So when you read it this way, it's very interesting because God sends the wind. There was wind on the mountain, right? And when there was fire and wind, when we fast forward to the New Testament and we get a pouring out of the Holy Spirit, right? There's wind. Right? So there's a play on words here. There's the, the wind that God sends, and there's the Spirit that God sends. And then when we ask about the Holy Spirit, the Messiah says that the Spirit does what it wants. Why? Because it's like the wind. Right? There's this wind idea. And he says, look, think of it, like, let's read it again as if it was wind. It says, I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the wind that is on you and put the wind on them. Right? It sounds kind of funny because we think, oh, it's the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit. But remember, where is this coming from? That means that all of this is from according to uh, the rest of Scripture, is from literally God's nostrils. Remember what he did? He breathed life into Adam. It all started with breath. It all started with ruach. Remember when the Spirit hovered over the water? It all started with this ruach. Everything that we have, every plant that comes up, every literal wind that comes and blows in, every rain that happens, comes from the mouth of God. He literally spoke it into being, and he literally breathed it into life. And therefore, when the Spirit comes, it comes like a wind. It comes in a way you can't control it. It comes in a way you can't understand it. In the same way that you can't see the wind, but you can see what it does. Right? This is the way Scripture talks about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does things in a way that we can't do because we can't do it in our own strength. And that puts us in a perfect position because then we realize who it's really about. What it's really pointing to. Because if Moses understood who he was, he'd realize that he's a prefigured idea of the Messiah that he's an atoner, that he's a leader, that he's a, a prophet, priest, and king. And we're looking forward to a prophet, priest, and king. But what does Yeshua the Messiah do when the disciples are all worried? He breathes the Spirit on them, right? And we're in this moment where God says, I'm going to give you some of the Spirit. I'm going to give them some of the same Spirit I gave you. I'm going to breathe on them. And Moses just keeps going. Yeah, but there's not enough animals to kill. There's not even enough fish in the sea to feed all these people. Plus, they're all whiners. And God's going, but I'm going to give you the Spirit. And Moses doesn't even hear it. Um, so verse, uh, and then the Lord says in verse 23, the Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? You will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. And I don't know about you, but there's a little bit of grace right there. Because God had already been burning in anger, so much so that they named the place burning in anger, right? And God says, look, I'm going to show you again, Moses. I'm going to show you again. Not only that, I'm going to show you something that I've been planning for a long time that you're not even going to be alive to see. One day, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. And I'm going to give you a taste of what that's going to be like. So Moses went out, verse 24, 
and told the people what the Lord had, uh, had said, he brought together 70 of the elders and he had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him and took of the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the 70 elders. Now it makes sense. If you know the rest of the story, what would happen when the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. Interestingly enough, the minute the spirit touched them, they prophesied, but then they stopped. And that's important because God's presence is dependent on what? Us being clean. And we can't have God's full presence until the sacrifice is fully made. So what we're looking for in the Old Testament is these moments where the Holy Spirit comes. It comes like a wind. In the New Testament, we have the fulfillment right, of the, of the Spirit being poured out on all flesh. But now that the sacrifice has been fully made, it can fully come. right? However, in verse 26, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp, which is odd. They were listed among the elders but did not go to the tent. So these guys didn't even obey. They didn't even listen to Moses, right? Somebody thought that they had good character and they didn't even show up, right? And it says, but the spirit also rested on them and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, right? We get to hear about Joshua who's on his way. He's learning, he's watching. He's Moses' kind of right-hand guy. It says, who had been with Moses since youth spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. And I don't know about you, but this reminds me of another story that when the Messiah was walking around and they were casting out demons and they were doing things by the Spirit and his disciples heard about these other men, they said, hey, there are these other guys who are prophesying in your name. When they speak, the demons respond to them too. Shouldn't we stop them? And the Messiah says, no, no, if it's done in my name, right? And then Moses replies, are you jealous for my sake? Now here Moses is clicking back into where God's at. He's seeing the spirit move. He's seeing what's happening. He saw the prophecy and he clicks back into where he's supposed to be. Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them, right? There's a moment here where Moses becomes prophet again and he says, look, there's a day coming where it won't just be my God's spirit on me or God's spirit on 70. It's going to be God's spirit on all people and everybody will bow down and know who he is. And we're looking forward to that, right? There's a pattern here in the Old Testament that we have a, a preview of what's coming, that one day the Spirit will lead us. And the Spirit led them enough to get them to where they're going. But when we got to where Yeshua shows up and the Messiah shows up, he says, look, I know that here's some things that you had. Here are some things that you did before that you got that got you to here. But now I want you to get rid of some of that stuff so that we can move forward. And that's what you find in the book of Galatians, Right? That there's a, there's a difference between the law and the spirit, that the law can only get you so far, that the Old Testament is a book without an ending and the New Testament is a book without a beginning. But there's a transition that happens. Jeremiah says that one day the law will be on our hearts. When the law gets on your heart and the temple of the Holy Spirit becomes God's people and his presence goes from the tabernacle to the temple and from the temple to his people, it comes with a fire, it comes with wind, it comes with the ruach, right? It's a pattern. We know now on that end of it what what he was looking forward to, what Moses was looking forward to, that all people would become prophets, that one day the young men will see visions and the old men will or will see dreams and have dreams, that this will become an outpouring of God, that so much so that one prophet says that the Spirit of God will pour out from the temple and fill up all the valleys so that we become led by the Spirit. Now you would think after all of that, remember we said before, if you th- you would think after Moses saw all those things that he would trust God. We have so much more. He gets a taste of the Holy Spirit. We have access to the entire thing. And we now come to our same choice, whether we're going to be led by the Spirit or we're going to be led by the flesh. 
interestingly enough. Um, so these two men, it says now in verse 31, interestingly enough, let's read it. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. That's pretty far. I don't know if you guys have ever flown or driven from Tel Aviv over to the desert, but it's a couple hours, right? Um, planes can do it pretty fast. But a wind comes, a ruach, same word, ruach comes and blows in. So the provision comes from the mouth of God again. He brought it down. Uh, it brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground and as far as a day's walk in any direction. So there were birds everywhere. All the next day and all the uh, and night and the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No less, no one gathered less than ten homers, which is like ten bushels. I mean, that's a lot of birds. Um, usually, I don't know about you, but I can eat about one bird. Um, but <laughs> anyway, they spread themselves out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and He struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, this place was named Kibaroth Hatava, because they were buried. Uh, because they buried the people who had craved other food. Okay, so you would think that we would that they would have had it figured out. But aren't we guilty of the same thing? We come to these moments, even today for myself, coming to this moment and forgetting that there wasn't somebody who could do the PowerPoint. Or somebody who could do, or Herb wasn't coming and Andy was leading halfway. And the fear comes in, you know, and I think, I have to figure this out by myself. And I say, no, I just read this over and over for the last week. I don't have to, the weight's not on me. The weight's on the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is what does the work. Um, I'm just presenting. I mean, he does the soul penetrating. He's the one that... The word is the thing that cuts between joint and marrow, not me, and I can just present it. Um, but interestingly enough, we have this thing that happens with the spirit because for us, it's not the same thing as do we have food to eat. What we do is this weird thing with the spirit because now that we have the spirit or we're supposed to have the spirit, sometimes we call everything the spirit. And we get this weird thing where we think that now that we've been touched by God, that means we're always touched by God. And that means everything that he said in a powerful way, now means that everything we say is powerful. And there's a transition that happens. And you see that right here, because Miriam and Aaron come to talk to Moses, right? Miriam and Aaron begin, verse 12, I'm sorry, chapter 12, begin to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. And you go back to this rabble. Remember the rabble? Remember the, the Gentiles that were there? Well, Moses had a Cushite wife. Some people think that that is a poor, some people think it might be another wife. But the point is, is uh, none of Moses' wives, if you've ever noticed, were Jewish. Um, and some of the Jewish people had a problem with that. They even had a problem with the rabble who, who they blame later on for causing all the problems, even though Israel was to, was to blame. Remember Aaron blames when the, when they come down, when Moses comes down, he says, oh, the fire did it by itself. He literally blames God, right? They're blaming God, they're blaming Gentiles, and they look, Moses, they look at Moses and say, look, your authority isn't as good as you think it is because you married someone who wasn't even part of our family. And I don't know about you, that comes up a lot in our congregation, that comes up a lot in Messianic Judaism. Um, but here Moses has the same issue. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Now, they wouldn't have said this if the Holy Spirit hadn't touched 70 elders, right? They get a taste of the Holy Spirit, they prophesy once, and now they think we're all in charge, right? The authority structure breaks down. The complaining changes, it grows a little. It stops being about food and it starts being about who's really God's and who's really speaks for him. Has the Lord only spoken through Moses? Verse 2, they asked us, Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth, which you should laugh at because he wrote that part. Um, 
Verse 4 says, At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out from the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them came out. Now again, there's a little bit of grace here, because I don't know if you noticed, but they're all in the tent of meeting. Right? Aaron can go in, but since when is Miriam a part of this? How does Miriam get into the tent of meeting? God doesn't just strike her down. I mean, sometimes God gets so angry that Aaron's sons, remember, got destroyed by fire. Right before this, we read that God was so angry that people on the edge of the camp got destroyed. But here's Miriam in the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron, complaining about who's in charge. Um, so the three of them came out. The Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him I speak to him face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord, which is important. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from among the tent, there stood Miriam leprous like snow. Remember when we talked about that? That only God can cure leprosy? Remember when that whole passage that there's an unleft, there's a left part of the, the Torah that there's a part of the law that we can't fulfill because, and it has to do with leprosy. It has to do with only God can cure leprosy. And when you, someone becomes a leper, where do they go? They're pretty much dead. So in a sense, God puts her in a position of being dead. She would have to leave now. Um, Aaron turns toward her and saw that she had leprosy and said to Moses, Please, my Lord, do not hold against us the sin which we have so foolishly committed. Now, there's a problem here because who does Aaron even talk to? It's a little weird because Aaron turns to Moses and says, pray. Remember Moses said it would be great if everybody prophesied, if everybody was led by the Spirit. Aaron goes back to, he kind of just this double thing. I'm in charge. No, you're not, Aaron. Okay, then you be in charge. No, I'm not in charge either. Do you see that they're still not getting it? Before they're even leaving, they're still not understanding the idea that it's about God's spirit, not about their strength. It's not about Moses. It's the spirit on Moses. Um, he says, Do not let her be st- like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away, which is pretty disgusting. But if you think about it, both Moses and Aaron have a similar thing. He's saying, Don't let her be like a stillborn baby, right? Her skin is destroyed. And Moses says, These aren't my children, right? There's a, a repetitive, there's an image here. Right Before, Moses was the one saying, these aren't mine. Why do you give them to me to carry? I'm not their nurse. Now Aaron's saying to Moses, don't let her be like a baby, a stillborn baby. Do you see the same? There's this same pattern happening over and over that um, he says, confine her then. Well, the Lord uh, replied to Moses. Moses said, please, Lord, O God, please heal her. And the Lord replied to Moses, if her father had uh, spit in her face, would she have not been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can come back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move until she was brought back. After that, the people left Hezeroth and encamped it in the desert of Panan. And that's the beginning of our story. I don't know how that makes you feel, but there's, it's hard to, to use this. It's hard to say to us without really saying what Scripture says, is that we have a choice then to be led by the Spirit or to be led by our own flesh, to be led by our strength or to be led by the spirit of the lord and if there's a way to say this is the root this is the beginning of bitterness this is the root of sin in the people because from this point on they become complainers from this point on they stop remembering how strong god is and they all they do is they work in their own weakness right from this point on we have this comparing over and over in the book of numbers in the book of wilderness there's going to be a a comparing between what we could have done 
by God's Spirit and what we actually did by our own strength. So we have Korah who challenges and they fall into the earth, right? We have the ten spies who go out and say we can't fight. Um, we literally put ourselves in a position where we make ourselves God and we break all the commandments that he gave right before this. He says, look, I want to be your God and you can be my people, but you have to follow this. You have to understand this. You have to know the difference between clean and unclean. You have to understand what the priest means. You have to understand what sacrifice is about. Um, and somehow in our nature, in this broken state that we're in, the poison that kind of fills our body with sin affects us in so many ways that even after we see God's mighty hand, we still turn to ourselves. And we have a choice as a congregation to decide what we're going to do from this point on. Are we going to do it in our own strength? Which I don't know if you look around the room, it's not that strong. Right? There's not that many of us. It'd be one thing if we had 500, 1,000, maybe we'd fall into that trap. But I think maybe we actually have a good chance because we're a small group to be start being led by the Spirit. Now, what we have to be careful of is just because you've been touched by the Spirit, now there's the, the caveat, doesn't mean everything you say is from the Lord. And we do that a lot. We'll say, look, God's given me discernment, so therefore everything I say is discerning. Or one time God gave me a word over somebody, so now everything I say to somebody is from the Lord. We have to be careful about that because that's exactly what happens is you have two types of people. Moses figures it out, right? Moses deals with anger, right? He has an anger problem. He had a messed up childhood. He comes from a dysfunctional family. He's an adopted kid who grew up to be a murderer, to live in the desert, right? He has reasons why he's so angry. But at, but when he finally, when he gets in front of God and they fight it out, he always comes back to, you know what, you're right. Spirit is the way. Same thing happens with King David, right? King David has blood on his hands. He's a sinner just like the rest of us. But God can use him because he has a heart after God that when he sees that he's in sin, he repents right away. Moses clicks right back in. When he sees the power of God move in the spirit, when the wind comes, when the ruach comes, it sets him straight. It reorients him, his life. But there are others when they're touched by the spirit who think that that authorizes them to now be in charge of everybody else. So we have to be careful because what we need to do when we're touched by the spirit is recognize our own weakness. The spirit is there to show us how weak we are, to show us how our strength is no, is not good. It's not supposed to make you into somebody special. Do you see? It's not supposed to make you into a superstar. It's not supposed to turn you into somebody who becomes a healer or a prophet maker, right? You don't become that because God took a little bit of his spirit and put it on you. It doesn't make you God. It doesn't make you speak for God. Now, there are people who have the office of those things, right? In Scripture, we have prophets, and they're taught how to do it. Um, but even we find out with some prophets don't even do a good job. Why? Because they work in their own flesh, like Jonah, right? We have Jonah, who's a great prophet. He's right most of the time. He hears the Lord, but then there, he even hears the Lord so clearly that he can disobey him really clearly. <laughs> right? And then, But in the middle of the whale, he starts out praying, and he starts worshiping the Lord and says, I know that you brought me down to these depths. I know who you really are. Then God spits him out of the fish. We all can make a choice to walk straight, following the Spirit, walking the next step, letting the Word be a light into our feet, or we can go out into the darkness and try to fight on our own. Um, and what we learn from this Torah portion, even though I gave you a lot and I went longer than normal, it's in the most important thing because we're going to find over and over that it's not you, it's God, right? It's not Moses, it's God's Spirit. It's not the Spirit that touched the 70 elders. It's the Spirit that God leads. It's where the Spirit's going, not where you're going. And if you try to go where you're going and try to manipulate God, or even worse, we find out later, tell the Holy Spirit that other people that the Holy Spirit's not the Holy Spirit, Right? 
Remember, the Messiah was casting out a demon, and the Pharisees came and said, uh, no, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's not the Ruach of God. That's not the provider. That's not the breath of life. That's the king of demons. And he says, no, no, no. If you're going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's something I can't forgive. Why? Because it goes back to creation. This is something that is so important to God because when the Spirit hovered on the earth, there was nothing. It was formless and void, remember? And then God spoke it into being. This is about the created order. This is about the deepest of deep. Everything you see when you go outside, every raindrop, every leaf, every tree, every person, every being, every wind, every cloud, all comes from the mouth of God. And when you blaspheme the Ruach, you're blaspheming God, partly because it's his spirit, but because it's where every, it's the source of everything. Um, that is why you can't blaspheme it and survive it. Does that make sense? Um, do you see sort of the pattern that's going all the way through Scripture? It picks up in the New Testament. It's important. Um, but it's important for this congregation because we're at a place where we're going to start moving, right? We're in a transition. We're at a place where we have a choice. Um, do we want to be a group of people who complain because when it gets hard, we, re- we don't think it's our strength, we don't have enough strength to do it? Or are we going to rely on the Holy Spirit? You know, when Jim Cimbala first started the Brooklyn Tabernacle, um, he was looking at the offering plate. Um, he had like 10 people in the church. And their bills were $100 and they only had $50. And he didn't know what to do, so he just said, God, I know that you can give. And he said, I'll pray. He said, God, I'm just looking for some money. I'm just going to go to the post office box and, I, and the extra $50 will be there. He opens the post office box, nothing there. Right? He goes, oh, wait, we have another po- We have a P.O. box, too. So I'm going to run across the street. Runs across the street. There's a uh, P.O. box. He opens it up. Nothing's there. And then he sa- starts going, God, you know, who are you? Why did you send me here? Who are these people? I'm not even sure why I'm in Brooklyn. I'm from Newark. I'm not sure what we're going to do. What are we going to do? And he opens the door to the church to leave, and there's an envelope on the ground. Opens it up, 100 bucks. And he realizes that moment, it's about God's spirit. And that church went on to become world famous for its choir for it's uh, the size of it. In the middle of Brooklyn, there's thousands of people that worship God together because somebody figured out that it's about God's spirit. It's about, and he, even the whole book that he write is about this new, a fresh wind, a fresh fire, right? Right? The fresh wind, a fresh ruach, that's what we need. We need to be touched by the Lord, but we need to treat it the right way. That when it comes, we recognize our own weakness, not that it puffs us up, not that we start telling each other then what we want to do, but only what God wants to do. And when we do that together, we become like pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork, right? When we hit that chord, it's all in tune. We're all moving the same direction. We're all reoriented. Remember I talked about the clay, when you have to orient the clay before you can spin it, because if you put it on that, that spindle and you start spinning it and the, and the clay has not been oriented, it starts flying off in different directions, right? And if there's pieces in there, like little rocks, little things that aren't supposed to be there, they rip out the side. You have to take out the impurities. You have to make the unclean clean. You have to orient it the right direction so that you have to put them all in order. Remember the Levites? This is what God's doing. He's literally pressing down the Israelites to orient them in the right direction so that they recognize that it has nothing to do with them. It's only about him because it's really not about them. The story is not about Israel. The story is about God. And what we find out is that Israel is supposed to become a light to the nations, the priest to the world, that our call as a people is to tell everybody else about this spirit. And if it's about us... Um, it's going to look pretty weak. We make God look small. We look, make God look like he can't do anything. Um, but if we back off a little bit and we let the Spirit lead us, then it doesn't matter how big we are, how many people we have. Um, it, matters, it doesn't even matter how we got here. It doesn't even matter the sins that we did to get to where we're at. It matters where we're going. 
And that's the story of the book of Numbers, right? It's about where we're going. We're going to the promise that God has. There's a promise for land. There's a promise for people. There's a promise for a Messiah. And that Messiah will come, die on a cross, lift up his last breath, his last ruach, and that will change everything. Because from that point on, with that final sacrifice being made, now the Spirit can be poured out on all people and go back to what Moses said, that wouldn't it be great if all of God's people could prophesy? And it all comes together with the Messiah on the cross. And when we say to you, believe in Yeshua so that you can be saved, that's only a part of it. It's believe in Yeshua so you can be saved, so you can be a part of what He's doing. So you become part of the kingdom that He inaugurated to set the captives free, to bring healing to the world, right? to recreate. We get to be a part of what God's doing, not because of who we are or what we have done. Like Amanda said, it's not about what she can do. It's about what God is showing her about what he, who he is and that her identity is not in Judaism or in Christianity. It's not in the religious cycle of things. It's in the Messiah. And when we recognize that, and we recognize that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, nothing could be created without him. That in that moment you had the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together before things were formless and void, and they put chaos into order. And that chaos into order got disturbed by us, and back on the cross, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit put chaos back into order. And we have a choice to make. Are we people who are going to move forward into God's kingdom, led by His Spirit, or are we people who are going to walk our own direction, led, led by our own strength? And that's where this passage, this section leaves us. So that's where I'm going to have to leave us. I'm sure you're hungry too. Um, but we'll move on. Um, in the next few weeks. And what we'll find is our people continue to struggle with this idea because the next big thing that God brings us is his promise and we turn it down. Um, and that's where we're in this. That's the place that we're at for this congregation. We have a promise and we have a choice. Which one are we willing to make? From the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado, this is Solace Radio. Then Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, he says... They are diametrically opposed to one another. The carnal mind is at enmity. It is hostile. That word enmity in the Greek is hostile. The carnal mind is hostile to God and His law and cannot be subject to it on any level. So if we're in the carnal mind, we are not growing, we are not being affected by God. And we make choices. God did not take our free will away. We need to make choices. Amen? So I wanted to address that today because the Lord made a promise to us, recorded by John in, in the 8th chapter, verse 32 and 36. He says, he says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Whom the Son sets free becomes free indeed, completely free on every level. Amen? Now, we walk in freedom and we have availability to dwell under the secret place of the Most High and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the universe, the God of gods, lords of lords, king of kings is on our side. Who could be against us? But you and I have a battle. And nobody describes this battle better in a personal medical diagnosis than the Apostle Paul. None of the apostles deal with it, really. He does because he wants us to know 
what we're dealing with, honestly, freely, so we can be victorious, so we can change, amen? So we can discern the things in our life and not give place to the devil, not listen to him, not allow him to have advantage over us, but walk in triumph and become more and more like our Messiah. So if you go with me to Romans 7, Paul describes his personal conflict. Now, uh, there are some theologians that said this, this is all Paul's declaration of speaking from a point of his personal past history, uh, but I'm going to show you that it's not. The first part is. The last part is what he goes through in his life every day. And what you go through in your life every day. <laughs> and so do I and every believer. So I, I really wanted to, I've, I've shared on this, preached on this, read this multitude of times because I go, that's me. That, I'm, you know, I'm going crazy. Uh, but I really dug in. I have some really good Greek uh, study guides that are not commentary, they just translate the Greek. So uh, I'm going to go through some of these verses line by line. And uh, they're pretty clear anyway, but, but there's some interesting things that just jumped out on me, and I went, yep, that explains it perfectly. <laughs> so we'll start in the 14th verse. And this is really the transitional verse. Prior to this, he is given his history prior to regeneration, before rebirth. But he goes, for we know that the law is spiritual. Okay, so the, the, every covenant is spiritual. When he speaks of the law, he's speaking of Torah, but he's not speaking just of Sinai covenant. He's not speaking just of the, the statutes, ordinances, judgments, and commandments. He's talking about the will of God. What God says, what God wants. is spiritual, supernatural. Amen? He says, but I am carnal. I'm a human being, sold under sin. That's the state of being I was in. And it's a present tense statement. The reason, uh, I've always believed that, but there's some that, that say he's talking about his past. But there is uh, what's called in Greek, you don't have to know this, but it's called preter perfect tense. When that tense is used, when he says, I am carnal, he's using present time in his born-again, regenerated life. So he's not talking about his past conflict. He's talking about what he deals with every day. And in fact, uh, he reiterates this very wonderfully and strongly in 1 Corinthians 15 when he confesses and says, I need to die every day. <laughs> or I have literally an opportunity to die to myself every day. So verse 15. Like I said, we'll go through some of these verses one by one so we, we can all say an easy amen to this. For that which I do, my behavior, that which I do, I do not allow. For what I would, that I do not, but what I hate, that I do. Ouch. So what is he saying? He's saying... I do not approve of my carnal behavior. 
I hate it. I hate when I'm thinking in my flesh. I'm hating when I give in to those things. I hate when I go down those rabbit trails. I hate when I project things that I know I shouldn't project. He's not just talking. He's a, he's a man that's been saved at this time in his life some 25 years. So he's not a baby believer. He's a mature believer, and we know he has an abundance of revelation. Uh, and actually, his, his life in about six years or so is going to end through martyrdom. So he's still having the conflict. And as I look around this room, I know there's people in here that have been born again for 30, 40, 50 years, maybe longer. And we still conflict because the standard of God is perfect. He is holy. He is perfect. He is complete. He is magnificent. And he has moved into our messed up lives and wants to transition us through a metamorphosis activity of renewing our mind and putting off the old man, putting on the new man, all those things that you and I know. But I wanted to talk about the battle. Because we understand the battle, we can conquer. And don't ignore it. You know, we, we usually confront our sin with repentance, and we should. And God is faithful. He loves us. He's just to forgive us. He cleanses from all unrighteousness. We're saved by grace. It's never going to be by works or self-righteousness or any of those things. Amen? So he knows this is built into the situation that we have to have an ongoing remedy for our humanity that's going to be with us until we see him face to face. That's the word of God. Nobody's going to leave here pre-perfect package. <laughs> so he's saying here, I do not approve of my carnal behavior. I am constantly in combat with myself. My human nature battles against God's spirit in me. Now you know as well as I do, there are times when that is monumental and there are times it's minimal. There's times it just travels by and there's times we yield to it. We get angry where we shouldn't be. We get frustrated and that goes into anxiety and panic and it can turn into depression. Amen. We make judgments about people and rather going, I, I got to stop. I can't do that. We keep focusing on the same thing, going over it and over it and over it rather than dealing with it. Amen. We look at situations in our life. And again, it, does, it doesn't have to be 50%, 60%. We're all different. But we all have this problem and we don't like it. You know, we're vexed by the surroundings of the sin and the wickedness and the darkness and the demonic activities around us. It vexes us. Like the scripture says about Lot, his, his soul was vexed in the midst of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's vexing. But if you expect something else out of the world, you're crazy. But I'm, I'm born again. I'm a new creation. Old things are passed away. Everything's become new. And in your life and my life, there's been a multitude of healings and deliverances and transformations. Hallelujah. We have a testimony of the real integrity of the transforming power of God in our life. Hallelujah. But I don't like the remedy of me. I don't like the residue of me. I don't like when, when somebody, especially this, this precious lady over here, says something to me and my blood pressure starts to go up. <laughs> and most of the time I can, I can stop, but not every time. 
You have no idea how many times I go through that. <laughs> but, but so do you. <laughs> we, we, we have a, a, a way of complimenting. I say, I say to her, honey, do you love me? And she says, yes, I do. Mostly. <laughs> but I understand that. <laughs> For those of you and I, no matter how long you've been married, you're in love, mostly. So he's having this battle within himself. Amen? And it's, it's a real battle. Verse 16, if then I do that which I would not, I don't want to do, I consent unto the law that it's good. I make this this understanding. So I have this, what he's saying, the Greek says, I have this argument within myself, so I consent to the holiness and the goodness of the law, but I can't stand that sometimes I can't live the will of God. I consent to it. I love the Word of God. I love the things of God. I love His truth. I love His, his holiness. I love His purity. I love that He wants that from my life. That's what Paul is saying. But in my behavior, I don't always live that. And that's this inner conflict that's really, he's, he's miserable in the conflict. He's exhausted in the conflict. So he's consenting to the goodness of God, the holiness of God, the mercy of God, and wants to live only for God, but he is often blockaded by his own Adamic nature. Selah. <laughs> Verse 17. He says, Now then, it is no more that I do it, but sin that dwells in me. So this is not an excuse. It sounds like, ah, oh, the devil made me do it. Sin makes me do it. You know, he's saying something else here. He says, I feel like I'm living with a troublesome inmate who won't leave me alone. In other words, he says, I feel I'm stuck in a prison cell. And the dungeons back then were not, you know, club feds. They were horrible. He says, I'm in a, this prison cell, and I'm locked up, and the person I'm locked up with is constantly battling against me. So he, he's, he's crying out. He says, it's not what I want to do, but the, the sin nature in me is not 100% dead and is constantly troubling me. Now, obviously, we rely on grace. John tells us in his first epistle, chapter 1, if we say we don't sin, we're liars. The truth is not in us. I know this whole doctrines based on that, you know, when you're under the blood, God doesn't see anything about the blood, and you're not responsible for your behaviors. God has called us to consecration and sanctification and transformation. But he knows this battle. He understands this battle. And we make choices, and sometimes those choices mess us up. Amen? You know, Holder was talking about 
Moses beating on the rock. Well, the first time he went to the rock, God told him to beat on the rock. The second time he said, just speak to the rock. But he had to get his frustration out first. And it cost him. It cost him. I've done it. You've done it. Now, look, don't don't be embarrassed about it. But we're troubled about it and should be troubled about it. Even Yeshua. We only really see this conflict once, but we see him enter into the Garden of Gethsemane just before his arrest and, and crucifixion. And what does he even share with his disciples? He says the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Because even in his humanity, even as the Son of God, even as God the Son, even as God in the flesh, he goes to the Father and finally has to come to the place to say, not my will, but your will be done. So there was, you know, a little bit of difference of opinion, even though the Lord is the Lord. But his humanity was driving him into the, the context of woundedness and hurt he was about to go through because he knew what he was going to go through. And he said, if there's any way, take this cup. Especially that when he would take our sins, the holy God would take your sins and my sins, your grief and my grief, your trouble and my trouble, your diseases and my diseases, and go to that tree. And for that moment when that all was upon him, the father would have to turn away. And he would feel forsaken, deserted by God. It's indescribable. There's no way to say that. It's, it's like if somebody came in and ripped your soul from your spirit, even for a moment. So he felt that. So he understands when you and I go to his throne of grace and say, Lord, I'm sorry. He understands it. There's even empathy there. Even though he was tempted in every way such as we and yet never gave in to the sin. He knows what it's like to deal with that. Ridicule and mockery and temptation. Everything we went through as well as bearing that in him. So this, this troublesome inmate won't leave me alone. And I can't get delivered. Amen? Because nobody, no deliverance ministry, no methodology could cast me out of me. <laughs> or you out of you. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We'll just hold a conference and everybody could get ourselves cast out of ourselves. That's not a demonic thing, even though we can give place to the devil and, and be ensnared. We're not ignorant of his devices. And... We're not ignorant of our humanity. We have to keep the unction of the reality of the power of God to send his word and deliver us and forgive us and strengthen us and bring us to victory. Hallelujah. Verse 18. I know that in me that is in my flesh, in my humanity, in my Adamic nature dwells no good thing. I have no power. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. I, I can't do it. What he's simply saying is the Greek, there's a lot of wording here, but he's saying, my human nature gives me no power to conquer. I can't get more religious. I can't get more systematic. I can't get more legalistic. I can't get find some new dogma. I can't get some ritual rule to do it. He says, there is nothing in my humanity that gives me the ability to conquer me. And we know that from the Lord in John 15. He says, without me, you can do nothing. It's not by might, not by power, 
It's by my spirit, says Adonai Tsevaot. So there are successful 12 steps programs that change nobody. You get addicted to the method of the system. And you get a support system when you feel tempted and hopefully you don't fall off the wagon or whatever the wagon you're on. But that's not freedom. That's not transformation. That's not newness of life. The Lord is doing that in us by His Spirit. And what Rav Shaul is saying here, even though I'm in this conflict, in this inner war, I cannot fix it myself. And if you've tried, and I have, you know it doesn't work. <laughs> so let's go on. Verse 20. Now, if I do that which I would not, it is no more than I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. His confession here is, I'm like two people. I've got this sinful nature, and I've got holy God living inside of me. i got my human spirit, and I've got the Holy Spirit. I've got my old mind and the pride and the anger and the, the religious zeal and all those things, and I have the mind of Messiah. I've got two people in me, and I have to constantly choose by my own will who I'm going to surrender to, whose behavior am I going to do, who I'm going to listen to, how I'm going to react. Am I going to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath? Am I going to take in information and discern it by the Holy Spirit or just react in my own life? Am I going to realize that so many things that I feel are, are needing to have a response immediately? They're an emergency situation that if I trust in God, they're not an emergency situation. And he's already got the plan to fix it. I don't have to rely on me. I can trust in him with all my heart not lean to my own understanding, but in every way acknowledge him, and he will direct my paths. The result of that, Solomon says in Proverbs 3, is what? Health to your navel and marrow to your bones. In other words, it makes us stronger and healthier, because anxiety and stress makes you sick. And God doesn't want that for our lives. He's delivered us. Sar Shalom has moved in, the Prince of Peace, with what he thinks and what he knows, and that we can ask him. Yaakov, James says what? If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Ask in faith, and God will liberally give it to you. He won't withhold wisdom from you. But not only do you need to ask in faith, you need to make sure you're double-minded. So the apostles knew, <laughs> you've got two minds. What are you saying, double-minded? Because he says, don't let that person, that person that's double-minded, don't think you're going to receive anything from the Lord. Because God is not going to interrupt us in our craziness. <laughs> you want to make the plans? Don't ask me for wisdom. You want divine strategy? Be still and know that I'm God. One or the other. Because if we're not... James says we're like the sea that is tossed by the wind. I want it, I don't want it. I need it, I don't need it. I'm going to do this, no, I'm going to do that, maybe I'll do this. God wants to lead us. His, his sheep know his voice and should not follow the voice of a stranger. 
But sometimes God makes us wait. Now, potentially, Isaiah says that's a good thing. Isaiah 40, 30 says, says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. So it's a good thing to wait upon the Lord. We're waiting for him to come back. <laughs> we, can't, we can't make it happen. We can't quicken his coming back. There's been whole doctrines like that. If we do certain things and get ourselves ready, you know, and perfect the bride ourselves, then uh, the Lord will come back. That's heresy. I can't make God change his will because I do well or I do poorly. His will shall be done in earth as it is in heaven, and his will is perfect. It's drenched in his mercy. It's filled with his power and his authority, and he's going to get it done, and he does get it done. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Verse 21. For I then find a law, a reasoning, that when I would do good, evil was present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. My soul loves the truth of God. My soul wants to please God. Everything about me wants to praise him and worship him and please him all the time. Isn't that true? I mean, you and I want that. If you're really born again, you want to live that way. That's what he's saying. But I see another law in my members, in my humanity, warring against the law of my mind. And bringing me into captivity, there's a bondage. It imprisons me to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. Why is he wretched? He's exhausted in this battle. Exhausted. He feels wretched. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Because the wages of sin is death. I don't want that part of me ruling me. Used to rule me and was leading me to hell. God set me free. God saved me. God brought me into his own. He redeemed me. He paid for the price to make me his. I don't want to live in any manner, shape, or form like I did before, but I see that happening in sometimes my thought life, my behavioral life, my response mechanisms, blah, 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 blah. And sometimes I feel like I'm crazy because I don't want to give into that. I give in to fears, even though God's love has cast out the fear of me, I still give in to fears. I still give in to situations. And, but Paul is saying, I feel wretched. It's like, it's like that inmate that I'm imprisoned with. And this is actually, I remember reading a commentary some years ago on the customs of Rome. Rome had a lot of ways to do public death. Amen. Crucifixion is, of course, one of the main ones that we, we know because that was popular and quick and easy. But they had another method. So they would take a body that was freshly dead and strap it to you. And that dead body would decompose attached to you. And in that decomposition, first you get the stink of it. Stinks when we grieve God. Does it? I mean, we, we should throw, run to the throne of grace. That's why, why Hebrews says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Obtain mercy, obtain grace for help in time of need. 
But sometimes that stink of our old man, our old woman rises up, but that's not the end of it. That decomposing body begins to be diseased. And that diseased dead body begins to infuse that disease topically through the skin into the healthy prisoner and it starts killing them. And it's a slow and hideous death, but you're carrying around another dead body. That's the reference Paul uses here. My old sinful nature, the pride and the, and the anger and the, and the lusts and the things that I, I was, it's like this dead body's attached to me. Who's gonna, who could set me free? I've gotta get free of this thing. So the next verse, very important. <laughs> I thank God. <laughs> I thank God through Yeshua HaMashiach, through Jesus the Messiah, our Lord. So the, the deliverance I need to get this thing off my back is going to be the work of the Lord. He's already given a whole description about it. But full deliverance is going to be the metamorphosis of him that as he writes to the Philippians, in Philippians 1.6, he says, the, the, the good work that the Lord's begun in you. He didn't say it's over. He says you're going to keep working it until the day he returns. And keep doing it. First Thessalonians 5, he says that God is faithful. Who will do this? He's going to sanctify us, body, soul, and spirit. He's going to get the work done. But I, I have to surrender to that. You have to surrender to that. We have to give our will over to him. We need to, to love mercy and, and walk humbly and embrace the justice of God. Amen? When we do that, that transformation begins to take place and the deliverance power of God gives us a greater strengthening and we're becoming more and more like Him. We're decreasing, He's increasing. Hallelujah. But the conflict is real. The necessity of transformation is real. And we must learn not to yield to it. I thank my God, verse 25, through Jesus the Messiah, our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself serve the law of God. I want to do it. I want to please you, God. I want to love you. I want to praise you. I want to adore you. But with the flesh, the law of sin. Sometimes I give in to that. And we all know that. If we're honest. And if you're not honest, you're a liar. And you're going to end up in hell. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> but, but liars are in submission to the father of lies. People who are delivered are submitted to the victory of God. So the next chapter begins to, to bring us into victory. I don't want to spend time through that whole chapter. Romans 8 is, is delicious. But I would like to pick it up at the end of the chapter. Because it really states emphatically how that deliverance is going to take place. Verse 31, please. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, God is on our side. Who could be against us? All right, so even my carnal Adamic nature, any impetus to sin or grieve or vex God, God's on my side. If I trust in him, if I rely on him, if I rest in him, he's going to cause me to triumph. We already know, and you and I know this, 
doesn't even have to be in the scripture. You can't do it yourself. If I wanted to be a brilliant physicist like Albert Einstein, there's only one way this guy could do it. I'd have to somehow get the implantation of the brain of Albert Einstein. Now that's medically impossible. But if I want to be like Yeshua, and think like him, experience like him, react like him, respond like him, please the Father all the time, praise God all the time, know what to do and how to do and, and all the aspects in relationship with other people, saved and unsaved, I would need the mind of Messiah. And the good news is, you and I who are born again of the Holy Spirit have the mind of Messiah so he can instruct us. Find in 1 Corinthians 2.16. He's on our side. Some supportive evidence. Verse 32. He that did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him, with him also, freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. This is a forensic statement. When you go into a court, you go into a court because you've been charged with something, right? Well, who is going to bring a charge against us wherein our God, who is just, justified us? Now, we know Satan's description, one of his descriptions, is he's the accuser of the brethren. But he doesn't have power to charge me. I know that my mind can accuse me even to condemnation, but John says, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart and knows all things. And when your heart doesn't condemn you, we have confidence toward God. Hallelujah. So even if I charge myself, even in this conflict that I have like Paul does, he doesn't declare himself damned or unsaved. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm struggling here and I need deliverance from God. And I'm going to have it. I'm going to have it if I seek him, if I trust him. He's going to make me more and more like him. He's going to manifest greater in my life. Those fruits of the Spirit are fruits of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to have more of his love manifested, more of his joy, more of his peace, more of his long-suffering, more of his gentleness, more of his goodness, more of his temperance. All the things that he is, I can have more when I walk in the Spirit and not in my flesh because they are diametrically opposed to one another. If we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. If we sow to the Spirit, we reap everlasting life. Hallelujah. That's the intent of God. He didn't save us to damn us. He saved us to save us. <laughs> That's deep, isn't it? <laughs> but it's true. So Paul is saying, who can lay any charge against us that has power? It doesn't have power. Conviction from the Holy Spirit has power. It's when God speaks to his loving sons and daughters to say you need a correction, you need to pay attention, you need to get out of your own head and your own this and your own that, and trust me, we need to respond to that. But don't respond to what the world has said, what the devils have said, what your own head says. Who can lay charge to God's elect? We're chosen of God. We're God's elect. What a position. Hallelujah. It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Messiah that died. Yea, rather, or more importantly, that is risen again, 
who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Woo! So Hebrews 7.25 says that our high priest Messiah, we needed that level of high priest, ever prays, ever intercedes for us. He's still standing in the gap for us so we could be saved to the uttermost that have come to God through him. So he's praying all the time. He knows our thoughts. He knows our feelings. He knows when we fall down. He knows when we get lost. He knows when we get hurt. He knows when we get wounded. He knows when we're in a battle. Now, I think he appreciates this conflict that we have. Because if we didn't care, we were either born again or we were willing to spit in the face of God. And the more we care, the more we love God, the less we want to sadden him. We want to please him. We want to exalt him and glorify him. God help us to do that and get this dead guy off my back. He stinks. <laughs> Who shall separate us, verse 35, from the love of Messiah? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Notice none of this is temptation. These are all conditions and situations. But all these conditions and situations could motivate me into my flesh, can't they? Make me react carnally. But they don't have the power to separate me from the God who loves me so much that cannot love me less, cannot love me more consistently and only loves me. Hallelujah! None of these things. And he interjects this. This Old Testament scripture, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. No, 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 no. In all these things we are more than conquerors. We have surpassing victory through him that loved us. Tapping into him is triumph. And remember the end of the seventh chapter, that, that question of Rav Shaul, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to stop this misery? Well, our loving God. Our loving God will diminish it. Now, why doesn't he take it away? Why isn't it perfect? You know, because of human nature. You know, when, when I was coming up, we had a, a wonderful pastor and his wife were just God-ordained for our lives in multitudes of ways, really father in the, in the spirit. And he used to like to... He always liked to challenge me theologically. So one day he asked me, he says, you know, we know that God created the heavens and the earth and all that there and is in six days. How come in 2,000 years the church is still a mess? And you know, I went home that night and I'm praying and I'm going through scripture and I'm doing everything I possibly do. I wanted to come back with the right answer. So a week went by, and I met with him, and he said, did you come up with an answer, a good biblical, rightly divided, scriptural answer? So I said, no, I don't know. Why? He says, there is a foundation for the church. It's, it's Jesus. And, and the church is built on the, the apostles and prophets, Jesus the Messiah, the chief cornerstone. But in all the transformation power, he's been relying 
on you and I. And that's why it's taken 2,000 years and we're still not there. And that was the truth. And God knew it. He laid the perfect foundation. In fact, Paul says, he says to the leaders and apostles of 1 Corinthians, he says, be careful how you build. Amen? You could build with, you know, gold and silver and precious stone or wood, hay and stubble. And every, every building is going to be tested by fire and we're going to be tested by fire. Watch out how you build. Foundation is perfect. The word of God is perfect. But God help me. God help me. Because I'm not perfect. I'm not totally like him yet. And we make mistakes. We make doctrinal mistakes and biblical mistakes and humanity mistakes. And for all those things, the goodness and the mercy of God. I love David saying that in Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life that I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God's got a big eraser on the end of his pencil. <laughs> but there's still a conflict. And that conflict could be diminished by the choices you and I make in relationship with him. Because nothing... Nothing can negate the intimacy of the relationship that is drenched in the emotion of God's love for us. Nothing. All these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved him. Verse 38. I am persuaded, this is an emphatic statement, there's no doubt within this whatsoever, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature... In other words, there's nothing in all creation, including Satan and the demons, the creator, they've been created, amen, shall be able to separate us. Separate there is a Greek term. It's not going to open up room for something else. So none of these things in and of themselves have power to put a gap between me and my loving God. Woo! They don't have power. We need to be fully persuaded no matter what we're going through Whatever it is, whoever it is, even all the powers of hell, other people, good people, bad people, leadership people, anointed people, liars, truthful people, nobody can separate, has the power to put a gap between me and my intimacy with my Abba, with my Yeshua, with the Holy Spirit. Nobody has that power unless I give it to them. Unless I give it to them. And even then, God won't stop loving me. He looks for prodigal sons. He's ready to hug and kiss and restore. Hug and kiss and restore. Woo! Thank you, God, for that, Rabbi, which is in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. Nothing has that power. So there's a conflict. There's a battle going on. But we win every one of them because they've been won for us. Yeshua triumphed victoriously and openly exposed all those things that could come against us. And you and I know it, don't we? Come on. Even if you're a young believer, you know what is not godly. I remember we used to crack up. We, in our early church, there were some, uh, some people, and you know we would 
talk to them about getting certain victories in their life. And they would say, well, I, I think I'm beginning to be led to have victory. What does that mean? <laughs> I'm beginning to be led. Yeah, I don't think you begin to, you either hear the voice of God and respond, or we don't. It's triumph. Second Corinthians 10, please. Hallelujah. We're going to walk in some victories, new victories. But let's not ignore the battle. All right? It's not just, you know, why did I do that? Why did I think that? It's far deeper than that. We're dealing with old us from a perspective of new us. <laughs> That's what I said. If you went into a doctor's office and said, you know, I've got voices in my head. <laughs> Send you right to the psychiatrist. They try to get some anti-anxiety, schizophrenic medicine into you. But in my mind, in your mind, a lot of times I hear me. I'm very used to me. But there's times we hear our shepherd. We hear him from his word. He speaks into our lives. Hallelujah. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you. That's a strong word. That's a deep encouragement, even begging you. By the meekness and gentleness of Messiah, because of, because of our Lord's humility and his brokenness, who in presence, he's referring to himself, and base among you, but being absent, I am bold toward you. Now, let me give you a quick context here. Paul is constantly getting ridiculed by the church of Corinth and many other people. They don't like this about him. They don't like that about him. Uh, and he hears that, and it's affecting him. It's affecting him. He says, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with the confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. All right? So he's saying, I could exercise my apostolic authority, but I don't want to bring that admonition against you. But their judgment is he's always in his flesh. But, hey, Yeshua was accused that he was under the anointing of Satan. And I'd need an hour to give you things I've been accused of. And people accuse you of stuff. Listen, if it's true, bring it to God. But if it's not true, ignore it. They don't have power to charge those who have been justified under the blood of the Lamb. Who can lay charge to you? Only God. And he's the only one I'm going to ultimately finally answer to. That is judgment. So Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we have our humanity, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons, so now he's on a military campaign. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. I'm not going to rely on my intellect and my this and that. The mighty through God. To the pulling down of strongholds. One of the strongholds are literally the walls of a prison. But he's speaking allegorically, and the Greek says, I'm going to pull down opinions. Other people's opinions can easily stimulate us into humanity and carnality. 
Some of us have been severely wounded by seeds sown into us along our lifetime. Told we're not good or we're not this and we're not that and we're not that. Isn't it interesting that God loves to tell us what we are and what we're going to be, and the devil likes to tell us all the things we're not? He says, so by the might of God, I'm pulling down these opinions. They could develop into prison walls. Casting down. Casting down means utterly demolishing. Imaginations. Reasonings. Now he's got to deal with himself. I can't affect your reasoning. I can only affect mine. And my reasoning is going to come from the wisdom, the gentleness, the meekness, and the power and authority of God and his promises, or out of my own reason and my own logic and my own wisdom. That's only the only two places. And there, there are people that can impart stuff, right? Their opinions and their, their feelings and their, their ideas and their wisdom. Of course, Satan loves to do that. Or I can listen to God. And it's, you know, Romans 7, he, he's, he's struggling in this, this battle. And here he says, this is, this is a military campaign against the effect. He's, he's writing to the church. <laughs> he's not in a prison. He's not writing to people and, you know, sitting in the middle of a bar. He's writing to people in the church. So it's casting down imaginations. And every high thing, the literal is every high thought that exalts itself against, that is opposed to the knowledge of God, to the intimate experience that I want to have with God. I'm not going to let you block by stirring my humanity, my relationship with God. Nothing has that power, but I could give it power. I'm not going to let it happen. I've let it happen 10,000 times, and so have you. And if it's not somebody else, it's me. <laughs> that inner battle. But we could walk in victory. We could walk in triumph. We could allow the perfecting of God to change us. Body, soul, spirit, opinions, character, personality. Oh, that's my personality. Well, get rid of your personality if it stinks. Amen? If it's filled with fear... There's decisions we make in our life for self-preservation that need to go. Because they don't just affect this, they affect this. So many believers in the, in the body have, have chosen because of woundedness and rejection and abandonment and judgments against us that we're not going to let anybody get so close to us emotionally where I'll get hurt that much. So I... I can't let you love me. But God says, if you don't love your brother, how are you going to love me? So that blockade against getting hurt goes that way. I've lived that way. There are multitudes of things. But there's triumph, there's victory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And it's by His might. It's by His power. I've got to take every thought captive. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Messiah. What an exercise is that? <laughs> Imagine somebody said to you, uh, every time you stand still, I want you to do 50 push-ups. Do 100 if you can do them. Do 300. Every time you stand still, drop down and do push-ups. 
I'll kill you. Take every thought captive. If you want total liberty, take every thought captive. <laughs> the Holy Spirit always speaks emphatically, right? Pray all the time, you know, rejoice all the time and everything give thanks. <laughs> take every thought. So, and cap imprison it. That's what captive is, right? He set us free. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men, it says in Ephesians 4, right? So everything that brought you and I into bondage, he freed us and put it into bondage. He captivated the captivators. So nothing has that power against me and you. Hallelujah. I can technically take all those thoughts that Paul was referencing to captive. You can get a little understanding of why he, he can write this. He knows the conflict, but he also knows the triumph. Hallelujah. Every thought captive to the obedience of Messiah and having in readiness to revenge, to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. In other words, once you got it captivated, watch the prison. Don't let it free. And we have that battle, don't we? Amen? You do everything you do, and you get it captive, and you hold it down, and then what happens a little bit later? Boop! <laughs> Boop! Oh, i got to deal with that. Boop! No, 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 I give it to God. Boop! <laughs> it's constant. It's the way we think. The temptation's there, and when the temptation is gone, it's still in the synapse of our brain. So it keeps coming up. There are things we have done, and we have seen, and we have heard in our entire life that's in our memory system, and rises up. There's all kinds of buttons and stimuli and catalysts that brings that up to mind. By the might of God, let's bring that back into subjection to Messiah. If it doesn't exalt him and make us more like him, bring it down. Because it doesn't, listen, it doesn't have power. It's there, it's going to be there, there's going to be a battle there. It's like sometimes we're stuck with an inmate that won't go away. Like Paul said. But we have the authority. In the Lord, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Messiah, we're filled with God, we have his word, we have his promises, we have his joy, we have his peace, we have his love, we have everything. We, we share in the promise of the heritage of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have everything that pertains to life and godliness. Ephesians 1 says we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places of Messiah. We fall behind in no gift. Hallelujah. Let's live like we have that instead of what we still have, and that's our old man and woman. We don't have to live with that. Let's not put up with us. <laughs> Hallelujah. Messianic Radio for a spiritually hungry world. Speak to the rock. Get answers for your life. Find out what's missing in your Bible and why. Solace Radio, changing lives one heart at a time. I'd like to bring a message from the Torah portion, but before I do that, I wanted to bring a little update, a little news, newsy kind of update. And I waited today for the junior congregation children to be dismissed because a lot of the news is not great. 
And when I share news with you, it's really centered on Israel and what's going on in the Middle East. And sometimes it spills over into Europe, etc. And touches even touches us here in the States. I wanted to share something a little different today because you need to know this. We all need to be aware that anti-Semitism is on the rise. It is on the rise. Anti-Semitism on rise across Europe in worst times since the Nazis. The Guardian is the largest news distributor in the United, in the UK, in the United Kingdom, in England. And these are the headlines. Experts say attacks go beyond Israel-Palestinian conflict as hate crimes strike fear into Jewish communities. In England? In France? In other places? You may not believe. Dutch Jews wonder about their future. Headline in Arutz Sheva, an Israeli news source. It is quite clear where the rampant anti-Semitism comes from, but not to the Dutch government. What does that mean? That was the subline underneath the headline in Arutz Sheva. What does it mean? It's quite clear where the rampant anti-Semitism comes from. Well, it's clear because it's instigated and it's coming from the Muslims who have emigrated to Holland and into the Netherlands and in other parts of Europe. And because of the political, the high level of political correctness in that part of the world, you cannot say anything negative against Muslims. So, this writer determined that the Dutch government doesn't see where the anti-Semitism is coming from, but that's where it's coming from. Anti-Semitic riots in Europe took us back to 1938. This from the Washington Post this week. It's like 1938, says Israeli ambassador to Germany, outbreaks of anti-Semitism on the rise across Europe. Now you can imagine, for those of you who understand history at all, that when you have anti-Semitism on the rise in Europe, it smacks of 1938, of Hitler, of Nazism. And what's happening? This is what's happening. A pro-Palestinian demonstrator throws a stone at riot police during a demonstration in Paris on July 19th. This is less than a month ago. This is what's happening. This is what's happening across Europe, friends. We're not so awake here in this country, but this is what's happening across Europe. And don't be surprised if something like this begins to happen here or when it does. If it doesn't happen, you can rebuke me. I'll gladly receive it. But when it does happen, you can say, oh, that's right, Rabbi Marty said it might leak over into the United States. Here's a little chart that was posted, that was printed. It only goes up to 19, uh, only goes up to 2013. So I, I added a few details for you. And I added some interesting, non-coincidental, but coincidental facts and dates. 
Look at the rise of anti-Semitism in, eight, in, in uh, 1989. And here, that line, that bottom line says zero. It's the zero mark. So in 1989, there were 78 incidents of violence against Jews around the world, Jews or Jewish communities or Jewish businesses around the world. And so at its peak in 19, or in 2010, excuse me, 2010, 2011, at its peak, it looked like, you know, 1100 or so incidents around the world. So it's climbing and it's, it, it's, this chart's a little deceiving because it was quiet for a year, a couple of years. And I put this, I added this arrow because this arrow should be up here. It has spiked. Anti-Semitism has now spiked around the world. And let me show you the spikes. What, what, is there, is there something that's causing spikes of anti-Semitism? Anti, you, you need to understand, at least from my perspective, anti-Semitism is latent around the world and just needs a little spark to set it on fire. So, why did the chart start in 1989? Because in 1987, uh, uh, 19, excuse me, 1987, the first intifada, the first uprising of Palestinians in Israel, the first intifada. Some people say it lasted to 1991. Some people say it lasted to 1993. Okay, let's take a look at it. Here's 1991, right here. Here's 1993. What happened in 1993? Does anybody remember? Somebody said it. The Oslo Accords. The Oslo Accords. Well, you've neg- we've, we've entered into the most major peace negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. The Oslo Accords. So, there should have been less anti-Semitism. We, we finally, are, we're attempting to solve the problem. Right? 1993, what happens? Anti-Semitism continues to go up. There's a lull for a while. Until what? Goes up again. It's going up. What happens in 2005? The second major intifada. The second major intifada. Well, what what was that corresponding with? The second major intifada. There was, what, what was happening? What was the next big what was the next big thing that was happening then in 2005? Anybody remember? The roadmap to peace. Okay, Oslo Accords. It wasn't working so well. I don't know. Was has something to do with Oslo? I don't know. The Oslo Accords weren't working out. Lots of prophecy teachers were saying, oh, you know, it's a seven-year accord. This is the seven years of peace that was predicted in the book of Revelation, you know, and, you know, the Antichrist is going to rise, and so on. Well, poop. That pooped out. Be careful about getting sucked into prophecies that are based on something that's necessarily going on in the, in the world. Could be, but it may not be. So, second intifada in 2005, the road map to peace. We're on the road, baby. We're on the road to peace. Things ought to peace down a little bit here, don't you think? We're on the road now. We're on the road. We got the map. What happens? The road map to peace leads to what? The peak of anti-Semitism around the world. Now what's happening? 2014. This chart only goes to 2013, so I added a little line here for 2014, 2014. And it should be up here. It should be way higher. What's happening? 
Some people were saying this is the third intifada. In fact, some people, well, we know that the leader of Hamas was calling for a third intifada. Not everybody responded. But what happened with the, with this Hamas conflict with Israel? Anti-Semitism around the world just started escalating. It's peaked now. I mean, it's, it's peaking. It's, it's going, I don't know if it's peaking. It's going higher. It's increasing. It's increasing. So if we just ignore the peaks, you can even see that anti-Semitism is on the climb. Just ignore the peaks and valleys. Anti-Semitism is on the climb. It's on the rise around the world, even here. Keep your eyes and ears open. Keep this chart in mind as we look at the next couple of pictures. This is the picture of the first intifada. That's 1987 with the Oslo Accord coming up in 1993. This is a picture of the Intifada. What does that remind you of? Wait a minute, I gotta go back here. Whoa! They look, they look kinda similar, don't they? Their methods haven't changed much since 1987. Tonight to 2014, July 19th, 2014 in Paris. 1987. The second Intifada connected with the roadmap as I've connected it with the roadmap to peace. Now, what triggered the Second Intifada? Some people say, oh, it was Sharon's trip to the Temple Mount. When he went up to visit the Temple, nobody was going to stop him. You know, he was going to go up. He was going to go visit the Temple Mount. And people say, oh, that triggered the Second Intifada. That, you know, that was, I don't know if you remember those headlines. They, that, that headline spread all over the world. Sharon triggers Second Intifada. So it was the Israelis' fault. What well, we know later, <laughs> we, we know later from Yasser Arafat, who died, from his wife, from his widow, we know that she told the press that he had planned this intifada months ahead. It had nothing to do with Sharon. It was a convenient timing thing so that they could get the publicity, maximize publicity. And the media showed this for the second intifada. These poor Palestinian teenagers all they have is a slingshot. So it's like David and Goliath. Only now the Palestinians are David and Israel's Goliath. But let me show you some other pictures from the media that were not so broadcast. These are the ones that were broadcast right here. And look, they are poor Palestinians. Just like Israelis are poor Israelis. They're caught up in a, they're caught up in these wars and can't get rid of it. It's a terrible time for everybody. But this is what the media showed around the world. Palestinians, David, fighting Goliath, Israel. And this is what was behind the scenes. This is what it looked like. This is what the, this is, was the introduction of automatic weapons and rockets and, and, and anti-tank missiles and the weapons of war that had been stockpiled by the Palestinians. This is the beginning of the introduction of the major suicide bombings. So people wonder, why did Israel build that wall? You want me to show you again? This is why Israel built the wall. This is why Israel built the wall, which is mostly a fence, not mostly a wall. Because suicide bomber after suicide bomber, they were coming into Israel. And we only heard about a few of them because the rest of them were stopped by Israeli intelligence. Hundreds more were stopped than we ever saw. That all they wanted to do was come in and kill civilians. 
Who was on this bus? Women, children, probably not too many soldiers. So today, truce? What truce? They're coming up with a truce in Egypt. The Egyptians, the Egyptian president in particular, have they, they've been negotiating a truce between Israel and the Palestinians. That's been happening for the last three days. You want, me to, you want to see this morning's headlines? Hamas threatens war of attrition. You know what a war of attrition is? Here is a group, Hamas, who is losing. I mean, they've been pummeled by Israel. But they won't give up, and they won't lay, they won't lay the sword down, and they won't have peace. Why? They say it's because they want to open the shipping off the shores. They don't want Israel to blockade any more ships coming into Gaza. Sure. Why not? Iranian vessels full of missiles? Why block them? You know, missiles coming from Syria, Turkey, armament? Why block it? Why? You know, we want open borders. We want open borders in, through Egypt. We want to build our own airport. We, we want, we want flights to come in. Boats are too slow. We want, we want guns faster than that. Those are the sticking points for Hamas right now. And so they won't negotiate a peace. Why? Because they don't want peace. They want victory. And so they're threatening a war of attrition. That is, we're going to keep fighting you and we're going to hurt you. We're going to kidnap. We're going to sneak in. We're going to kill as many Israelis as we can. And we're going to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it until you get so tired of it you're going to give up. That's what the war of attrition is. The idea is to kill as many as you can of the enemy and it doesn't matter how many get killed on our side. In fact, in some cases, it might be the more the merrier because of the, the great publicity. A war of attrition. Where's the truce? Where's the peace? Officials from Hamas involved in negotiations say tunnels would be nightmare for Israel if demands are not met and hostilities are renewed. Islamic Jihad. No deal is better than a bad deal. What does Israel want? Israel wants peace. Why hasn't Israel negotiated about open, you know, shipping? Israel says, we will allow limited open shipping if Hamas is completely disarmed. And Hamas says, no way, Jose. Excuse me. I was talking about the southern Israelis. So the talks are stalled at the moment, although some people are saying it's 50-50, there's still hope. This was today, today's headline picture. Hamas armed wing releases video. It says, shows fighters using a Hamas-made sniper rifle to shoot Israeli soldiers. They want peace. Well, there it is. This is why I wanted to send the kids out first. I'm going to read you some headlines that just came out late this morning. This is from the daily edition of the Times of Israel. Day 40. Egypt warns there will be no more truth proposals. Subcaption. Hamas threatens Israel with war of attrition if demands not met, says many more issues to be resolved in Cairo negotiations. 
Palestinian delegation says progress made, but chances for ceasefire deal no higher than 50%. Hamas, this is a headline, Hamas admits intimidating foreign press who reported wrong message. We got to those whose work was immoral, quote-unquote, and made them change one way or another, says spokesman of Hamas, also acknowledging booting out journalists who sought to film places where missiles from where missiles were launched. Anyway, you know, part of the agreement was that the Fatah of the Palestinians would come, and Israel agreed to this, that the Fatah under Abbas, the police would come, they would come and protect the borders between Egypt and Gaza and the borders between Israel and, and Gaza. And Israel agreed to it. You know, that the soldiers and the policemen of Mahmoud Abbas of Fatah, that would be okay with them. For me, when I read that, I thought, that's asking the fox to guard the hen house. I mean, now, the latest proposal is that, is that people from the EU, the European Union, would come and be the neutral guard. Well, what's neutral about the European Union? They're so anti-Semitic. I just showed you that. Anyway, it's not good. It needs prayer. I will say this, at least this much is good. Whenever there's really difficult times, people's hearts get stirred. And people in Israel now, many people in Israel now, are asking questions about God. And Messianic believers there are able to minister to many Israelis right now at this time. So yes, the, everything looks pretty dismal, but please pray not only for peace, but pray for the Prince of Peace to be known in all of Israel and among the Palestinians. Why not? Wouldn't we like to have peace in the Middle East based on knowing Yeshua? So Adonai, we bless you and thank you for for encouraging us, Lord, that the the news is the world news. It's it's world. It's it's of the world. But the news of your kingdom, Adonai, is good news. So Lord, we want to focus on the good news. We want to focus on how much you love and care for your people. How much you desire that no soul should perish, no soul, but that everyone should come to the full knowledge and faith of Yeshua, our Kippurah, our atonement, and have eternal life. Thank you, Lord. Pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay. That's the news part. Now I actually have a message. You say, that's enough. I want to get out of here already. <laughs> well, if you have a little more patience, I'll share a little message from the parasha with you which is very pertinent to what's happening today because it's Moshe talking to the second generation who survived the desert about going in to take the land, the land of Israel that we're talking about. And he gives the dimensions, which are much larger than they are right now. Lou read from the second Aliyah, which actually talks about this, proud hearts and forgetful minds. And this is what I want to focus on today.
It actually is, comes from the parsha, but it only comes from one verse. Basically, the thrust is, beware of becoming proud. Beware of your own pride and forgetting Adonai, your God. Let me give you the thrust of the message. I'll give it to you ahead of time. So if, if you get bored, you can leave, but you'll know what's happening anyway. The thrust of the message is this. God has called us to be His, and He's blessed us as His children. But when we start to focus on ourselves and how we can do things and accomplish things on our own, and we become prideful when that happens, we forget to remember that God has given us everything. Beware of becoming prideful. Pride is a little bit like this to our eyes. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read, keep your eyes focused on Yeshua so that you don't lose heart, so that your heart won't fail. And pride goes like this. It, it starts down here. But it goes like this. You have your eyes focused on Yeshua. Your eyes focused on Yeshua. And all of a sudden, pride, pride blocks your vision of God. Blocks your vision of Yeshua. You can't keep your eyes focused on Him anymore because you have your eyes, or we would have our eyes focused on ourselves and what we can accomplish. Or, believe it or not, pride doesn't always come in the form of success. Pride also also manifests itself at times of failure. We can't get ourselves our eyes off of ourselves because we have failed. All we can do is think about ourselves and our own failure. And that's pride. Pride has two sides to the coin. Neither one of them are good. Parsha Ekev, and I'm taking this from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 14. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, you can join me. But I'll show it to you on the screen anyway. But there's a lot more to see than I'll have on the screen. So pride... And memory loss. <laughs> That's sort of a funny little head, heading, isn't it? Pride and memory loss. You would think if you're prideful, you can remember everything, and that's the problem of your pride. The problem is, when you become prideful, you have memory loss. What's your memory loss? The memory loss is how idiotic you have been at times in your life, how weak we've been. We have memory loss about who gave us the power to make our wealth or, or to be successful. We have quite a bit of memory loss. So pride and memory loss. Let's read the verse. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 14. Be careful, or you will become proud-hearted, forgetting Adonai your God who redeemed you out of Egypt. Proud-hearted. What does Jeremiah say? Just Jeremiah the weeping prophet, he said, the heart is so deceitful. The heart is so deceitful, it's just strewn through and through with wickedness. Be careful so that you don't become proud-hearted. In Hebrew, it literally says, a heart that is lifted up. Hey, not bad, you know. People go to the movies, people go to dances, people people go to to hear music, people do things so their heart can be a little lifted up. I'm depressed. I want to I want my heart to be lifted up. 
Great. Nobody's against that. The kind of lifting up that Moshe is talking about here is conceit. As Bob Dylan once put it, it's the, it's the deceit. It's the, uh, uh, oh, now I can't remember. See, I must be prideful because I'm having memory loss. <laughs> or maybe I'm just not focusing on Bob Dylan as much as I used to. The heart becomes lifted up and proud. Why does Moshe even mention this? You don't just go from zero to proud. Something happens. You don't just go from humble to proud in one's fell swoop. There's a process. Something's happening. And Moshe is telling them what's happening in this part, in this Torah portion. He says, look, he says, God brought you through the desert for 40 years. You ate manna. You ate bread that your, that your fathers never knew. It came from heaven. And all the time, God fed you from heaven. He brought you miraculous water. He says, your shoes were never worn out. Your clothes didn't wear out. It was all one miracle after another. He says, but what the Lord was doing was testing you. For 40 years, the Lord tested you. Why? To see if you would obey Him or not. To see if you would love Him or not. But now, you're going from the desert where you have experienced miraculous food and the miraculous presence of the Lord, you're going from the desert into the land of milk and honey, the land full of abundance, the land that where the, where the, where the, when the rain comes down, the land soaks up the water. And so you have water through streams and rivers. You can dig and have wells. You don't have to wait in the desert for a miracle where the water would come from a rock. You'll have it in abundance. And you'll have houses you didn't build. You'll have sheep and cattle you didn't raise. You'll have vineyards you didn't grow. But when you sit down to eat your abundance, to live in the houses you didn't build, and you become satisfied, don't forget the Lord. The Lord who gave it all to you. So then He says, be careful. Or because of your abundance you will become proud-hearted and you will forget the Lord your God who redeemed you and provided all of this abundance for you. That's the context of Moshe's statement. Proud comes from the Hebrew word rum. Rum means to lift up, to be lifted up, as you see here, to be high. In this case, it refers to self-exaltation, haughty, presumptuous, This is all mine. I earned it myself. A haughty heart, a proud heart. This word room can be used in a good way. In fact, we read the Torah portion, terumah. Remember that? That's a gift lifted up to the Lord. When God says, I want to build a tabernacle on earth, and Moshe explained all about it, and he says, we're going to take up a collection for the tabernacle, that Torah portion is called terumah. A gift lifted up to the Lord. It's not always used in a bad way. When Yeshua came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, people were laying down their frond, their palm fronds and their branches. And they were saying, Save us, Lord! Hoshiana! Bamromim! In the highest! The same word. But in this case, when a heart gets proud, 
it's because a heart has become conceited and is lifted up beyond its position. When a heart becomes proud or prideful, it's like blowing up a balloon. In fact, I meant to bring a balloon today and and give you a little demonstration. I just forgot. It's like blowing up a balloon. Does anybody have a balloon? It's like... I have to go to junior congregation to get that. It's like blowing up a balloon. This balloon now looks beautiful, but it's full of hot air. One little tiny pinprick. One tiny, tiny, tiny little pinprick. Bam! Blows everything up. Why? It's beautiful, but it's a facade. High and lifted up. A proud heart. And what does a proud heart do? It causes you to forget. Shakach. It means to mislay. To be oblivious of something. In this case, to be oblivious of God. To be satisfied and content with all that I have. But I forgot that God gave me all that I have. It causes a lack of memory and attention. This is not like dementia when we start getting old, we forget things. And sometimes younger people forget things because we we just have too many things in our mind. I'm including myself in the younger set because I used to be there. I remember almost. The kind of memory loss that I am talking about is the loss of focus that we have on the Lord when we're too focused on ourselves or gaining things around us. So the Scripture tells us, don't be so proud. It's a simple message. Let's not be so proud. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before obstruction, destruction, and arrogance before failure. Some people know it as pride goes before a fall. Pride goes before destruction, as we'll see in this Torah portion. This is precisely what Moshe is saying. This kind of pride goes just before destruction. I meant to, sh- I meant to put a, a, put a cartoon up for you that I discovered, and I'll just share it with you. I, I forgot to put it up. <laughs> it's about two young little boys out to, about to take a walk together in the neighborhood, and one of them has a helmet on, and the other one says, well, why do you have a helmet on? What's up? He says, well, I just read in the Bible that pride comes before a fall. Maybe it's a good thing I didn't put it up. There are two things that are infinite. The universe and man's stupidity. And I'm not sure about the universe. Albert Einstein. So it sounds like he is sure about man's stupidity. And if he's so sure about man's stupidity, I might be a little sure about it myself. We're stupid because we think that we can gain material things or we can be involved in this world to the degree that it may satisfy us or it may give us some sort of identity that we're looking for. When Yeshua said, beware and be careful because all the material things in the world won't give you the life that you're looking for. He says life does not consist or subsist of things. Let's have some more Jewish quotes, shall we? From Yaakov, from James chapter 4, verse 6. But the grace He gives, the grace God gives, is greater. Which is why it says, God opposes the arrogant, but to the humble, He gives grace. 
May I state it, restate it in this way? God opposes the prideful. God opposes the prideful. God keeps the prideful at a distance. And He even opposes. But He gives greater grace to the humble. If a balloon represent, blown up balloon represents pride. If pride is represented by being blown up, high and lifted up, blown up, conceited, self-absorbed, then what does humility, what, what would represent humility? If I had that balloon, I'd be able to do it for you. Let the air out. Let the air out. Exist and live this life without all of that hot air blowing us up. God gives more grace to the one without the hot air than He does to the one with the hot air. Temper gets you into trouble. Pride keeps you there. Jewish author Anonymous. Isn't that true? You blow your top and you get into trouble. Or you offend someone, you get into trouble. And what keeps you from reconciling with that person is pride. Keeps you there. Keeps us there. I've seen it over and over again in my own life and in the lives of many people, in the lives of my own family growing up. It's not pleasant. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Woo! It's one of the things I love about Scripture. It tells it like it is. <laughs> Everyone that is proud in heart has lifted up his own heart is an abomination to the Lord. So what does that mean? It means we should consider walking in humility. I've had people come to me and say, Rabbi Marty, you're the most humble man I know. And I'd say, yes, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> in rabbinic literature, the Torah is compared by the rabbis to water, which flows only downwards, never upwards. The proud man can never truly assimilate the teachings of the Torah. The Torah flows downward to the humble, not upward to the proud. Pride leads to forgetfulness, forgetfulness of the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, Be careful not to forget Adonai, your God. Keep His mitzvot. Guard them. Observe them. Keep them. Be careful not to forget Adonai. Well, we have this old saying, right? Out of sight, out of mind. And so the Jewish community, through the, originally through the Lord's instructions, put regularly put on or wear a tzitzit. Right here, tzitzit. What are these tzitzit for? Well, it depends on who you ask. My friend Gary Kivlowitz, Jewish believer, took his first trip to Israel and toured around and found himself in Tiberias in the north by the Sea of Galilee. And he sat down on a, on, just on a bench, on a bus bench, just to, just to look around and observe. This is the first trip to Israel. He wanted to see what, what, what people were like. Next to him, somebody came up and sat down next to him, and it was a, an Orthodox Jewish man dressed in black. And he said, hello, my name is so-and-so, you know, and he's, and Gary says, hi, hi, I'm Gary Kivlowitz. It's my first trip to Israel. And he says, uh, well, what do you think so far? And I, he says, I love it. I love Israel. He says, but I, I just, I'm so curious. I just have this one question. 
Um, and I'm glad you're here because I, I, you, I feel like you could answer it for me. Why do the different Orthodox Jews dress so differently? I mean, some have really long tzitzit, some have shorter, some have regular hats, some have hats with fur on them, some, you know, and he's going on and on with this list. And he says, Gary, to tell you the truth, not public information, but to tell you the truth, we're all trying to outdo each other. <laughs> so God introduces tzitzit. Right here, tzitzit. Used to be part of the garment, not just a prayer shawl during services. Used to be part of everyday garment. Why? The scripture, the Torah says, to remind us of God's commandments, to remind us that the Lord has provided everything for us. Every time we would look at the tzitzit, or every time we would touch it, we would be reminded, oh yeah, the Lord, I'm, I belong to the Lord. Tefillin. Some people call them phylacteries. They're scriptures that are in a box, that are on leather straps, and you put them um, during prayer times on your, on your arm and on your forehead. It's to remind us that the Lord, He Himself, is God. We are the sheep of His pasture. And it reminds us to, do, to be dependent on Him. Prayer does that, by the way. Regular Torah study, regular Bible study, reminds us that the Lord is God. And we belong to Him. And He desires to bless us. So we want to keep Him in sight. Out of sight, out of mind. We don't keep our eyes focused on Yeshua. We don't keep our eyes focused on God. Out of sight, out of mind. Question, how can we forget God? How could any of us forget God? I mean, I mean, nobody would admit it here in the middle of Shabbat service, but how could we forget God? Are there times when we forget God? Yes, if we're ready to admit. How do we forget God? By focusing on ourselves. How can I forget you? This is not our question. It should be. Lord, how can I forget you? This is God's question. How can I forget you, O Israel? How can I forget you, my own people? In Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16, But Zion said, Sion said, Adonai has abandoned me. Adonai has forgotten me. And the Lord's response, Can a woman forget her child at the breast? not show pity on the child from her womb? Now we're starting to get a little picture. Wait a minute. Ari and Brittany just had their first little baby. How could, you know, if I were to, I, I said, if I were to go to Ari and Brittany, I'd say, Ari and Brittany, could you forget little Ella Rose? Could you? They would say, no way. Brittany would say, hey, every time I bring her to my breast because she's hungry, how can I forget her? But the Lord says, even if these were to forget, I, Adonai, would not forget you. I want you to know, he speaks this to Israel, but he speaks to all those who have come by faith to Yeshua into the commonwealth of Israel, into the common wealth, the common point of treasure, the treasure of the Lord. That's you and me, all of us together. The Lord says, I will never, I would never, forget you. I hope you can 
catch the high degree of faithfulness that God is expressing toward us, toward you and me. He says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. He says, every time I look at my hands, there you are. Your walls are ever before me, speaking about Jerusalem, about Israel. In Psalm 121, verses 4 and 5, we read, No, the guardian of Israel never slumbers nor sleeps. Adonai is your guardian at your right hand. I don't often do this, but every once in a while it seems appropriate. I want you to put your hand on your heart and say this. Repeat after me. Just right up there. Adonai is my guardian at my right hand. Do you get it? Adonai is my guardian at my right hand. If you forget that, you'll die. That's pretty severe. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. If you forget Adonai, your God, and follow other gods and worship them, here is a warning. You can read this in your Bible. Here is a warning. Here it is. You will die. Just like the evil nations Adonai is causing to be destroyed before you, if you do not heed the voice of Adonai, your God. Why? The Lord loves His people and wants to bless His people. But the moment we forget, we are dependent on Him. And we believe that we are independent. The moment we begin to worship other gods and forget the Lord our God, we have committed adultery against our only true love. Or we have forsaken the One who feeds us, clothes us, gives us energy and strength, the one who blesses us, if we don't hear the, if we don't heed and listen to the voice of Adonai. Why? Because the nations that were about to be destroyed weren't being destroyed because God loves Israel so much. They were being destroyed because God hates the wickedness. I suppose this is replacement theology. God wants to replace righteousness. God wants to replace the wickedness with righteousness. That's true replacement theology. And how easily we forget. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses begins to remind them, Moshe's enumeration of Israel's forgetful sins is devastating to their pride and to ours. Devastating. Here we are, standing on the precipice, going into the land that God promised us. We will defeat giants. We will displace the wicked. And then Moshe says, wait a minute. Don't think so highly of yourself. You didn't do this. And he begins to list, in our Torah portion, he begins to list the sins of Israel. And verse 4, chapter 9 and following, says, not your righteousness, but the wickedness of the nations. That's what Adonai, that's why Adonai will defeat them. And he will also uphold his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his covenant. In verse 6, he says, You are a stiff-necked people. Moi? Yes, you are a stiff-necked people. 
Don't think you're so righteous. In fact, Moshe goes on to say, you have been rebellious from the first day I ever knew you till today. In verse 7, you made God angry. You rebelled against Him in the desert. Verse 8, you made God angry again at Mount Horeb with the receiving of the Ten Commandments. You remember that? So much so, when Moshe came down with the Ten Commandments and found the people had made a golden calf, God was so angry, He wanted to destroy Israel. Moshe went back up and pleaded with the Lord for forty another 40 days. God must have been really thin by now. It says he didn't eat or drink. God must have provided for him supernaturally, otherwise he couldn't have lived. He says, I pleaded with God on your behalf, and God relented. In verse 22, you complained at Taverah. You quarreled and grumbled at Massa. You tested the Lord. You rebelled against the Lord at Kadesh Barnea. This is, we're talking 38 years before. I mean, go in and take the land. No, we can't. There are giants. Remember? Remember? You're not so righteous. This is what Hashem wants, right from our Torah portion. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. So now, Israel, all that Adonai your God asks from you is this, to fear Adonai your God, to follow all of his ways, to love him and serve Adonai your God with all of your heart and soul. That's all. That's all. That's everything. That's everything, friends. The Lord wants a 100% relationship with us. You can remember that. Look, fear, follow, love, and serve. Fear the Lord. Love Him. Fear Him. Follow Him. Love Him. Serve Him. I remember Yeshua saying, leave everything and follow Me. Leave everything and follow Me. If you want to be My followers, take up your execution stake daily and follow Me. Friends, I'm reiterating this over and over again. I want us to get the message. Pride thwarts your heart's calling to love Adonai with all of your heart, soul, and strength. I suggest today, it doesn't have to be in public, I suggest today that if any of us knows we're walking in a, in a level of pride, that we take out our little pin. God gives us a little pin. It's called who you really are. And just pop your balloon and let the air out so that we can love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and strength. Yeshua said this in Matthew 10.39, Whoever finds his own life will lose it, but the person who loses his life for my sake will find it. Has that been a mystery to you? Let me put it in the context of the of what we're talking about in terms of pride. I rephrased it, and here it is. Whoever lives in his or her pride will lose his own life. But whoever walks humbly with me will have life forever. Proud hearts and forgetful minds. Okay, friends, this is it. Forget the pride. 
find your life in the one who was sent by God to redeem his people, Yeshua. You want to find your life, I'm pointing you in the right direction. Right here. Remember to seek Adonai your God and to walk in his ways by trusting in him and in the provision he has made for us, the atonement he's made for us, all that he's provided for us is life. God only provides for us what is good and life to us. Adunenu, we bless your holy name. We thank you and bless you for who you are and for loving us so much. You're so patient with us, Lord. You try to give us lessons and teach us over and over again to walk humbly before you. Even as Micah declares, what does the Lord require of you? But to walk in righteousness and mercy and walk humbly before your God. So, Lord, we come this morning and we pray that you would help us. We can't always see our own pride. But please help us, Lord. Help us to become deflated and to walk humbly before you. Because we know that you provide greater grace for the humble. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. Thank you for the most humble man who ever lived on the face of the earth, Yeshua. Moses was humble, but Yeshua was humble to the point of death on the execution stake, on the cross, on the tree, for our sins. Thank you, Lord. We bless you for the forgiveness of sins in our Messiah, Yeshua. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I wanted to ask those of you who are leaving for college, are you college students, if you'll stand up? Stand up if you're going off to college. No? Yeah? We have a few. Stand up if you're going off to college. Let's, let's pray for our, let's pray for our college students. Um, you know, going off to college these days is very difficult. And they face some tremendous uh, challenges at college. So, Father, I just pray in Yeshua's name that you will uh, protect these young people, these students who are going off to college, that you will guard their hearts, their minds. Help them, Lord, to be fully grounded in, in, in your word and to be like Caleb and Joshua, to be of a different spirit full of your presence in their lives. And I pray, Lord, that they would be able to discern between what is being taught that is good and what is being taught that's evil or right or wrong. Bless them, Lord. Give them a joyous time in college and help them to learn the things that will equip them for life as they serve you for the rest of their lives, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Adonai bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Adonai lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Yivarech Adonai ve'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panavalecha v'hunecha Yisa Adonai panavalecha Ve'asem lecha shalom. Power Family.
foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. This series is entitled Exodus or The Biblical Moses That Hollywood Forgot. There have been many different iterations of the story of Moses in Hollywood history. Beginning in 1927 with Cecil B. DeMille's first version of the Ten Commandments, and of course, Charlton Heston, 1950s. And of course, this particular series, this particular film, this particular representation of Moses resonates with me in a way that no other presentation does, which is why I begin this series with that iconic and so memorable Music. I think it's the best score that's ever been written uh, in Hollywood history. Um, with all my compliments to John Williams and all of his great things, I think uh, Bernstein's composition for the Ten Commandments wins them all. I was taken as a child to see the re-release of the Ten Commandments. 1973, they re-released. In those days, they would do that. They would take great films of the past, and every 20 years or so, they would re-release them for a new audience before they released them on TV and showed them every year. Of course, this one is watched every year on TV and gets boffo ratings um, every year and has done so for, I don't know, 40 or so years now. But in 1973, where they re-released it, and my mother was taking me out to a uh, a movie uh, matinee that afternoon, and there were two films that uh, were playing that she thought I might be interested in. We had been doing, she was my Sunday school teacher, at the time, and uh, we had been studying the life of Moses, and she thought I might be interested in seeing a movie about Moses. Uh, and so that was one choice. Uh, and the other choice was uh, 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 Willy Wonka uh, and the uh, Chocolate Factory, Gene Wilder. And I, I, I really had to ponder uh, the two, because I hadn't seen either. I mean, this is before Oompa Loompas entered the common vernacular of, of children everywhere. I didn't know what uh, I would find. But I did know that uh, I'd seen the commercials for Willy Wonka. Ah, it looked okay, but I also had seen the commercials for uh, the Ten Commandments. And Moses had always captured my imagination as a uh, seven, eight-year-old child. And so I asked my mom to take me to the Ten Commandments. And uh, and from the moment that those iconic chords, that first boom, boom, ba ba bum began to play, I was immediately enthralled. And, of course, the moment that Charlton Heston walks uh, onto the screen, um, I was captured with the story of Moses for life. Moses, of course, is the towering personality of the Hebrew Scriptures, and his massive shadow falls over not only the five books that he authored, we call them the Pentateuch, or the Torah, but over the entirety of the Hebrew Scripture. Prince of Egypt, the shepherd, the prophet, the mediator, the sea parter, is at the core of both Judaism and his identity as both the proto-prophet and lawgiver, par excellence, and also at the core of Christianity. And his role as the typological, the prophetic image progenitor of Messiah, of Yeshua. He is the prophet, who Yeshua is the prophet like Moses, that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18. In capturing the imagination of both the casual and committed believer alike, Moses' status 
as an iconic figure has only increased with the passage of, oh, 3,500 uh, years. Popular films like Ten Commandments, uh, perennially viewed by millions, and of course cartoons like Prince of Egypt, I, I Love Them Both, have only added fuel to the iconic fire. Who can hear the name of Moses and not immediately conjure up this image in our mind's eye? Chuck Heston, regally extending his staff over the roiling waters of the Red Sea, majestically striding forward to lead the multitude out of Egypt. But Hollywood's efforts didn't begin with Cecil B. DeMille or uh, the 1927 or even the 1956 version. They didn't end with him either. Burt Lancaster did a a film on Moses in the 70s, not so hot. Um, ben Kingsley did one in the 80s for uh, TNT. That was okay. Of course, the cartoon Prince of Egypt, Val Kilmer, uh, his voice, uh, but uh, the animation, fabulous. My favorite film of all time, number one, Ten Commandments. This is a little trivia for you. Ten Commandments, number two, Prince of Egypt. This uh uh, Mo- Moses captures the first and second slot, the top ten, uh, and there's no competition. And of course, uh, we had an ABC miniseries on the Ten Commandments in the 90s. Ah, it wasn't great to me. Uh, and then most recently, we had uh, Roma Downey uh, do a Moses segment uh, in the uh, series, miniseries, The Bible. Of course, this looks less... Uh, Heston-like, authoritative, and more like a guy saying, after 40 years in the wilderness, I still can't figure out the directions. What do you say, Aaron? Which way should we go? Uh, that's what, that's, that, that image to me. <laughs> but, and then, of course, the latest, but not the greatest by far, Christian, uh, Bale's, uh, uh, contribution, multi-million dollar, visually stunning, emotional, flat, and ultimately disappointing event. Although, well, Bale does hold a bow and arrow quite convincingly. Uh, but when it comes down to uh, confronting Pharaoh, um, I found him a little bit wanting. Putting Batman in that position might not have been the best strategic move that Ridley Scott could have done. Because once uh, Christian Bale confronts Pharaoh and he says, let my people go, Pharaoh says, uh, I, I, can't, I can't understand what? What did he say? Uh, <clears throat> and uh, and that's why he's got to repeat himself uh, nine more times until finally the movie gets going. Uh, but uh, that's what happens when you stick Batman in. But it's essential when you approach a study of the book of Exodus, which we're going to do for the rest of the year. We're going to be living in Exodus. We have to separate the media's presentation from the actual recorded facts of Moses' own account. It's autobiographical, after all, right? His own account of the events that surround his life. Because it's within the text of Exodus that we find, and only in the text, none of the film, no matter how marvelous they they are, they've all fallen short of the glory of the man's life contained within the Word. No one's actually followed the actual story of the text contained in Exodus and thereafter. But within this text, we find a man of of such great complexity, of interest, of of humanity, and and, and grandeur as well. And it far surpasses our own popular conceptions or Hollywood's 
best technicolor notions. As we go through this series, not every week, but many, many of the weeks, I'm going to be taking a clip of one of the uh, films of Moses, presenting Moses' life, and I'll either use it to illustrate or I'll compare and contrast, well, this is how Hollywood presented it, this is what the text actually says. Because within the biblical text, we meet a prince, Moses, who in the prime of life is, well, he's well aware of his unique destiny as the deliverer of his people. I know for dramatic purposes, most of the film presentations um, make it a big surprise about halfway through or one third of the way through. Moses, you're a Hebrew. What? Um, and it's a bit, but that's not the way it is in the text. And this man has been aware since childhood of his unique destiny. And so boldly, yet prematurely, he acts to set that grand destiny in motion. And, well, it doesn't work out so well. We're soon introduced to a later version of this man who's no longer royalty. He's now an obscure shepherd, a man humbled by his life, humbled by circumstance, who's now reluctant, gun-shy, if you will, to endorse his destiny even upon a supernatural encounter, even upon divine instruction. Within his narrative struggles, we observe this man grow in faith and confidence and power as he fulfills his divine destiny and finally becoming not only his people's deliverer, but also their shepherd, their mediator. And not once in the text does Moses' self-portrait yield to a heroic self-caricature. He remains as he presents himself, all too human. We saw that in our Torah reading today. He is all too human. We see all the flaws throughout the Exodus narrative and, well, throughout the remainder of the Pentateuch. Well, let's get into the introduction of the text itself. Let's talk about title. Uh, Hebrew titles for the books of the Bible generally derived, not a lot of creativity here, generally derived from the initial word or phrase of each respective volume in Hebrew. The book is named after the first Two words, uh, Vela, Shemot, these are the names. So Shemot, names, same phrase occurs in Genesis 46 where it introduces a list of Israelite immigrants to Egypt. One manner in which Moses stylistically connects Genesis to Exodus. So names, our uh, English title is Exodus based upon the Greek title Exodus, the exit. By the way, um, it's really important when you're driving in Greece to be a biblical scholar uh, because if you want to find the exit for any highway to join, you want to look for the sign that says Exodus. Okay? Um, that's how you find, that's how you know it's time to get off the road. So Exodus, departure, okay, or exit. And the authorship, of course, um, comes down to a real question. Does Exodus, the rest of the Torah, have a single author, or is it a Frankenstein monster? Are there several layers of textual tradition, three, four, uh, or more, that underlie the book's final form that some uh, later redactor, some later editor uh, took, like, body parts and stitched together into a giant Frankenstein monster that could be really unreliable for us to be able to trust that Moses is the... Or is Moses the actual author? There is strong evidence, of course, for Moses himself to 
be the author. It's not a Frankenstein monster. And the first reason that we should trust that Moses is the author of Exodus are the internal claims of the book itself. It claims to be the work of Moses. A second reason is that as the prince of Egypt, who was thoroughly educated in the Egyptian arts and sciences, Moses was completely qualified to have written the books that are ascribed to him. The third reason is that other biblical books assume Mosaic authorship, Deuteronomy, Joshua, uh, Nehemiah, 1 Kings. And a final compelling reason, and this is this should settle it for us, is that Jesus certainly accepted Mosaic authorship of Exodus. He quoted from Exodus. He ascribed the authorship to Moses. Therefore, there is no reason to doubt that the initial composition dates to a post-wilderness wandering period. So not only has the authorship been an issue of controversy, but the date of the events of the Exodus generation has also engendered a variety of debate. And the main question is whether it dates to the 13th century, in other words, to 1290, which is considered the late date. That's the date that the movies uh, primarily take. Almost all the movies take this late date where Ramses is the pharaoh. Or if it's the early date, which dates to the 15th century, 1446. Well, what's the difference between a date of 1290 and a date of 1446? I don't know, you do the math. I'm not a mathematician, I'm a theologian. Uh, but nonetheless, it's important, uh, and we can trust uh, that it's not the late date. The only arguments for the late date is that uh, we find archaeologically there's widespread 13th century devastation uh, in Egypt and in some of the uh, area of Canaan, um, and apparently there's a lack of 15th century devastation commensurate with what's described in the book of Exodus and in the book of Joshua, the conquest. Well, to which I say, if there is a lack of evidence, um, it simply means that it hasn't been discovered yet. It doesn't mean that it's not there, right? An absence uh, of, 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 the, uh, of the evidence right now doesn't mean that it will always be absent, right? So, uh, and then, of course, that the Jewish people built the city of Rams, right? As if there couldn't be this name floating out before Pharaoh Ramses, or as if someone later couldn't change the date to the, the name of the city that they had built to make it contemporary with uh, later events. So that's the only reasons to take a late event. Uh, the early date, 1446, is a lot of reasons to take 1446, and first of which is the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture, it tells us, according to... 1 Kings 6.1, when Solomon began the construction of the temple in Jerusalem, it tells us that the period between the Exodus and the fourth year of Solomon's reign, when he began building the, uh, the, the temple, when he constructed the temple, was 480 years. We know that the temple began in 966. Construction began 480 years backwards, brings us to 1440. Six. Plus the fact that we have Egyptian archaeological evidence. There is some evidence that uh, leads us to believe 
that there was a group of slaves who uh, nomadically disappeared very, very quickly from there. And then the last reason, and I think this was an interesting one, <coughs> is that the, the pharaoh of 1446 was not succeeded by his firstborn. Obviously, the uh, the standard way of succession is for the firstborn. Something must have happened to the firstborn of Pharaoh because it's a later son who takes over. One can certainly say this fits the dates, this fits the evidence that the book presents. When we talk about the timeline, we're talking about Moses being born somewhere around, this is the later date, we're taking the early date, 1526, Moses is born. Moses is kicked out of Egypt. He flees Egypt, uh, 1486. The Exodus occurs 40 years later. And then the Jewish people enter into Canaan, 1406. So that's the timeline from which we're, we're working. The biblical background of Genesis, of, uh, of Exodus is Genesis. So Genesis, very important. Genesis provides the foundation for interpreting the book of Exodus. When we talk about Genesis, we're speaking primarily of the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is the key to understanding a great deal of the key events that are recorded within Exodus. And certainly the Abrahamic covenant um, provides the motivation for every action of God throughout the entire book. One component of the Abrahamic covenant is the promise of reciprocal blessing and cursing in regard to behavior toward Abraham's covenant posterity, the Jewish people. You remember this from Genesis 12.3. I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse the one who curses you. This is like holy karma, you know, but uh, retributive justice is the theological concept. And we see this. Within the book of Exodus, this is why Egypt was so blessed by God as one pharaoh blessed Joseph and his family, and why, conversely, Egypt is divinely smitten following a long succession of pharaohs who expressed quite a different disposition, shall we say, to the Jewish people. Nestled within the Abrahamic covenant's promise of Abraham's descendants in the land of Canaan is a divine warning. Genesis 15. That before the Hebrews, before Israel, is going to possess the promised land, they're first going to experience a four-century sojourn. And that sojourn will be a sojourn of affliction in a foreign land. And reassurance is given that, well, that will come to an end. And upon the Hebrews' departure, they will possess great wealth. And their afflictors will be divinely judged for how they treated the Jewish people. And the reason for the Hebrews' 400-year absence from the land of promise that God had given Abraham in Genesis, as tacked on as a coda. And I quote the word of God, who says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So, you see, you needed a lengthy Egyptian sojourn out of the land, so that when the Hebrews return to violently, and that's how it's going to go, they're going to violently dispossess the inhabitants of Canaan, The Canaanites are certain to receive the divine justice that is due for their abominable sins. It will take 400 years for the actions of the conquest to be considered by God to be just. In the later portion, Genesis, Moses provides a 
related, more subtle insight into the necessity of the Egyptian sojourn. Story of Joseph. Where is Joseph found? It's in the final third of the book of Genesis. Right? If we look at Genesis, do chunks out of Genesis. Final third, all about Joseph. It's abruptly interrupted. Right there, following the arrival of Joseph into Egypt, and all of a sudden you've got this other account that interrupts. It's like a parenthesis right in the middle of the story of Joseph. This unexpected insertion only makes sense in its particular location where Moses put it. If one recognizes that the point of that passage is to highlight the chain of problematic events that begin to arise when the sons of Jacob, contrary to the practice of the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, they begin to intermarry with local Canaanite women. We are reminded right here by Moses in Genesis that the Hebrews would need to be protected from the corrosive influence of the Canaanite local population. And the way that God is going to protect the Jewish people from the corrosive influence of the Canaanite, who were there during the time of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, is to physically, but temporarily, remove every Hebrew from Canaan and deposit them wholesale into Egypt. <coughs> and that's a matrix that's going to serve to preserve their faith. And it will incubate the identity of God's people over time until they multiply the matrix of Egypt into a mighty nation. The final issue of background we find in Genesis is the prophecy of Jacob. Genesis provides reassurance to the Hebrew people that their time in Egypt is divinely superintended. That it's God who made them go to Egypt. It is God who designed the circumstances for them to be in Egypt for a lengthy period of time. And it is for their benefit. And it's only temporary. And this reassurance was clearly understood by Joseph's deathbed request that his bones accompany the Hebrews upon their eventual exodus from Egypt and back into the land of promise. They expected from Joseph and the patriarchs on forward, because of what Jacob prophesied, that they would indeed return to their own land. Well, we talk about the theme of this book. Let's talk about the theme of the book very quickly. Uh, the purpose of Exodus was to provide an explanation and a description. You needed both explanation and description as to precisely how the chosen people become the chosen people. And so Exodus provides for us a redemptive roadmap that carries the interested reader along a journey of the Jewish people from bitter bondage to glorious freedom as a nation is born. Message of the book, well, Exodus is far more than just an extraordinary family history of the Jewish people. Exodus records a timeless and universal story of hope and of liberation and of redemption. Moses' account provides to Jews and to Gentiles of every generation. That means from the Exodus generation all the way forward to us now, 3,500 years later provides conclusive proof of God's one willingness and God's ability to intervene in the course of human history on behalf of his people and in fulfillment of his promises. It's one thing to have a willingness to act. 
But if you don't have the power to back that up, willingness is just cheap talk and emotion. But the God that Moses introduces us to in Torah has both willingness and ability to act, to intervene, to insert himself into human history. How come? Because he keeps his promises and because he loves his people. Well, in this book, we have a foundational theology. And in this theology, God reveals his sacred name. He reveals his attributes. He reveals his redemption, his Torah, and, frankly, a minutely detailed and how description of how he is to be worshipped by his chosen people. Tells us about the appointment of the first covenant mediator, Moses. Describes the origin of the priesthood. Defines the role of prophets. And relates how the ancient covenant relationship between God and his people, the dispensation of promise, the era of promise, inaugurates a new relationship at Mount Sinai, which is a dispensation, an era of law, of Torah. Speaking of theology, theology of God that we learn from this book that is designed by Moses to serve as a permanent written legacy for his people. Well, necessarily studied through Exodus of profound insights into the nature of God. It begins with the very assumption of God's existence as the I Am. God's nature is ultimate and eternal. Moses paints a multifaceted portrait of a divine being with infinite power, inestimable attributes. There is none like our God. If you come away, having read Exodus, thinking that the God of the Hebrews is like any other God from any other religion, go back and read it again because you've missed it. The God of Moses controls the reins of history and turns the reins of history, boom, as he will, like turning a horse one way or another, or steering your automobile. God steers history as he wills. And he adjusts historical events and the natural order by his command. He is a holy God. A holy God of such transcendence that to behold his glory in its full power, in its fullness, would prove fatal. A God of such holiness and transcendence that he demands that his people relate to him in light of his holiness. Our God is a God of righteous absolutes. And because He is a God of righteous absolutes, there are eternal ethical truths, moral rights and wrongs that remain true no matter what society, what culture, what era one is in. Righteous absolutes that provides a legal roadmap for His people to follow in His path. Deviation from God's standards of righteous demands requires divine judgment. Exodus gives us the God who sees all, the God who observes all, the God who hears all, yet He is no passive observer, content to view history from afar. He's a God who takes action, who intimately involves Himself in the affairs of men on behalf of His people. When does He do so? Whenever He divinely desires. His motivation to action is none other 
than his identity as the covenant-keeping God who remembers his promises and who keeps his commitments. The God of Moses is not some inscrutable, unknowable God, but he is knowable because he directly communicates with his people. He makes his will known to them. They don't have to guess what the will of God is because he makes his will known to them in very specific terms. He's a personal God who enters into an intimate relationship with us. If you miss the intimate relationship that God desires to have with Israel as expressed throughout Exodus, you miss a large component of what Moses is, is, is communicating about God. He responds to personal conversation. How does he respond? Passionately. He responds emotionally. He reveals himself. He discusses his feelings and his desires and his disappointments and his anger with Moses and with his people. And he argues with Moses. Furthermore, the God who answers prayer and who responds to the intercession of his people. He's a God whose love for his people is so exceptional that he locally manifests himself in their midst. He doesn't remain aloof from them. He comes down to be with them that he might personally, physically dwell among the children of Israel. And interestingly, Moses also provides the insight that the focus of God's concern surpasses that of just his own people Israel and extends to the nations as well. In Exodus, the reader sees God concerned with creating and maintaining a reputation among the nations specifically Egypt and Exodus. He repeatedly acts and, and reacts to events that occur in the text with an eye toward how his actions will play on the Egyptian street. Finally, Exodus reveals the monumental salvation of the Lord. The sequential events of the Passover, the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, they combine become the second greatest redemptive event the world has ever known, surpassed in magnitude and consequence only by the sequential events of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Messiah, Yeshua. And we, today, continue to be affected by the repercussions of the Exodus events. It is these very events which, about 1,500 years later, will eventually yield Messianic redemption. In fact, both John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul viewed the death of Yeshua as the fulfillment of the Passover as we experienced in communion just today. So Exodus provides for us a brilliant roadmap of history, of theology, of, uh, of culture. It is not just historical information that's nice to know. Everything that flows through the Bible all the way up to, including, and surpassing death, burial, and resurrection of our Messiah flows as a result of the events that are described in Exodus. So we have together a tremendous ride to take. So in the week that follow, what I suggest that you do, first of all, is if you want to read my... Uh, well, you don't read it. You listen to it. It's an audio commentary. Uh, if you want to listen to the uh, Cult from God's 
uh, from the Ten Commandments to Gods and Kings, the biblical Moses that Hollywood forgot. Um, if you want to listen to it, six hours of uh, commentary on the life of Moses, all the autobiographical, only 31 uh, chapters in the whole Torah that are uh, that contain autobiographical information regarding the life of Moses, and that will take you through. So that's one way to prepare for the rest of the year that we're going to be spending in Exodus. We will be living in Exodus. That's number one. Number two, read the book. Read the book of Exodus. Read it once. Read it twice. Read it three times. Um, third time is generally the time that you begin to say, ah, I didn't see that before. So that would be a great way. Uh, and another way, final way, is for you to be here every week with your seat belts buckled um, and ready to study the text together. Uh, the last time I preached this message, I shared with you uh, the Egyptian background. Uh, we're going to leave that out for time right now, but if you want to go back and hear the audio <coughs> of the Egyptian background, that I believe is uh, is still on the website, is, uh, is a, an audio presentation that you can hear uh, the last, I don't know, 10 minutes of the message or so, as we talk about the Egyptian history, the background, the chronology, leading up the pharaohs and uh, who Moses Mani was and, uh, and all these uh, kinds of things uh, dealing with Egyptian chronology, Egyptian history. So that's available on audio. But for right now, I want to leave you with the idea of exploring the personality, the actions, the events that, serve, that surround the life of Moses. One more thing you can do to prepare, go back and peruse Genesis. Not the stories in the first 11 chapters, Adam and Eve and Noah's Ark. and Those are all prologue. You know, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, that's like prologue to the main story. That's like the setup to get you uh, prepared to specifically enter into the family chronology, the family saga that begins in Genesis chapter 12. And so from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through the end, you begin to see all the areas, especially the Abrahamic covenant, repeated and repeated and repeated over and over again. And mark all the promises in the Abrahamic covenant because they're all going to be recognized. They're all going to be addressed in Exodus. That's what Moses is very conscientious to do for us. So that's another way to prepare. So let's close our uh, eyes and have a moment of prayer. And then we have some announcements. You don't want to miss these. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for providing your word for us. A testimony that doesn't really read like ancient history. It doesn't read like so many of the Near Eastern documents uh, that are contemporary with it. But as a timeless account that is uh, relevant not just to ancient Hebrews, but to the Jewish people throughout time. And not just the Jewish people, but all people. Because we are all brothers. And your Son has died for each one of us and has exhibited His power, exhibited His power to forgive our sins and to reconcile ourselves to you through His resurrection and ascension. So Lord, bless our excursion, our expedition into the book of Exodus as we explore the biblical Moses that Hollywood forgot. May our study find fertile ground in our hearts and in our minds and in our mouths to share. In the name of Yeshua we pray. Amen.
we're going to continue our series. Uh, I did an introduction last week uh, regarding the biblical Moses of Hollywood forgot our exploration of the book of Exodus. And let's get now, having laid the foundations of theme and message and author and date and uh, importance and backgrounds, uh, let's now get into the text itself. We'll see here that Moses' narrative of Exodus is going to pick up exactly where he left off in the conclusion of Genesis, just as Genesis is the prerequisite, and understanding Genesis is prerequisite to understanding what's going on in Exodus, he makes it very clear by really leaving no daylight between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And the first four verses here record the names of the sons of Jacob who came into Egypt with their families. And so, from the outset, this text that Moses writes us establishes the Hebrew people's retention of their ancestry, their heritage, their relationship to God through His promise. Now, verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, Tali, Gad, and Asher. These children are grouped by birth seniority according to their mothers. Different mothers, right? And the six sons of Leah are listed first, followed by Rachel's son, uh, Benjamin. Joseph's not included uh, in the list because he didn't come with Jacob into uh, Egypt. He was already there, and the list concludes with the four sons of uh, uh, the handmaidens, of Rachel and Leah's handmaids, uh, Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, and Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. Get to the next verse. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were seventy in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. So the Jewish patriarchs, with their, with their old man, with their father, Jacob, moved their families to Egypt to be with Joseph. Seventy who came, uh, Joseph's family already in Egypt. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. Of course, Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which is promised on earth, to, on oath, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Genesis 50 ends with Joseph's reminder to his brothers and to us who are reading it, thanks to Moses, said, listen, when I die, bring me with you because God will surely fulfill his covenant that he made with our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No question that there was a connection between Genesis and the Abrahamic covenant and what Moses is laying out at the beginning of Exodus. It's a seamless whole. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. This language is 
Very similar, speaking of Genesis, this is very similar to what we see in the opening of Genesis where, you know, the, the Jewish, the, the, the human, humanity is commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And Israel is indeed doing this. And they're doing this in a foreign land, in the land of Egypt. And they became exceedingly mighty. So that the land was filled with them. So, in other words, the population of Jewish people explodes during their Egyptian sojourn. How many times does Moses use terms to emphasize that they are exploding their population? They're fruitful. They increased abundantly. They multiplied. They became exceedingly mighty. The land was five times in just this verse to tell us that the Jewish population doing pretty well. Um, they are thriving in Egypt. Fantastic. So having established now the historical context, the background of what threads the needle between Genesis and the generation of Moses, the narrative moves us into the thick of the action. First with the Hebrews being subjugated to slavery. Then, well, then to to genocide. Now, a new king arose over Egypt. A, A different kind. A pharaoh of a different kind. A pharaoh of a different dynasty. And this pharaoh arises, enough time has gone by, and the way the Egyptian dynasties work, um, there might not even have been any kind of a relation. So if they're not, if the nation, the leadership of the nation, is not studying the history of the nation, then a leader arose who has no connection to the pharaoh whom Joseph Served. Joseph, remember, he saves Egypt. Right? Joseph is responsible for saving the entire Near East uh, with preparing for the famine. But enough time goes by, and uh, a nation who does not study its history uh, is a nation condemned to ignorance. And this was what happens. A new king from a different dynasty arises. And he did not remember the economic nor political contribution of Joseph to the land of Egypt. This is probably uh, the rise of the 18th dynasty in the 16th century B.C., a couple hundred years after the Hebrews entered into the land of Egypt. Enough time goes by. And he says to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel, the nation of the sons of Israel, are more and mightier than we. This is Ahmos I, the uh, 18th dynasty, most likely the Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And he says this, Come, let us deal deal shrewdly, wisely with them. He's identifying Israel's population explosion as a potential problem. (coughs) There's no danger, of course, of the Hebrews outnumbering the Egyptian nationals. That's not going to happen. But nonetheless, the proportion of Hebrews to Egyptians was uncomfortable. The Egyptians were 
threatened. Why were they threatened? Because, well, after several centuries, the Hebrews had steadfastly resisted assimilation. They had avoided intermarriage with the Egyptians, and they had managed to retain their distinctive identity as Hebrews living in a foreign land. And so, it says, let's make a shrewd plan. Let's make a wise plan. <coughs> the wise plan, the shrewd plan of the Pharaoh was to enslave the Hebrews. Let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. In the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us. There will be a potential fifth column in our midst and fight against us and depart from the land. The previous dynasties, in between the Pharaoh of uh, the time of Joseph and this particular Pharaoh, there was a separate different uh, grouping, a, par- par- a parenthetical set of dynasties. Um, and a Semitic people we know as the Hyksos actually ruled over Egypt. And so you can see how the Egyptians are nervous about having Semites in their midst, since the Hyksos too were Semites. And so uh, if the Hyksos return, they will fight against us and will be in trouble. <coughs> so they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict the Hebrews, hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. So labor gangs, in other words, set over the Israelites to abuse them, to subjugate them, to humiliate them. And so this slavery of the Hebrews, not only a means uh, to uh, build grand cities for Pharaoh, storehouses to make real the dreams of the Egyptian architects, but the servitude of the Hebrews is going to serve as a, as a prophylactic in any kind of campaign um, that foreign nations might have. They will be too busy um, building cities. They are in servitude. They won't have any time to rebel. And the implication in this, and so as we see the Hebrews are enslaved, this is the latest possible date that they could be enslaved is 18th Dynasty, 1569 B.C., and it's very possible that they were enslaved prior to this. But they're not slaves for 400 years because you've got some time from the time of Joseph to the time of Moses. It's a whole... Joseph to Moses is 400 years. And so they're obviously not enslaved for 400 years. It's a matter of how many years um, were they multiplying? Were they thriving um, before they were enslaved? So we'll look at the map. Uh, the cities of Ramses and Pithom are right here in the Nile Delta. Beautiful area. Uh, and uh, we'll see that map again as we continue with our story. Verse 12. But the more they afflicted them, the more the Hebrews multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that the Egyptians were in dread of the sons of Israel. So Pharaoh assumed, and you can understand why he thought this, that if he increased the Israelites' workload sufficiently, they would be too exhausted to procreate. Um, The population of the Hebrews is eventually going to be reduced, or at least will be controlled. But the text shares with us the Egyptians' frustration at seeing, contrary to all expectations, the uh, 
the sexual potency of the Israelites increased in direct proportion to the amplified burden. Give them more work, and they get uh, more fertile. So they were in dread. They were unhinged. And their distrust of the Hebrews now turns to loathing. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor. Word for bitter is moror. That's what we eat at Passover, the bitter herbs, the moror, the bitter, the concept of the bitterness, of the bondage of the uh, Israelites is going to be emphasized for the next 3,500 years in the Passover Seder. Slaves' labor becomes progressively more arduous, made their lives bitter with hard labor, mortar and bricks, and in all kinds of labor in the field. So they're not only building, but they're now farming. And they have agricultural duties, like pumping the waters of the Nile into the field to irrigate. We find this out in Deuteronomy. But you see all kinds of labor in the field. All their labors, which they rigorously imposed on them. So the Hebrews are working hard. And Moses gives the implication that as hard as the Hebrews are working being enslaved, the Egyptians are working just as hard in rigorously imposing these labors upon them. Cycle of destruction. In Deuteronomy 11, the land which you're entering to possess it, not like the land of Egypt from which you came. And this gives us some insight as to what they did there. Where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. After 40 years or so, generation, becomes clear to the Egyptian government that if we're looking at curbing the Hebrew population rate, enslavement is in effect. becomes very clear that more drastic measures were needed if they were going to achieve the desired result. And so in 1526, either as the final orders of the previous pharaoh, Menetep I, or the initial order of his successor, Thutmose, a new policy of genocide is implemented against the Hebrews. And so the pharaoh speaks to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom is named Shifra, the other named Pua. I want you to notice that when we talk about Pharaoh throughout the book of Exodus, it would, it would appear to the casual reader that no matter how much time is going by, you only have one Pharaoh, right? Because the Pharaoh, the king's name, is actually never given. You have Hebrew midwives' names given, but you never have the names of the Pharaohs given. Uh, one is interchangeable with another, apparently. but. It's simply not important. It's like reading the history of World War uh, II and Hitler never being mentioned by name, simply uh, given the term the Chancellor. Uh, and we just refer to him as the Chancellor or the, the Fuhrer, the Fuhrer, whatever. But this king of Egypt, he wants to involve the midwife to curb the population rate. Shifra and 
Pua. This is Amenhotep I, probably the guy we're talking about, the pharaoh of the genocide. This will be one of the last things that he does. And he says to the ladies, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth. Now, most likely these are Egyptian midwives who are helping the Hebrews. It's possible that they're Hebrew, but the fact that he engages them in this plan of genocide would seem to indicate that they're not Jewish people collaborating with him to destroy their own people, but they're uh, Egyptian overseers of the midwives. And there's got to be more midwives than just two for this population explosion. These are the guys in charge. When you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth, and they see them on their birthing stools, if it's a son, put him to death. If it's a daughter, then she will live. So, new policy. Genocide. Murder the Hebrew children. Only the males. Only the males. Not a monster, after all. And you'll murder them immediately upon birth. They will achieve this goal. How are they going to do it? By subtly making it appear as if the baby boys were stillborn. That's why you needed the midwives to carry out this sinister task. Just a rash of stillborn deaths that only affect the males. So Pharaoh is going to use far less uh, subtle uh, tactics uh, later on. The baby girls were allowed to live. Why let the baby girls live and just kill the males? Well, the rationale behind this uh, insidious policy is that in the ancient world, nationality was determined through patrilineal descent, through the father. The Hebrew identity could not be passed on if there was a dearth of fertile young Hebrew men. So this is a way of forcing an entire generation of future Hebrew women into a position where they would either remain childless or assimilate into the Egyptian nation by marrying Egyptian men. So, this is the birthing stool for those of you who, well, why do you need two midwives and how does it work? Well, there's some ancient uh, illustrations of how it did work, (coughs) dating from the ancient world. There you have it. That's how it was done. Uh, No epidural required. Um, But, but, the midwives feared God. Well, that really can put a crimp in someone's grand extermination program, the fear of God. And if the fear of God is greater than the fear of Pharaoh, well, there's a real problem. And they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. But they let the boys live. So here we have one of the great concepts in the book of Exodus. The Lord is more powerful than Pharaoh. Pharaoh is powerful, but the Lord is more powerful. And because the Lord is more powerful than Pharaoh, he is more worthy of obedience. So, if these two great powers, (coughs) the king of Egypt and the king of the world, if they are in conflict, you go with the king of the world um, rather than the king of Egypt. And so, watch this response. King of Egypt called for the midwives and said, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? Why have you disobeyed? So the midwives developed a shrewd plan of their own. 
which involves lying directly to the king's face. They lie right to Pharaoh. And they make an outrageous yet plausible claim. Midwives said to Pharaoh, well, here's how it's going down, O king. The Hebrew women, they are not as the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So we're called, the woman's going to labor pains. By the time we get there, she's already delivered. Um, the Hebrew women are more like um, animals in the field. And we simply cannot deliver uh, their children. They, they, they drop before we get there. So pretty shrewd. <laughs> so the Hebrews, they're not like, they're not like us. They're not like the Egyptians. Um, they're not cultivated. They don't take a long time. God was good to the midwives. The people multiplied, became very mighty. I thought they already were mighty. Well, they become mightier. They become more numerous, even so. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. So God blesses the midwives for their decision to protect the children. But the midwives' decision to protect the children involved lying. And there's no getting around this. This is not like, you know, half-truth is a whole lie, or, you know, uh, or this is, this is not like a little white lie. This is like an absolute out-and-out lie. And God blessed her. I thought lying is wrong. Lying is not wrong under certain circumstances. Lying is a noble course of action when it protects life. When lying protects life, it is a noble course of action. It is the noble course of action. And precedent is established that God actually blesses this lie. God blessed the deception because Jewish lives were saved. And they were rewarded with prosperous families. <coughs> Not any established households, families for them. So, as the Israelites were fertile, so too now these midwives became very fertile and established great homes. But again, the fertility of the Israelites was ratcheted up another level. And now Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. There's an immediate implementation of a malevolent plan B. Pharaoh, who tried to cover up the murder of baby boys by engaging the midwives and making it, trying to make it subtle and sneaky and, ooh, another stillbirth. How about that? He dispenses with any pretext of subtlety or sneakiness and he executes a general order to the Egyptian populace at large. Turned off by religion and hypocrisy. Hate being preached to. Something missing in your life. You haven't been getting the whole truth. The whole Bible and the Hebraic roots of the scriptures. Get answers and treasures now on Solace Radio. Amen. Going to talk about conflicts this morning. Anybody have a, con have a conflict? Any ever, anybody ever been conflicted? Have you ever been conflicted about something? Have you been conflicted about what's right, what's wrong? Which way should I go? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I take this job? Ramel, we'll take that job. 
Ramel, should I get married or not get married? Ramel's on my mind this morning for some reason. Should I marry this person, not marry this person? Should I go out with this person? Should I not go out with this person? Should I go this way, that way? Should I give this person the right of way? Or should I go ahead of him? Is this my parking space or his parking space? Should I eat this ice cream? To eat or not to eat, that is the question. Atkins aside, lactose intolerance has settled the matter in my life. What we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at a settled matter of conflict. A number of years ago, a great man of God named Chuck Colson, everybody know Chuck Colson? Wrote a book called Kingdoms in Conflict. Anyone ever read that book? It was one of his greatest books, Kingdoms in Conflict. And as I was looking at this teaching and And thinking about this, I just kept thinking about how much this book of Revelation, in fact, the entire scripture, but especially this book, is about kingdoms in conflict. Two different kingdoms in conflict. And here we are going to come to the consummation, the beginning of the consummation of that conflict. Do a little uh, resume here. Go back a little summary. First slide, please. We saw war in heaven earlier in this book. War between Michael and his angels. Next slide. Lucifer and his followers. And Lucifer and his followers were thrown out of the heavenlies. He was thrown out of the heavenlies to come down to the earth, to torment the earth. And the enemy knew, Lucifer knew, he had fallen from his high place. He rebelled against God. He had conflicted against the kingdom of all creation. And now he had come, we're told, to the earth to wage war against God's people and God's kingdom and to try to establish his kingdom on this earth. Next slide, please. Last week we looked at Revelation chapter 16. We started to look at this this chapter. The seven bowls of God's wrath in Revelation chapter 16. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the river Euphrates. This is 1612. And the water thereof was dried up, that the way might be made ready for the kings that come from the sun rising. And I saw coming out of the mouth of that great dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits, as it were, looking like reptiles or frogs. For they are spirits of demons, working signs and wonders, which go forth unto the kings of the whole earth, to gather these kings together unto the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And then Yeshua intersects, interjects this word for us in the middle of that incredible period. And he says, Behold, I, Yeshua, come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth. Blessed is he that keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And they gathered them together into a place which is called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Next slide. Seven bowls of God's wrath. Seven bowls of God's wrath, the final judgment of God. We've seen the seal judgments. We've heard and seen the trumpet judgments. All partial in their judgment of mankind, the earth, and the kingdoms of the earth. One-third of the waters, one-third of the people, one-third of the earth, one-third of the air, one-third of the sea, 
being judged by God. But this, what we have come to now, is God's final argument, the resolution. We don't see people turning their lives over to the Lord at this point, even under these terrible sores that afflict those who accept the mark of the beast. We see the sea turning to blood, rivers turning to blood, all mankind scorched by the sun as the sun furiously lets forth all of its, all of its heat upon, on the face of the earth. And then we see the kingdom of the beast. Even in the midst of that scorching sun, the very kingdom of that beast is miraculously turned into darkness. And with all of these signs, with all of these signs, yet man refuses to repent. A couple of weeks ago, Dan spoke about, Dan Justice spoke about living in a post-modern age. Remember? He's talking about that. This is an age of post-mercy. Mercy and grace is not being poured out any longer. If you at this point have not received the goodness and the mercy of the Lord, you will not receive it any longer. This is what the prophet tells us. This is what the Spirit tells us. And now we are looking at the sixth and the seventh bowl judgments. The sixth bowl, the Euphrates is dried up and the world's armies gather towards Armageddon. And the seventh bowl, the earth is utterly shaken. Next slide. A little bit more information about these two bowls. Euphrates dried up, the armies gather for Armageddon. And finally, worldwide earthquakes, cities will collapse, 120 pound hailstones will fall from the sky. The mighty Euphrates, the beautiful Euphrates, it says in 1612, and the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, Revelation 16:12. The Euphrates, you know, the Euphrates is the cradle of civilization. That's where it all began. That's where our story begins. You know, the Bible is about our story. The Bible is our journey. The Scripture tells us from the very beginning of time, from the garden until the very end when the Lord comes and restores all things and the kingdom of heaven is brought down to the face of the earth. The Bible is a history of all of mankind's doings, dealings, and misadventures, basically. But finally, God's mercy is poured out after all this wrath. Can I have the next slide, please? This is what the mighty Euphrates looked like at one time. The mighty Euphrates is the greatest river in the east. The cradle of civilization. All things beautiful grew around the Euphrates. And it says, and its waters started to dry up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. So 16.12. Next slide. There's a picture, one picture of many. You can go on the internet and take a look. This is what Euphrates is beginning to look like today. The most beautiful river maybe on the face of the planet at one time. Drying up. I read this article. Scientists found during a seven-year period beginning in 2003 that parts of Turkey... Syria, Iraq, and Iran, interestingly enough, along the Tigris and Euphrates River basins lost 117 million acre feet 
or 144 cubic kilometers of total stored fresh water, according to the University of California at Irvine. I believe God is beginning to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, this is not Armageddon. Okay, A lot of people confuse what we're going to be looking at with Armageddon. In fact, in the book of Revelation, there's more than one, I mean, not Armageddon, I'm sorry, Gog and Magog, rather. There's more than one great war. There's at least three great world conflagrations outlined, outlined in the book of Revelation. Remember what Yeshua said in his great last prophetic statement? We shall hear of what? Wars and rumors of wars. The 20th century, mankind's zenith with all the things we had, you know, Google and an Apple, you know, the Internet, knowledge expanding. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. In fact, if you took all the conflagrations and all the plagues and all the deaths by natural forces and, 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 and climate and put it all together throughout all of the history up till the 20th century, it wouldn't combine or even come close to this wonderful last century of ours. Well, this book, Revelation, is taking us beyond that. This is a warning for us. We are not the crown of creation. We ain't doing so well. And God has finally come, or is coming, to judge those who've turned their way on his perfect way of living. You know, we read the Torah every, every Shabbat. We study the Torah. Living the Torah was the way God ordained for mankind, Jew and Gentile, to understand what it means to live in peace and in harmony and to live a godly life so that we might have, according to the book of Deuteronomy, days of heaven on earth. Have you had a lot of heavenly days on earth recently? We've turned away, and this is the culmination and the end of the patience of the Lord God Himself. Verse 13 of 16 says, And I saw coming out of the mouth, John speaking, a dragon, out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the three of them. This is what we've studied, what we've looked at. This is the false imitation of, you know, Satan is a liar, a deceiver, and he imitates and mocks the things of God. We have here what many people call the false trinity, an imitation of God's trinity. We'll be getting into that at another time. But the three of them, the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon, coming out of their mouths, Out of their mouths, three unclean spirits like frogs. These are spirits of demons performing signs. We're living in a time that is going to be very, very, very spiritual. People are going to see things, signs, wonders, demons um, masquerading as, 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 as humanity or as soldiers. We are going to come into a very spiritual time. It's going to be absolutely the war of the two kingdoms, one against the other. And these are spiritual kingdoms warring it out on this battlefield here, on planet Earth. 
spirits of demons performing signs, to gather all the people together for the war of the great day. This is what, the, what it should really be called, because it's not really the war of Armageddon. It should really be called the war of the great God Almighty. The war of the day of the Lord. It doesn't even actually take place in, Ar- in Armageddon. Next slide. They gather in Armageddon, but the war itself doesn't take place in Armageddon. Magadon may well be connected with the name Megiddo. Megiddo is in the plain of Estralon, which was part of the great highway from Egypt to Damascus. Egypt to Damascus. From the most ancient times to the time of Napoleon, it was considered one of the greatest battleground fields of the world. When Napoleon saw Megiddo, when he saw this plain, Napoleon said, this is a great place to have a war. I would love to have a war here someday. This is the perfect place to have a war. That's how he thought. And many wars, many battles, biblical battles, unbiblical battles, secular battles have taken place in what we call the Valley of Megiddo, the day of battle. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem. Next slide. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against her. The city will be captured. This is from Zechariah. The city will be captured. The houses will be ransacked. And the women shall be raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will be taken from the city. I searched the internet for graphics and pictures when I tried to you know, present, do a PowerPoint presentation on this book and what I'm teaching. Looking on the internet and plugging in some of these things, I came up with images that were so startling, were so gross, that I couldn't even really present them here. I was talking to Joanne about that before. Images of demons coming out of the mouths. Demons leading armies. I don't know how many people have ever had a confrontation with a demon. I don't know how many people have ever seen a demon in this room. But they're not pretty. And when you see them in their nakedness, when you see them for who and what they are, even those gross images that I saw, which I wouldn't put in the sanctuary, I told Joanne, I wouldn't, I wouldn't project those images. Not that they were pornographic or anything, but they were so grotesque that I wouldn't bring them into the sanctuary. And then as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about some of the movies that are out there. Some of the films. Some of the things that we see on television. Some of the hauntings, the vampires, the supernatural, the demonic things that are so popular today in our culture. And I said, you know, people are getting used to that. People are kind of uh, being immunized towards this demonology. So when they see these things, then they've done that. Where are we going as a people? Where are we going as a nation? Where are we going as God's holy people? Are we making a distinction between the clean and the unclean? Are we making a distinction between His kingdom and the kingdom of darkness? Is there a clear-cut line in the sand that we've drawn so that we don't go over that line and we don't let those 
demonic influences in any way touch us. War against God's people. War against God's holy city. War to destroy finally the remnant of the holy people of God. Revelation 16.15 is interjected here. The Lord reminds those who might still be alive at that time. The Lord reminds those that He is still coming. Don't be disheartened. Don't, don't be dismayed. I am coming. I am coming soon to redeem you. But I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes clean so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. It says in Zechariah, And the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. Behold, I am coming as a thief. We who are alive at this time, we're told by Rev. Shaul, the Apostle Paul, to us, we're told, but you are not in darkness like they are, that I should come to you as a thief. He will not come to us as a thief. We're promised that. He will not come as a thief at night because we are expecting Him. We're waiting for Him. We're going to know Him when we see Him. To them, He will be like a thief in the night. A dark shadow coming to, to destroy their, their kingdom. What they've set up. And what they've established. But to those who are waiting for Him, He will return. With shalom, with peace, we're told in the last prophecy of the Scriptures. With healing and peace. In his wings. To them that are waiting, he will arise with healing in his wings. And they gathered themselves together in a place called Armageddon. Next slide, please. They gathered themselves together and they fought the battle as they attacked God's holy city. We're going to get into that a little bit later in chapters 17 and 18. All this is not being unseen by the one who is about to come. The one who is about to come and to rescue his people at the very end. The one who promised, behold, I will come. It says in the very, in the second psalm, um, where is my second psalm here? As I said earlier, the book of Psalms is kind of like a, a companion book in many ways to the book of Revelation with its psalms and its praise and its hallelujahs and the things that, that David saw. In the very second psalm, the first psalm is about, Psalm 1 is about the godly man and how the godly man lives. And the second psalm, which sets the, uh, sets the whole tone, those two first, first two psalms do for the rest of the book of Psalms. The first one about how the godly and the righteous shall live. The second psalm says, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavenly laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. Remember, this was written 3,000 years ago. He will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, God speaking, I have set my king upon my holy hill, upon Zion, my holy place. The psalmist said, 
I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, to the psalmist, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Therefore, O kings, kings of the earth, you've been warned. Rulers of the world, you've been warned. People of the earth, God has spoken thousands of years ago and continues to speak. Therefore, be wise, O kings. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice in His presence with trembling. Kiss the Son. The psalmist said that. Kiss the Son. Who is he referring to? The one who is seated at the right hand of God. David saw Him. Pay homage to the Son. The Son of God. The Son of Man. The Messiah of Israel. David wrote that as a warning to us and to God's people. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Next slide. I don't know if you can see that very well. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. This is 16, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne room saying, It is done. This is the last word spoken from the temple of God to mankind. It is finished. Into the air. And there were flashes of lightning, verse 18. Sounds and peals of thunder, remember Sinai. There was a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty, that all the earth was split into parts. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of all the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon mankind. Huge hailstones. And still men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hailstones, because of the plague was extremely Severe, a plague of hailstones upon the air. Who does the Bible tell us is the prince of the power of the air? God has poured out the vial of his wrath upon the very kingdom of the enemy. The prince of the power of the air is going to be completely decimated at this point. Every island disappeared. All the mountains were leveled. The reshaping of the earth coming back to its original form. All the nations. All the cities of the earth. God has to restore everything and bring it back to its original form. You know, in the Jewish synagogue, after we get finished reading the Torah, the five books of Torah, and we come to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, what do we do? We go back to the beginning. That's exactly how this book is structured. Can I have the next slide, please? This is something like what the earth is going to look like. Carol said it looked like the movie Blade Runner. If you've ever seen Blade Runner, it kind of does. 
Everything is going to decimate it because God is going to bring it back, he says, to its original form. At the end of this book, at the end of the apocalypse, at the end of the revelation, we go back to the garden. We go back to the beginning. Just like in the Torah, we go to the end of Deuteronomy, Devarim, and then we go back to Genesis 1. That's exactly what the Lord is doing here. He's making the earth ready for the newness of his new kingdom and his new creation to rule and to reign as it was in the beginning. There's a purpose to all of this. God is saying, what you got now, forget about it. This earth with its sicknesses and disease, its death, its dying, its lying, its corruption... We're going to get into that when we look at Babylon in 17 and 18 and all the symptoms of the cancer of this earth is going to be wiped away. God is going to radiate the earth. Give a radiation treatment and everything that was sick, everything that caused death is going to be wiped away. It's going to be gone. Where do we stand in all of this? Can I have the next slide, please? Second Chronicles 7.14. Many of you know this scripture. It says, Then if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and restore their land. That's a promise. The Lord has given us that promise. If my people, who are called by my name... Originally, this, this verse was written to Israel. You know that. That's the original um, recipients. But it says, those who are called by my name, those who are called by the name of Messiah, by Yeshua, those who are His, it applies to you too. The Lord is looking for people who are called by His name to humble themselves and pray and seek His face. Turn away from your wicked ways. I will heal your land. There is still time for God's mercy in the day in which we live. Can I have the next slide, please? All of these terrible judgments, all of these things that we see in the book of Revelation towards the very end is basically directed against this city. This city and its occupants. This people and its history. This people and its God, Jerusalem. That is who he hates. That is why we've had thousands of years of him trying to destroy God's chosen people. The very last battles are all directed against this people. He's not even concerned anymore about the nations because he owns the nations. The only ones who are not paying him allegiance are those among the Jewish people who see through him and see that he is not their Messiah. He is not the Prince of Peace. He is not the one they've been waiting for. When he seats himself in the Holy of Holies, they will once again recognize that this is the abomination that causes desolation, the one that we call Antichrist. Prefigured thousands of years ago in Antiochus. Yeshua also warned us, he said, let those who have ears to hear, let them know what I'm talking about. Because once again, this abomination will seat itself in the temple and call himself God. And the only people on the face of the earth at that time who will see through him, who will know that he is not God, but he is anti-God, 
anti-Messiah of the chosen people of God. God at that time will restore His people. Can I have the next slide, please? Time is in God's hands. All time, all space, all history is all in His hands. He holds the key to all of these things. Yeshua told us, no man knows the day or the hour. Don't let anybody say that I know when, I know all the signs, I know exactly when these things are going to happen. Because Yeshua himself, Jesus said, I, even I at this point, do not know the day or the hour, but only the Father who is in heaven. Time is in his hands. The earth is in his hands. The kingdoms are in his hands. The wrath is in his hands. The saints cry out through all of history, How long, O Lord? How much longer do we have to undergo or bear up to this deception, this deceit, these bloodthirsty men who hate your truth, who destroy the truth, pollute the truth? How long, O Lord? Next slide. Rev. Shaul said, The day is near. Romans 13.11 Speaking to those believers. And do this, understanding the present hour. The hour has already come for you to wake up. You who call upon His name. Wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. Darkness is going away. The day is at hand. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Not in carousing, drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery. Not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, let us clothe ourselves with the Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach. And do not think about how we can gratify the desires of our flesh. The day is at hand. The night is far spent. Clothe yourself. That's what it says in Revelation. Put on garments. Those wonderful garments of sanctification that He provides you with. Those of you who know Him need to rededicate yourselves. The day is far spent. The night is at hand. We will be going through stuff that we may not even expect. Things that we may not want to even think about. But the Lord is with us. The Lord will rescue and redeem. And at the exact appropriate moment, I will come for you, my people. You will not be taken unawares because you are waiting for him. He's your Lord. He's your God. He's coming to rescue his people. Let's have worship team come up. And we'll do one more song. Anybody else stand to your feet, please, as we have a closing prayer. Thank you, Lord. The Lord is merciful in goodness. His mercy endures forever. He's giving us a time of, of reprise, a time of warning, a time in which we can prepare ourselves, no matter where we are spiritually, no matter how close we are to Him. He's wanting us to rearm ourselves with His light, with His goodness, His mercy. And if we have any doubts about where we stand with Him, He's saying, come to me now. As I said earlier, we will come to a place where redemption will no longer be an option because the people of the earth will say, no, I don't want him. 
Something is going to cover the earth that is going to cause people to say, I don't want him. I can only blaspheme him. Even though I see all of these things around me, I do not want to be part of his kingdom. And the fruit of that is eternal darkness, as we're going to see in the rest of this book. These are the days of Elijah, declaring the word of the Lord. These are the days of your servant Moses' righteousness being restored. These are, though these are days of great trial and famine, darkness and sword, still we need to be the voice in the wilderness crying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Our foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio.